Greetings, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tar and Rama's True History of Nusera and Our Galactic Origins on BBS Radio Station 2. We're grateful that you're joining us here today, and um, usually it's Cheryl that does the meditation, and Cheryl is fine, but she ended up having an appointment at 5, and so... I'm filling in for her, and we keep her in the circle of support that she can have a quick recovery from her hip surgery. And I hear that calling drum. <laughs> so I, that reminds me of the Kimi drum. This is the Kimi drum. I, let me introduce you to the drum. <laughs> uh, and this is a Kimi day. This is a five overtone Kimi in the Mayan record of days. So it's the white overtone uh, linker of worlds. Kimi is the linker of worlds. Indeed, the Kimi drum knows how to do that. Um, <laughs> so let's let's get ourselves into our heart space, and we do that by taking a few gentle breaths, whatever breathing call, protocol you like to use is appropriate. Just breathe gently and slowly and intentionally. Go into that heart space. Let go of the dross of the day. Gather with your guides and guardians, your ancestors, your spirit teams, your healing teams. There's a council fire, and it's in the center. So let us gather around that council fire in that virtual way we know how to do. As we call in the seven sacred directions in the Cherokee tradition, with a little bit of toning from Joseph Rael's teachings of Navajo, tradition. <laughs> so we like to face the different directions when we do the toning. So know where you're at. Where is the east? Where is the the north? Where is the south? And as we tone, we want to face the direction that we're toning to. So let us all face the east. And please tone with me as we do this toning. So we're going to tone ah for purification, and this is the tone to call in the east. All your spirit keepers of the East, come, look this way. We give thanks for this new beginning, this new day, that rising sun. For the clarity of mind and the openness of heart to learn and grow. 
that beginner's mind. We welcome you, eagle, condor, hawk, thunderbird, you high-flying ones. We're grateful for your ability to see that big picture and yet see every detail in the tiniest parts of that big picture. Thank you for your insights and that ability to look at our lives in a benevolent way. We give thanks for this new day, for this opportunity for beginner's mind to truly experience the joy, the humbleness of starting anew. And we invite divine masculinity, that solar energy and power of protection, be with us as we begin this journey. Wado. Now let us turn and face the north. And for the north, we're going to tone O, and it's for innocence. So please tone with me. keepers of the north come this way we give thanks for all the ceremonies and teachings that sustain us and for all you white-haired ones the elders teaching those ceremonies and witnessing and midwiving <laughs> we give thanks for the white furred one snowy owl the white feathered one and the hare the polar bear who lives in that place, in that cold, hard truth. Thank you for teaching us to embrace and be grateful for the truth. We give thanks to Buffalo people for your medicine of abundance and of gratitude. We give thanks to the tall standing ones, the tall standing nation, for your teachings of longevity and endurance and how to stand in our power without bending. And we are grateful to you, winds of change. Thank you for empowering us to resist complacency. Thank you for joining us here today, all you beings of the East. Ho, Wado. Now let's turn to face the West. As we tone E for awareness, please join me.
All you spirit keepers of the West, come join us here. Look this way. We give thanks for Bear for your medicine of going within, for discernment and for healing. And we are grateful for all you big cats, the shots, jaguar, panther, cougar. Thank you for showing us how to live in two worlds, the intangible world and the the invisible world and the physical world. We give thanks to divine feminine, lunar energy, for your gift of life, death, and rebirth. We're grateful for this twilight, for that sacred time and place in between the world. Be with us on our journey. Give us the strength to look deeply within our hearts, welcoming our hurts and fears to sit with us in order to be transformed. We give thanks to Otter for your playfulness in women's medicine. Thank you, all you spirits of the West, for joining us here. Wado. Now we're going to turn and look towards the south. And for the south, we tone eh for relationship. So tone with me. beings of the south come look this way we're so grateful for the medicine plant that keep us strong in body and mind we're grateful for you coyote and rabbit you tricksters thank you for reminding us to laugh at ourselves do not take our ego so seriously and for that balance of the irreverence with the sacredness grateful for porcupine, for your gifts of innocence, trust, and faith in ourselves and teaching us that, and in every being of the planetary family. We're so grateful for you stone people who carry the library of creation. We're grateful for our physical fitness and each body's expression of the divine. Thank you for joining us here today. Wado. Now we're going to look up, reach up, put our arms to the sky and as we invite the Sky Nation. All you spirits keep keepers of the Sky Nation above, come. Look this way. Give gratitude to you, Starry Medicine Bowl. With the campfires of our ancestors lighting the dark sky. And thank you, Sister Sun and Brother Moon and all you cloud and rain beings for our lives and for keeping us company on our earth walks. 
give thanks for dream time, for that ability to travel in our spirit body, to experience our true natures so that we don't forget who we are. Many gratitudes to swan and dolphin, lizard and dragonfly, you beautiful guardians and messengers of the dream time. Come join us here today as we do our work. Wado. In the next direction is the below direction. So reach down and touch the earth. As we invite in all the spirit keepers of below, come, look this way. Pachamama, Gaia, Mother Earth. Thank you for our lives. Thank you for all the children of the Earth Blanket. You creepy crawlers, you winged ones, and fin ones, the four-legged ones, the six-legged ones, those pollinators and regenerators who keep us alive. Many gratitudes for the diversity of life, for the interconnectedness of life, to the web of life and that equality of each member of the planetary family. Thank you for joining us here. Thank you, Mother Earth, for teaching us how to take care of you, to honor all life, all life forms, and then to walk gently upon you with love and respect. Thank you, Mother Earth. Wado. Now we're doing the last tone, the seventh tone, is the within direction. And uh, that's that inner sacred space. The tone for the inner direction is ooh, and it's for carrying. So tone with me as we tone for the center. Spirit keepers within, come, look this way. All you medicine ancestors, all of our personal ancestors, thank you for the wise choices that you made in your lifetime to sustain and nurture us, to pass down the wisdom, the knowledge, so that we could better live our lives as sacred human beings. We give thanks to the next seven generations. Thank you for reminding us to make wise choices with intention and respect, to pass down the wisdom gained, and to create beauty and balance upon the earth. Thank you for joining us here today. Wado, a home will talk we
shall again. I am another you. You are another me. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for toning with me and joining us here today. And I'm going to change my hat as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. Just stay wherever that drumbeat took you. Stay where you are <laughs> while I discuss what it is we need and give thanks to all of you for your contributions and for supporting this program that we can gather each week this way and do the work that we do together. Uh, We're so grateful for you, and we're so grateful for BBS Radio for providing this forum for us to express in this way. And uh, that comes with an expense, so it's all of us that make it happen. So we're so grateful that we have been doing this for 13 years, making it happen. (laughs) So lots of gratitude to everyone contributing. And if you haven't contributed, I invite you to do so, as this is one way we can pay it forward and and reap those blessings of the many returns, as, as is the result of paying it forward. So... And may you all be blessed many times over. Thank you for your gifts. Here's how we make a donation to BBS Radio. We we need $355 each week until we get caught up. So it's a little bit higher so that we are picking on past due. But we are past due for the month of September. And um, that's because we are... Catching up with from February when we had lots of car issues and needed to use all the funds available for that. So thank you for your patience in understanding this process. And thank you for going into your heart space and seeing what is yours to give. You want to go to bbsradio.com. And there on the homepage, you'll see the schedule for Radio Station 1 and Radio Station 2. And as you click on our icons on the listing on the schedule, you will be able to access our uh, account with BBS Radio. So here's where you'll find those icons. For this program, we're on Radio Station 2, BBS Radio 2, at the 3.30 hour. These are central times. And um, as you'll find us at, (laughs) yeah, at the 3.30 hour. So as you click on... That listing, that will take you to our account. You, you click on the icon that's there at that listing. So you, then that will take you directly to our account with BBS Radio. Or you can make a, day, a donation in any amount using your bank card. So thank you for taking that action. Then also we have programs on Friday, Thursday, and Thursday at the 8 o'clock hour. And on Thursday is the night at the round table with the panel. There's a, as you look it up, you'll find that icon there. Click on it, and that takes you to our account. And then on Fridays, the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. As you click on that icon, that'll take you to our account. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking that action. We're so grateful. And what we need this week, I didn't mention that yet. We need $989, so don't worry about giving too much. <laughs> and and indeed, that's really how we need to do this as we are giving. Let's give a little extra and so that we can catch up to where we need to be. And, and with lots of gratitude to Don and Doug and the people at BBS Radio who are patient with us this way and... So much gratitude for your patience as well as we uh, 
do the work we do here, we we all have patience. <laughs> we learned that one. So, uh, yeah, thank you for your generosity, and thank you for all you new people who are doing this for the first time. Thank you for joining the the, the family that way and supporting what, the work that we do here. And thank you for all you loyal people who've been here for years and years. We are so grateful for you and for all the ways you show up in your lives, all of you. So lots of gratitude. Thank you. We're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs, and they don't need much this week. They just need a couple hundred dollars for their living expenses, and they won't have any bills due till the week after next. So this is a good time to just focus on what we can do with our BBS radio bill. It's $889. I said it before. I'll say it again. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and lots of gratitude for every one of you who pitch in and help us make these commitments. We're so grateful, and we're so grateful that you make it happen. You're joining each week as we do the work that we do and as I do the prayer work that we do. We're so grateful for what that what that does to make the universe turn. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, thank you. 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Here's how you make a donation to Tara and Rama. You want to go to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the homepage is a menu grid. Click on that, and the menu drops down. You will see near the bottom a donate link. Click on donate, and that takes you to our the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account, where you can make a donation in any amount using your bank card. And you can access the friends option there, and that reduces the eliminates the commercial charges. And we do that by using the email there. That email address is Coran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And as you enter that email, you're able to make that access that friends option. So either way, it's perfect. We're grateful for all your donations. Thank you for taking that action. We so appreciate you. And we appreciate all your gifts. Okay, so as you're sending something, let Rama know that you sent something and when you sent it. And that email for Rama, Coran, K-O-R-A-N, 99939s, at Comcast.net. You can also reach Rama by mail, and that mailing address is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip code there. I'll say it again, Post Office Box 280-280, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, zip code 87567. So there you have it, all the information. And I know there's a lot going on today, so I want to pass this talking stick, and it has that fiery energy, and we've got that Kimi energy, too, with that linker of worlds today. So working with that overtone, so that harmonic that it's bringing in that good work of linking death to life and life to death in that circle. And uh, there's all this dragon energy still going on. All the grids are lit up. The 
and the dragons are here, and there's a few unicorns coming along, and all kinds of fairies and feathers. Excalibur, sort of, sort of truth, is here. All kinds of healing energy is abundant in this talking stick with all the healing rays and uh, lots of angelic activity and lots of little people. The Menahunis, the dwarves, the elves, the um, yeah, all those, and gnomes. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. Welcome. Greetings. Greetings. All you commanders, eagles, and angels, and fairies, and leprechauns, and uh, Peshawts. <laughs> And uh, Sasquatch and whoever you might be. Yeah. And Manahoonies. They carry the pot of gold around the world. They do. They do. And I was remembering climbing up to the top of Kalalau Valley with somebody here not too long ago. And there was a tree spirit. In one of the, uh, forgot what they call that stuff you make poi out of. Oh, taro root. Taro root. Oh, that's, that's in the ground. I guess that's the mango tree then. Yeah. I saw a tree spirit and it moved and it acknowledged our presence. I was climbing with somebody else named Merlin. <laughs> whose parents were from Sri Lanka, doing this in the Kalalau Valley in Kauai, Hawaii, climbing to the top, which is 10,000 feet. Don't talk to me about having some strength in your legs and your feet and all these things. All I can say is there's a chance right now. Uh, that song, Climb Every Mountain, Ford Every Stream, Follow Every Rainbow, Follow the Dream. Till you find your dream. Well, we found our dream and it's getting anchored right now. I mean, it really is. Rama's working in the kitchen, so I will read the message that he got from today. Here it goes. I received a text message again from the poppy lady and Fingdel Noor, the Sasquatch lady. At 12.26 p.m. early this afternoon. They said to me, Lord Rama, we are still here in Morocco working with others to recover the departed. And some have been found alive, even though this is the ninth day since the quake occurred a week ago, Friday. September 8th, in the wee hours of the morning. The lame street, that's um, Blaze of Violet Fire, put that whole situation in the circle. And just to remind everybody, the report about Libya, 11,000 over the rainbow. They expect over 20,000 to be over the rainbow when all is said and done. 
uh, disease is erupting from all the bodies that have yet to be found and recovered in both places. And so uh, it's really helpful to put all that situation in the circle of support, everybody. And blaze the violet fire, I am so grateful to be alive and uh, doing this work with everyone, all of you, all over this world. We have people from all kinds of parts of this world listening. And so, again, let's do our best as we have some extra to donate so we can catch up. The whole month of September here is in our hands. And uh, so it is. Uh, yes, we can. All right. The Lane Street Media is not reporting that people are still alive in these areas. It is all about removing people of color from the planet. So from that, Rama, I'm gathering that the dark side helped make this storm happen in the Mediterranean to do that. C'est possible. Well, that's what they said, because the other places that uh, kinds of people died from this mm-hmm. storm, Daniel, are people of color too. Greece and mm-hmm. Syria, and I'm not sure what the other... I still don't remember. There's a third country over there. Probably Lebanon. Because mm. Lebanon's pretty much in front of the Syrian yeah. parts. All people of color over there. Okay, so meanwhile, in Iran, this is the first anniversary of Masha, M-A-H-S-A, Masa Amina, Amini being killed by the Iranian government for not wearing a headscarf or hajib in public. And the Moral Police did some very horrible things to her when she was there without her headscarf demonstrating in the streets. They, I think they beat her pretty badly. And then they put her in a cell in an Iranian jail and left her there to die and they didn't attend to her injuries at all. There are big demonstrations going on all over Iran this day. And there's been demonstrations going on all throughout the whole year. And these people are not taking this uh, (coughs) suppression, this kind of suppression at all. And I believe it's because of the energies coming in and people dedicating their lives to freedom right now. Love, truth, freedom, justice. Love, truth, peace. Don't forget that. Freedom, justice, and beauty. In that order. That's a spiritual requirement that you have that in that order. Um... As there's love, then truths can be revealed. And then once 
the truth is revealed, there can be peace within and without as we can share what we know about truth. And as we do this as a world group service together, of course, freedom emerges. And as that happens, uh, then justice seasoned with divine mercy and divine compassion occurs. And then all things are renewed. That's why beauty emerges too. And this is, we got to give the due where it belongs because Mother Earth called to her galactic friends for assistance because Mm -hmm. the small group of folks in power uh, insisted on on uh, choosing just the opposite of those six qualities. Money over love. Money and power over love. And we've heard this saying so many times, sex isn't sex, it's always something else. And money isn't money, it's always something else. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so, as we wake up, choose love. It didn't say this was going to be easy. All right, so teach only love too. Please place all of this in the circle of support and blaze the violet fire. Assalamu alaikum. What does that mean, Rama? Peace be upon you, right? Yes. So I answer alaikum assalam, and that means, and that means. Allah blesses you. Okay. All right. Sat now. Namaste. Blaze the violet fire. So, um, a bit of news. This character. Articles of impeachment against Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. Seven counts of disregard of official duty. And he's a buddy buddy of Trump's. Oh, yeah. 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 Three counts of false statements in official records. Two Republicans, Texas Republicans, did the right thing and called for impeachment. And there was all kinds of bribery and threats to hurt people in the Republican sector in Texas of their legislature as they didn't uh, vote in favor of, you know... Uh, you might say, well, the way it says it here is that the embattled Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, has been acquitted of all charges in his historic impeachment trial in the Texas Senate. And there were 16, uh, so I'm reading them, seven counts of disregard of official duty, seven counts of false statements in official records. Two counts of misapplication of public resources. Two counts of constitutional bribery. Two counts of obstruction of justice. One count of conspiracy or attempted conspiracy. One count of dereliction of duty. And one count of unfitness for office. And one count of abuse of public Mm. trust. And he got acquitted, so... Just like Bernie was 
shout to the hilltops here. Um, uh, <coughs> deals for money and power were made in lieu of justice. True justice. So blaze the violet fire. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to share, Rama? Oh, just that the energies are tremendously high and we're just being told to stay with the, you know, the violet flame, the emerald green ray. Don't get caught in the matrix because they are calling to you with every second that's going by with the mainstream news. I mean, there's stories out there about Russell Brand, that um, he is in uh, maybe having to deal with some court scenarios with four women. And I don't know any of the stories about Russell Brand. I don't really listen to his stuff on Rumble or other places because there is, you know... um, That doesn't make sense to me because that doesn't comport with the natures so I'm thinking that the oligarchy are really angry with him for speaking truth to power and they're portraying this as though they can smear his right and take him off the BBC you know broadcast this is going on with Oprah Winfrey too yeah and uh, others there's others. Um, so we just remain neutral because the media is completely captured by the dark side. That's what feeds them, called louche. Yes, which is really dark stuff. Uh, killing babies and eating their flesh and drinking their blood mm. is not a family value. So the far-right GOP demand to avoid government shutdown, these are my demands, they say, lower spending levels, meaning forget the people, uh, build a wall on the southern border, (laughs) oh my God, Uh, restrict asylum seekers. Uh What they've been doing with these kids is they've been putting them into the... uh, Child trafficking rings. That's what they've been doing. Blaze of fire. Uh, and then address the uh, weaponization of justice, of the Justice Department, which is going as a million ways to Sunday. That's going on. And then the next one is opposed blank check to Ukraine. I agree with that because... War is never the answer, and that was created by the deep state here. It has nothing to do with reality. There's a whole pile of Nazis that, you know, found their home in Ukraine, southeastern section. And this is part of the detail of, you know, that we need to clear up. Archangel's sword of truth, you know, over the seats of power here. All right, let's just get started. What are we going to do first, Rama? Oh, 
Um, you want to do this? Well, I found the Teresa Boulard. You want to do that first? Mm. Or do you want to do Greg Braden first? I'll do Greg Braden first. Okay, we didn't print out the blurb, so you got to tell us what it's about. This is Greg Braden from Secrecy to Revelation, Exploring E.T. Disclosure. How many minutes? Uh, 46 minutes. Okay, is there anything more that's there to share? Uh, <laughs> it is complicated. Here we go. Okay, let's listen, everybody. Here we go. focus. Today, I want to talk to you about disclosure. Specifically, I want to talk to you about the ongoing disclosure of information regarding our relationship to technology from beyond this world, to life from beyond this world, and to contact uh, from that life uh, with us in the past and the present. And I have to be specific when I, I talk about disclosure. I was recently at an event there was a question that came up from the audience. I was on stage and someone asked me to speak about disclosure and uh, uh, someone else and a woman in another part of the office, she said, well, disclosure of what? And uh, was not aware of the efforts that are ongoing right now through the mass media to condition the population of the world to uh, to accept the revelations that are now being made in one form or another, of our relationship to uh, intelligence from, from beyond this world. It's a complex topic. It's not new. Uh, it's been going on for a long time. And this is one of the interesting things about disclosure. When I ask people, what are you expecting from disclosure? Uh, what we find is that for many people, it means the official acknowledgement of our relationship to intelligence from beyond this world. In other words, they, they want to see an acknowledgement, not just on BBC and CNN, but they want to see it from the Kremlin. They want to see it from the White House. I don't know that that's going to happen in that way. Disclosure itself has been happening for a long time on many different levels. And uh, just depends on, on what it is that you're expecting to see, what you believe in terms of what you're being uh, shown, because obviously there's a narrative around the disclosure, not just the fact that disclosure is happening, but how the narrative is being driven. So these are things I want to talk to you about today. What is disclosure? What does it mean? What are the implications? What's the big deal? I've had young people come up to me at some of our events and say, what is the big deal? You know, we all know that we're not alone in the universe. So, so let me just kind of break this down a little bit. Uh, first of all, the, this will probably be part one of, uh, at least a, a two part series because there's so many facets 
of disclosure. And I think many of you know that for over 40 years of my adult life, I have been blessed to lead people into some of the most isolated and remote and pristine and magnificent and beautiful places remaining in the world today for the archaeological sites that we find there, uh, but also because of the indigenous people that preserve the wisdom that we find in those archaeological sites. So I'll be clear, I have not been with every indigenous tradition, you know, everywhere on the planet. Every indigenous tradition that I have ever been with allows for a relationship uh, between them, their people, their communities, and a greater family in the cosmos, what they call their space family, their space brothers and sisters, or whatever. And it's it's more than just a reference to them. There's an interaction that happens, especially when I go into the Andes of southern Peru, uh, spend a lot of time leading groups into the um, Tibetan plateau, the 12 monasteries and two nunneries over 26 days, uh, and the, t- the Tibetan people, among others. And the point is that they all allow for these relationships. Have some olive oil before your bed, and your sleeping partner will love you for it. There's just one problem. There's a good chance you've never actually consumed fresh olive oil. In fact, there's an even chance the olive oil in your pantry isn't 100% pure olive oil, according to several investigative reports, including one done by 60 men. Uh, between us and a greater intelligence, an ongoing relationship that began a long time ago. It's only in the West where we in the past may have had a problem. And I say in the past because uh, I believe that we are in the process of being conditioned. We have been since I was a kid of, uh, of accepting uh, on a deeper level, our relationship to intelligence from beyond this world. You know, I, if you're old enough to remember, I mean, some of the first science fiction programs that came out in the late 50s and early 60s, you know, on black and white television and some of the first Star Treks that came out and uh, Lost in Space, you know, with uh, an AI intelligent robot uh, that used to wave his arms around and say, danger, Will Robinson, danger, Will Robinson, you know, and, and we laugh about those. But those were early, um, early efforts to begin conditioning the general population to think differently about ourselves and our relationship with the world. And so you say, well, why would we need to think differently? Well, I'm going to begin with that. It all comes down to there were a couple of studies that were done. Um, They were done back in the early 1960s, and then they were published later, later in the 60s, about what it would mean to us. How would it impact society and civilization to know that we're not all that there is, that the world doesn't revolve around us, that that there's something else out there. And a, a couple of these think tanks, they, they did some really interesting research. One of them is the Rand Corporation. I know some of you are familiar with with them. Another one is the Brookings Institute. The, the Rand Corporation, these are uh, private organizations. And I, I'm looking over here. I don't have a formal PowerPoint presentation. I'm going to reference some notes for accuracy, and I want to give you some direct quotes I wanted to put this out quickly so that uh, we could build on this because of some of the things that are happening in the news cycles that are coming around over the next few days, next couple of weeks. I wanted wanted you to have a little bit of context from my my perspective because you've asked for that. So these are are private uh, think tanks, private corporations 
that consult with uh, with the authorities, with U.S. military, with governments all, all over the world. And the Rand Corporation uh, it was interesting because when they were asked about their positions, they denied uh, that they had done any work or any reference or any acknowledgement of uh, uh, intelligence from beyond our world. And finally, through uh, enough asking, and I think it's through freedom of information, could have played a role in this, they acknowledged an internal memo. It was dated uh, November 27, 1968, where they uh, developed a memo and uh, it was uh, um, based, it was broken down into a number of different parts. Part five is actually called UFOs, how to proceed and why. So it shows us the Rand Corporation was looking into this and they gave all kinds of scenarios uh, about what could happen. And if these things happened, what it would mean, it's kind of like a fault tree. If this, then that, if this, then that. So I'm just sharing this because it, it goes to show they were being asked to explore this and to think about it. I think the really important one, probably the one that had the, the greatest impact was from the, um, the Brookings Institute. This is from 1962. And I'm going to read, uh, directly from this. I want to get this right. And what they were doing with the Brookings Institute was taking case histories from anthropological studies here on Earth. What did it mean to societies that had been cut off from the rest of the world? So these are tribes that were, and again, this is back in the 60s. And these were new tribes that were being found in uh, primarily in South America and Africa or in the, the Pacific on islands that had been cut off. From, uh, uh, you know, the rest of the world and by being cut off, this is the important thing that, uh, they were absolutely certain of their place in the world and of their place in the cosmos. They had a, a very, they were very entrenched in an idea of who they were and where they were and with relation to the rest of the cosmos. Now we're not cut off from one another, but as a society, this applies to us. We have been conditioned to be very certain, very human centric about who we are and our relationship to the world. Now, there have always been people and maybe in your family and certainly in my family, you know, we've always acknowledged uh, that, you know, the universe is a big place. And as Carl Sagan said, it would be a terrible waste of space if, if we're all that there is. And we know that they're not as a scientist. Uh, I have studied the archaeological, the anthropological uh evidence the the fossil records i'm going to begin talking about those in some of the other other programs uh so i've always been very open to the idea and for me i, I it wasn't a problem it's never been a problem for me but let me share with you why it was a problem uh according to people at the brookings institute and how this thinking led to the the hiding of information that was coming out in in the 20th century so here's a direct quote from the brookings institute it says anthropological files contain many examples of societies that were sure of their place in the universe. So this is what I was just mentioning, which have disintegrated when they have had to associate with previously unfamiliar societies espousing different ideas and different life ways Others that survived such an experience, so some of them disintegrated. They just, they ceased to exist as a society. Those that did continue their societies 
Those that survive such an experience usually did so by paying a very high price of changes in values and attitudes and behaviors. So this is the the official thinking back in the 1960s when it comes to the the public revelation of what was happening with crash sites, with recoveries, not just in the United States, but these were happening all over the world. Recently, we're finding as far back as 1933, uh, a, a vehicle, um, an extraterrestrial vehicle had crashed in Italy during the, the rule of Mussolini and was given to the U.S. because of our, our relationship with them at the time and the technical expertise. Uh, in the, the cultural traditions of all those places that I mentioned previously, from the Andes Mountains and the Tibetans, they've always had uh, records written records, oral traditions, and in some cases have actually harbored uh, the occupants of the vehicles that have crashed or landed on Earth among the indigenous populations, and they have learned from them and communicated with them over a period of many years and developed their cosmology based upon those relationships. So I'm going to talk about that more in uh, in another video, what I want to talk to you about right now is the disclosure itself, the way it's happening, how it's being presented to us, and what it may mean, and what the concerns are uh, about that. So there is a process. It's a concerted process that is uh, becoming a little bit more apparent, certainly in the news cycles recently. And, and I, I say recently because as far back, some of you remember, I mean, for me, the, the first really high-level official Disclosure. There were always rumors and there were uh, whistleblowers and there were leaks, you know, all through from World War II. Ghirardelli Intense Dark makes life a bite better. Uh, and development of nuclear weapons, you know, up into the present. That, that's always been happening. The, the first really official acknowledgement was in the year 2013. And this was at the, uh, the National Press Club, the... It was called the Citizen Hearings on UFO Disclosure. Stephen Greer, I mean, if you know who Stephen Greer is, I interviewed with him for a film that he uh, did last year. Interestingly, uh, he and his staff felt that my part of the interview did not fit into the film, so it wasn't included. But uh, I interviewed with him. They, they came to me here in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I'm saying this because I had the opportunity to spend uh, an evening with Stephen Greer and talked to him. Very interesting, very interesting guy, very interesting perspectives. He was the one that was driving this um, national press club, largely driving the, the national press club um, that happened in 2013. So what happened there? Well, it was just that. National Press Club uh, representatives from many different publications came to hear the testimony under oath of retired military, of engineers, of scientists, uh, from around the world who had had the experiences and seen the evidence. Uh, and during the time, and again, it was a different time, World War II, mid-20th century, the Cold War was happening, and many of them were under non-disclosure agreements. So they had signed documents saying you can't talk about this stuff. Uh, having worked in the defense industry during the Cold War, I, I know exactly what this is. All of our jobs were very compartmentalized. In other words, I was working on software, and I had no idea what my software was being used for. 
we would receive uh, a code, my team, we would receive uh, a, a section of software of code. We didn't know what had happened prior to that, and we didn't know where our code was going to go. Our job was to take the input and make that input perform in a certain way for output, and then it went to another team in another isolated uh, compartment. They were called vaults, and they, they literally were vaults. Uh, so very compartmentalized, and that's how you keep secrets. And it, and it works actually very well. And uh, so a lot of the, the people that were testifying had been in compartmentalized projects where they had either seen directly or they had heard from other people that were working with them, you know, on these projects on the military bases and things like that. So that was 2013. And, you know, uh, it just kind of fell where it fell. The national media really didn't pick it up. You didn't hear much about it on mainstream legacy cable network news. Or if you did, it was uh, poked fun at. It, there, were, there were jokes. Late night TV, little green men, you know, all the jokes that you just trying to discount the, the whole thing and, and uh, shed doubt on the credibility of what was happening here. Things kicked into high gear in 2021, September of 21, the Department of Defense, DOD, released actual footage. Now we're moving from the point of just speaking about it. Now we're actually seeing something, although still no physical data uh, other than the visual. So it's more than oral testimony. So the DOD released uh, the footage uh, of a uh, it was a UAP. They changed it from UFO. And now it's been renamed to UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. And uh, that was September of 21. And then there was a period of time where the dust kind of settled from that. It was assimilated. It was whatever it was. Now we go into high gear. April of 23, the Pentagon now is releasing uh, additional footage of two UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. That's April of this year. Now, May, the next month, May 18th, uh, Gary Nolan, Stanford scientist, comes out and he states in mainstream media, confirms that non-humans have visited the Earth. Now, our indigenous ancestors have always said that, but this is someone uh, that is believed to be credible in the academic world, in the scientific world, uh, is, is saying this, and it is being picked up on mainstream media. You are seeing this across the legacy media. Okay, that's May 18th. June 3rd, Newsweek comes out. Okay, now it gets official. If it's on the cover of a magazine, it's official, okay? Newsweek uh, comes out and says an Intel officer, Christopher Mellon, <clears throat> has stated that these things are happening and that reverse engineering, so he's saying reverse engineering has happened. What does that mean? Reverse engineering is when we have a technology and we tear it apart to figure out how it works so that we can recreate that technology. That's the reverse engineering. You tear it down and you have to understand all the components. And if those components are based on technologies that aren't known yet, it can take years to understand how those components are working. Uh, so you are going from a finished product backward to understand the nature of the mechanism. Now you can recreate this. So what Mellon is saying is that reverse engineering has happened, he's saying, and it should be made public. And the, the reason for this, and this is one of the, the implications, is because presumably the technology that we find in vehicles 
become from another world, that world, whether it's from another world in this solar system, so local or beyond this solar system, it's going to take a long time to get here. And they're not using internal combustion engines. These aren't, you know, eight cylinder V8s. They're not rocket engines, liquid fuel, solid fuel rocket engines. These are working on the physics that the mainstream academia are not teaching. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, it is a physics that has been known and is taught to selected um, selected people who are chosen to work on selected projects. I remember when uh, when I was in um, when I was in the industry during uh, defense industry during during Cold War, they I know they would recruit uh, people who excelled in mathematics at, at universities, uh, you know, high high end universities, and if they did really well in conventional math then they'd be recruited to work for governmental agencies. And there is another math that uh, they would be privileged to uh, to learn and then to apply that math in, in technologies that aren't, aren't commonly acknowledged. So that's what's happening with uh, with Newsweek, June 3rd. And then the big, the really big one that everyone, let's just put this on the map. Everybody's talking about this now. June 6th in 2023, David Grush. Uh, he was, he, well, he was, uh, a very credible intel officer, had a lot of security clearances, had worked, he was a former, uh, military, U.S. Air Force, I believe, a lot of credibility, uh, went on mainstream, uh, through testimony under oath, uh, congressional testimony, uh, that the U.S. is two things. In possession, uh, well, first has a secret crash recovery program. Number one. Number two is in possession of non-human aircraft or non-human craft. And number three, in possession of non-human uh, bodies, biological uh, uh, recovery. So this is kind of where things are right now. And you can see that this is, it's not spontaneous. This is a directed rollout. Some people are calling this a, a soft uh, disclosure rather than, boom, just coming out one day and saying, we interrupt this program, you know, for a special, like they do in the, in the movies, for a special report. And you see, you know, the Kremlin in Moscow and the president in the White House and leaders in all over the world simultaneously making this announcement. That hasn't happened. And, and I don't know, again, that it will because that would be a hard disclosure. This is soft disclosure where it's coming out uh, kind, I believe, for a couple of reasons, soft disclosure. One, I think it is testing the public to see how the public responds to this. Uh, and number two, there appear to be different camps that have different visions and different agendas regarding disclosure. If it should happen at all, there's some that still don't want it to happen. Uh, younger people are now coming in to those uh those jobs and, and those careers that have, have kept a lot of the secret and older ones who signed those non-disclosures including some of the former astronauts who signed the non-disclosures saying you know we can't talk about what we experienced on lunar surface we can't talk about what happened when we were at the space station our pilots say you know we can't talk about what happened on our reconnaissance missions all of them believing that those non-disclosures were temporary that surely, I mean, the astronauts, uh, and I've had the opportunity to tour and, and to speak with and to know some of the former astronauts, and they all felt, you know, it was the Cold War years. It was a different time. So disclosures were okay. Surely 
by the end of their lifetimes, something this big would be made known because of the implications. It wasn't. And so now they are dying. They're on their deathbeds and they don't want to take the secret to the grave. So some of them in their, you know, last days or last hours of life are revealing, you know, what it is that, uh, is happening. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine the having a direct experience that could change forever the lives of every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth? Having that as a military man or a woman, so you're under oath and you're, you know, you're on your mission and being for, forbidden from sharing something like this when you see the world in the condition that the world is in right now and how this information could help the world and, and change the world in, in truly beautiful ways. Uh, emotionally, what would that mean? And there are all kinds of stories. I had the opportunity uh, from a conference at one time. I was leaving a conference going back to the airport, and I was sharing a van uh, with a lot of women and I didn't know who those women were. And it was a long drive back to, from uh, the city where the conference was back to the airport. And so we started talking and they were astronauts wives. <laughs> and uh, apparently there was something called the astronauts wives club where they come together and console and comfort and support one another in, in difficult missions. And they were sharing among themselves what they had seen their husbands go through emotionally and psychologically because most of them were not trained this is a part of the training the military doesn't do a lot of uh emotionally what do you do with that kind of information and sadly there are stories and we've all heard this this isn't a secret i mean it's very public many of them turn to drugs and uh, alcohol to to help uh desensitize them from the emotional pain and the, the mental pain and the psychological pain of not being able to share these extraordinary experiences even with they weren't supposed to share them with anyone even with their spouses so so i, I had the opportunity to hear some of those uh some of those stories so the disclosure we're in it uh it's happening and it has been happening it's just happening on a little bit different level now I want to talk about a couple of different implications. Let me begin with the technological implication. We, uh, we often hear about, uh, although, you know, there are records of our interaction, the archaeological, anthropological, cultural records of our interaction with intelligence from beyond this world to go back thousands of years. It wasn't happening in the technological society that we have right now. So, when we have those interactions in a technological society, it means something different. It means that we can up-level our technology. And that's exactly what began to happen. If you remember uh, back in the 90s, if you're old enough to remember back in the, in the 50s and 60s, I, many of you know I'm, I'm just giving an example. I'm a musician. And uh, when I'm not doing what I'm doing now, and I remember my guitar amplifier in the late 1950s and early 1960s, when I put that amplifier on a stage and it was dark, behind that amp was lit up with this this soft uh, violet glow from the vacuum tubes that were called, and some of you musicians will know this, they're called 6L6 power vacuum tubes in, uh, in the back of the amplifiers, in the head of, for example, a big silver tone amplifier or something like that, because we were still living in the age where everything was running on vacuum tubes 
Young people have never seen young people today. I've been in audiences. They have no idea what a vacuum tube is. They've never seen them because we live in a world of miniaturized uh, components and printed circuits. And those are the result of reverse engineering in the 1950s and 60s that was happening from technology that was coming to this world. It either crashed or been brought down or uh, landed intentionally, but was kept uh, secret, kept under wraps. And it's really interesting how quickly we made that leap from vacuum tubes and, and the mysteries of life. And all of a sudden, we had insights into DNA. All of a sudden, we had insights into miniaturized technology, uh, microcircuits, uh, transistors, resistors, capacitors without the vulnerability of those, of those vacuum tubes. And this is one of the implications. So one of the concerns, people say, well, what, what would it mean if we had that disclosure? There's the technological implication. The moment that we have this disclosure, that we have technology from other intelligence, other civilizations, either other planets or other star systems more likely. And it's not based on the burning of something to release the energy. All of our energy is based on we burn something uh, that has captured sunlight, either it's coal or it's wood or it's, uh, you know, the, the fossil fuels or whatever it is. We have to, to destroy something to capture the energy to drive whatever it is we're going to, to be driving turbines for electricity, you know, or automobiles or, you know, whatever it is. Presumably the technology that has brought an intelligent form of life from another star system, it's not going to be based on that. It's going to be based upon fundamental principles of physics drawing energy from the very foundation of the field that underlies all existence, something called the Planck field, named after Max Planck, the physicist, the early 20th century. And this is no secret. Uh, again, we know this, and physicists work work with this. Tiny fluctuations uh, on the quantum level that can be captured, and those fluctuations, those movements, can be harnessed and, uh, and amplified into meaningful forms of, of energy. The moment we do that, we no longer, I mean, think about what that means. We no longer need a fossil fuel. We don't need nuclear power. We don't need natural gas. We don't need uh, gasoline in the tanks of our cars. We don't need to burn wood. We no longer need power lines to carry energy across our society, across our, our communities, our nations, our, our planet, under the oceans. Communication changes. Industries will change, and for some people, that change is frightening. And it's frightening because they're looking at it from a perspective of loss. Uh, and that is one perspective based in fear. There are other perspectives. Yes, it would change the industry. It would open the door to new industries, new technologies. So what that would mean, for example, uh, everyone would have a device sitting in your home somewhere, in, in a closet somewhere. And that device would be powering everything in your home with no wires, not plugged into the wall. It doesn't need to be renewed because it's drawing on the Planck vacuum, the the uh, infinite supply of, of energy that we we have uh, available to us today. Uh, the same with an automobile. Automobiles would have a little gadget. They're about this big, the ones, the, the prototypes that I've seen. 
that would sit in, you know, somewhere in the trunk of the car or under the hood or, or wherever it is, there would be no fuel. You would still need, uh, you would still need fossil fuels for the other 6,000 applications in our daily lives that are based upon fossil fuels. We simply would no longer be burning it. So if we're really concerned about climate change, if for those that really believe that CO2 is driving the climate change, even though the science, the, the peer-reviewed science doesn't support that, maybe contributing, it's not the cause. And we can say that because the climate change uh, would be here even if humans were not here. We can see that in the geologic record. And if you believe that humans are the cause of that CO2, which also isn't supported uh, by the, the science, I talk about this in the other videos, but if you really believe those things, I would think you would want this energy. You you would want the disclosure to to reveal this kind of energy. But ultimately, in a world where we are seeing the effort to remake the world, the great reset, to consolidate power, to centralize power uh, of energy and electricity, to centralize finances, to centralize government, to centralize food production, a source of energy like this would do just the opposite. It would free us from the bonds and the shackles of the fear and the control of those who want to have power over the masses. And uh, it would free humankind for the first time, I think, in 5,000 years of recorded human history, making energy available to every man, woman, and child that wants it. There are indigenous communities that don't want energy. I've, I've visited with them, and I respect that. But those that want it, and it would unleash innovation and imagination and creativity to begin building a world that we all know is possible in our hearts, uh, we would see that in our lives. And that is one of the implications, one of the beautiful implications. Stephen Greer has released a film recently uh, called The Lost Century, saying we we could have had these possibilities uh, between 70 and 100 years ago because that's how long we've had the technology. So when this disclosure happens, this is one of the the implications, the, the technological implications. Another implication is social implication, and this is what the um, uh, the Brookings Institute was talking about. What does it mean to society when we think, man, we're we're it, and you know, all of a sudden we find out we're maybe a little it in the presence of of a much bigger it? What does that mean? Well, interestingly, the Catholic Church has had to come to terms with this. And I've, I have um, I have a statement from them. Very interesting. The Jesuits, I think many of you know, are the scientific arm of, uh, of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. The Jesuits had a, a conference uh, and released a, a paper. What would the existence of intelligent, intelligent extraterrestrials would it be consistent with Catholic belief? I think the question is funny. Are you going to have an unintelligent extraterrestrial? I mean, <laughs> if they're here from somewhere else, they're obviously very intelligent. You know, our civilization, you think about this. Civilization, we're told, began about 5,000 years ago. That's this cycle of civilization. Technology is only, science is only about 300 years old. Who or whatever it is that's coming to visit us presumably has been around much, much longer. Look at what we've accomplished in 300 years and and then take that to the level. What would it mean if you for a thousand years, which is nothing or 5000 or 10,000 years of a civilization in terms of AI, artificial intelligence, holographic projections, 
uh, longevity, healing. I mean, all those things. So with the, the Catholic Church, their official stance, I'm going to read, um, uh, read this to you directly. It says, the discovery of life on other worlds would not at all be inconsistent with Catholic belief since it reflects the ability of the creator to establish creatures wherever and whenever he wishes. So they're saying that if they're not saying it's out there, they're saying if we find it, it's not a problem for Catholic tradition because the creator, one creator, uh, can create life anywhere. Uh, there are some other religious institutions now that believe that beings are coming to our world to be uh, to be saved um, from whatever tradition they have, because uh, our religion and the religion that, that these people have been in, indoctrinated into leads them to believe that this is the only place that uh, where that can happen. So it's really interesting. You see some of the, the social implications uh, that are are happening here. So socially, uh, what would that mean? And I, I think it would mean that the superpowers that have called themselves superpowers in the past are maybe not as super as uh, as they would like themselves to believe. Uh, it's interesting because most of the disclosure is coming through military channels. And my concern regarding that is that the military has viewed the the craft that they cannot account for. Some of the craft in the footage are ours. We have reversed engineered them. We're flying them. Our pilots know how to fly them. I personally have seen one of these in, in North. I've seen more than one, but I've seen one uh, up very close in northern New Mexico. And uh absolutely certain it was ours. Didn't make a sound. Didn't move fast. Just, you know, very... Really, really interesting. This is back in the in the late 90s. So uh, the the concern is that from a military perspective, the what's happening in the news is is we're being told there are things in our skies that we don't know what they are. But don't worry, because we'll protect you. So the military is is taking a stance, at least publicly that uh, looking at this as a threat. Honestly, my perspective is if, if you've come from a civilization, either a star system away or even planets away, and you've got the power to be here, you've got the technology, if you were ever going to hurt the people of the Earth, it could have happened any time you know, over the last 200,000 years. That's how long we've been yeah. here. I don't think they're coming to, to hurt us. Uh, that's my, my perspective. Now there are there's indications that there in our ancestor cells there are multiple intelligences and some of them are more benevolent than others. <laughs> some of them it's not that they're um, that they're mean it is that they are very goal oriented and if their goal is you know to find a planet to live on then it may be that uh, if there's anything standing between them and that goal they have the means to to remedy that. So I, I think we're looking at uh, more, and again, as a, as a scientist, I'm sharing it with you from the scientific perspective, uh, my personal feeling, my personal understanding from dealing with indigenous people is we are dealing with, with multiple intelligences from other worlds because Earth is a really interesting place for a lot of reasons. And one of those is because of our biology. 
And that leads me to the, the third implication, the biological implication. We, we have bodies. Uh, I, Native Americans here in northern New Mexico have found living survivors and they lived with them according to their reports. I did not meet them personally, but according to their reports, reports and they lived with them and they learned from them. Uh, and while they are biologically not human as we would call human, they are DNA based and our DNA through our DNA, we have to have a common ancestor. There's a common ancestry that seeded DNA. Discover the Lexus GX with its available off-road package, allowing you to live life to the fullest over multiple terrains. Click the banner to discover more. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. In this cosmos. And uh, so there is a relationship, maybe a distant, distant cousin. But they have two arms, they have two legs, they have two eyes. Uh, <clears throat> you know, they uh, apparently from the autopsies, their in, internal organs function a bit differently. But they do have lungs, they do breathe oxygen. So even though they're not us exactly, we are similar enough that we have uh, a common ancestor somewhere a long time ago. And there's a whole story that we can go into behind that. So what does that mean? If they have been around for hundreds of years, what does that mean to the implications for healing? And the implications for longevity. And those have implications in industries that exist today, the medical industry, the pharmaceutical industry, and all these things. So, so there, we're seeing, uh, we're living in this time where we're seeing pushback from the old guard. We're seeing young people that want to embrace the new information. This is happening in politics. Uh, I remember I live in the state of New Mexico again. Our governor, Bill Richardson, was a governor from what years? From 2003 to 2011, Bill Richardson. And one of the things that he did when he became governor is his, uh, the story goes, he didn't tell me this personally, but the story is that his wife asked him to look into this and see if there was any truth to what had happened in Roswell, New Mexico. It's our, our state here back in, uh, in the mid 1940s. And he ran up against a, a brick wall. He could not find, he wasn't given access to that information. Some of our former presidents wanted to come forward with it, and things happened in their administrations uh, that sidetracked them from being able to do that. So the point is that we are living a time now where the technology that we have <clears throat> will be deeply influenced by disclosure. That was not the case 300 years ago, you know, or, or maybe even 100 years ago per se. Uh, not the way it is right now. And our society will be deeply influenced by disclosure in terms of the, the consolidation of power, the centralization of control levied by fear. Because I, I think what will happen is when the disclosure happens at the level that we suspect this is going, that we're going to think of ourselves differently. We will, one of two things will happen. We either have to deny that we are part of a greater community and then you don't have to deal with it. So there's an old saying, uh, denial is a big river in Egypt. <laughs> and there's some people that will do that. Some people, uh, will be so locked into their either religious or spiritual doctrine that they will resist the implications. A lot of people, I think, will be open to the implications. And the power structures that are 
alive and well and bustling in our world today that are all jockeying for power. You can see this happening. They're jockeying for the best position as the world goes into the great shift, the great reset. Uh, geologically, there are things uh, happening now and in our near future. Climatologically, things are happening now in our near future that uh, are very different from what we've lived in the past. And there's a jockeying for positions of power and control. And disclosure is going to be a part of that. And I think it's up to us. It's up to us in terms of how we accept it in our lives. So I am going to invite you to do your own due diligence. Look into this. Look into it from beyond the mainstream media, because that is the narrative that's being directed. Okay, There's a narrative out there. Seven corporations own all the major media uh, in the West, including Sky News, BBC, PBS, NPR, Fox MSNBC, CNN, uh, MSN, I mean, all of it, as different as they look to us on the outside, there is a, a common thread. And when a narrative is driven, you will hear the words and the language identical throughout all of these. And this is happening with disclosure. So I'm going to invite you to go beyond. I mean, it's interesting to watch it, certainly. And there's some good independent sources that you can see in social media, media, social media, tons of media. I'm going to invite you to go into your heart. Because there is a neural network of about 40,000 sensory neurites in every human heart discovered in 1991. And although we've been conditioned away from using this reliably in the modern world, this was a foundation for our ancestors. It's a foundation for indigenous traditions all over the world. It's a foundation for deep intuition. It is a foundation for uh, the coherence between the heart and the brain that gives us access to our own biology so that we can self-regulate our immune system and our longevity enzymes and super memory and super learning and super cognition and resilience to change. And all of that begins in the heart. And, you know, I've talked about in all the other videos. I don't want to be redundant here. I'm going to invite you to go into your heart when you hear what it is that's happening. And, uh, and I think this is going to be really important because if we are given a reason to fear our relationship to uh, intelligence beyond our world. If we're given that reason, the question is, it's our choice in terms of how we respond to that fear. And ultimately, I think this is what disclosure is going to, to do with each of us. It's going to drive us to come to terms with who we are in this world, who we are in the cosmos, who we are spiritually, uh, and what a deeper relationship with intelligence from beyond our lives can mean to us. And we're all going to have different answers to that. But the way we answer that individually is going to determine collectively how we move forward with what is now being called the disclosure. So in uh, part two, I want to talk more about our indigenous relationship with intelligence from beyond this world. My direct experience with indigenous people who actively communicate and receive healings from uh, what they call their star family on a, on a regular basis. And what we see in the archaeological record, what we see uh, new discoveries in the archaeological record, what we see in the anthropological record, what we see in the DNA record. So I'll do that in a separate video in the interest of time. For now, hope this helps uh, a little bit, maybe to put some context into what's happening in disclosure. It's not happening in a vacuum. It's happening within 
the context of all the things we're talking about, the great reset and the, the climate shifts and everything else that's going on. And so I think we have to look at it from that perspective. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I'm enjoying thinking of you as I'm looking into the camera and having it with you right now. Let me know in the comments how you feel about this. Uh, thank you for your love and support. Stay tuned. I look forward to our next. Well, we all know that that's not the right term, the Great Reset. But what I know about <clears throat> Greg Braden is he's not aware of the intricacies of the difference between the SARS enactment and Dinar's dog Zimbabwe's, etc. It's not his focus. No, it's not. No. So, just make that clear. Uh, okay, so the next we're going to do here is, um, this is called the Quantum Your the Quantum Universe Unveiled with Nassim Haramin and Dr. Teresa Ballard. This came out the 14th. And it says, Embark on a fascinating journey through quantum physics and cosmic wonders. In our latest episode, we're delving into deep into the quantum universe with renowned physicist, quantum physicist Nassim Haramin. Discover the mind-boggling concept of the quantum vacuum, a mysterious field of energy that pervades all of space and even the atoms within us. Explore how this groundbreaking understanding has the potential to revolutionize our energy sources, offering a glimpse into a cleaner, more sustainable future. Join us as we bridge the gap between cutting-edge science and everyday life, uncovering the secrets of ex existence and the cosmic cosmos. Do not miss this captivating conversation that could change the way you see the universe. Sign up with your email address to receive access to the entire conversation as soon as they release. Nassim Haramin, his bio, has spent more than 30 years researching and discovering connections in physics, mathematics, geometry, cosmology, quantum mechanics, biology, and chemistry, as well as anthropology and archaeology. These studies led Haramin to groundbreaking theories, published papers, and patented inventions in unified physics, which are now gaining worldwide recognition and acceptance, and so on. So let's start. This is, how long is this, Rama? 44 mm. minutes and 11 seconds. Good numbers. Mm. If, they, if you add 44 and 11, you got 55. Double change. As above, so below. Let's do it, Rama. for people to receive authentic guidance and practical ways to awaken. Thought-provoking, paradigm-shifting, and empowering. This is about expanding our human consciousness to create a wave of new possibilities. I'm Dr. Teresa Willard-White, 
And this is Quantum Minds TV. Welcome to Quantum Minds TV, where we take a deep dive into various perspectives on what it's going to take to create a shift in human consciousness. Now, today, I'm thrilled to have Nassim Haramine joining me. Nassim is a world leader in physics and the founder of the Resonance Science Foundation, the Resonance Academy, Taurus Tech, and Art Crystal. He spent more than 30 years researching and discovering connections physics, mathematics, geometry, cosmology, quantum mechanics, biology and chemistry, as well as anthropology and archaeology. And Asim Hermine and his team of researchers have taken a very innovative approach to developing a formal unified view of physics using a combination of the holographic principle, quantizing space-time, and identifying the actual geometry of space-time itself. So, Nassim, I believe that you and I first met back in 2009 at the International Alchemy Conference in Los Angeles, and I was struck by a few things that I'd just like to say at a personal level uh, about you, because as I became more familiar with your work um, and with you, I noticed a few things right off the bat. And the first was your sheer courage <laughs> and determination to go up against the scientific dogma especially the standard model of quantum physics, and yet to do so in a really grounded way that was, you know, working with all the math, the geometry, the physics, and so forth. And the second uh, thing that really stood out to me about you was that you actually reminded me of a modern-day Einstein uh, in that you your ideas were so much more intuitive and uh, visual, spatially they have this visual spatial ability to imagine what reality might be like in the smallest particles perspective. And yet also like Einstein, you started off as a bit of an outsider, uh, trying to bring new theories into the academic establishment of physics, which I know is no easy task. So you've really been a pioneer in this field. And I just love how you bring that solid foundation, that practical yet elegant ways to unite science with uh, also drawing in secret geometry, mystical teachings, and more. And I am so looking forward to our conversation today. I want to thank you for being my guest on Quantum Minds TV. Thank you. It's so great to be here with you. And what a journey since 2009, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, you've, you know, you've really made some amazing headway. And um, so in our conversation today, you know, of course, we both really are very interested in quantum physics and science and, you know, cosmology and all these types of things. So we're going to dive pretty deep into uh, some, some heavy topics today. But what I'd like to do is find a way where we can uh, talk about them for also for the lay person uh, so that we can help them really make that bridge and understand, you know, these very complex and abstract ideas in a way that is relatable. Um, one of my favorite things is to try and tie quantum physics together with how it relates to us in our lives today so that we can, um, so that we can, you know, own it, so that we can shift our consciousness. And, you know, of course we can use quantum principles and, and have them apply to our mindset 
But your area of specialization really has been also in how it applies in more concrete ways in the practical world and with technology and so forth. And, uh, you know, so one of my first things, I don't know if you're, you know, if you're happy to go this far back, but um, one of my first exposures to your work was really around what might be called um, torsion physics, where you propose like the center of atoms uh, might not be particles per se as much as mini black holes. Uh, and so, you know, where are you with this idea? And maybe you can explain a little bit of that for the lay person who's not familiar with your work. Yeah, um, there's so many parts. I, I think one of the, one of the things, um, that you mentioned, uh, in what you were talking about is how quantum physics relates to our life, our daily life. And I, I think one of the big problems that happens is that we have a tendency to put things in boxes and then, you know, say, oh, well, that's quantum physics, that's relativistic physics, this is this, this is that. But what really we're talking about is the physics of creation, like how existence actually occur. And since we're part of it, of you know, of uh, existence, it's kind of critical to our life to understand what, you know, I always wonder when I was a kid, like, you know, why, like people get here and all of a sudden they're aware, they're conscious, they see the universe around them, but they don't commonly ask, how did I get here? And how did this whole thing happen? Right. Uh, until maybe the last few minutes of their lives or the few hours before at the end of their life where they start wondering, what was this all about, right? <laughs> um, and so, um, but, but yeah, the, so, so from early on, I start to investigate, you know, what, what this reality we live in, what we are, how this whole happened. And, and I ran into a problem uh, very early on. I ran into a problem of, of dimension, of, you know, measurement problem that, mm -hmm. that um, you can, where do you stop dividing stuff? Like you can divide things to like, you can get smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, uh, already a proton is really small, right? Even a cell, a biological cell is really small. You're made a hundred like between 50 and 100 uh, trillion cells, you know, that's a lot of cells. So they're pretty small. And then each has made 100 trillion atoms and, uh, and all this stuff is really, really small. And then a proton is like very, very small, beady center of the atom. Um, and, uh, and then and that's dividable into eventually Planck's, you know, and so on. And so, when I was thinking about this, I, I thought, well, you know, just as the largest, like, why would the universe stop at the universe? Why wouldn't our universe be in a larger one that would be in a larger one? And I had this, you know, fractal infinity problem. And, and it started to, I started to realize that maybe we're just experiencing one scale, like a, a, a harmonics of scales mm -hmm. in the universe, or like mm -hmm. or, or in the multiverse, if you'd like. 
and that like so that you could divide the the atom into smaller and smaller pieces to infinity and if you could that would mean that the atom is actually akin to a black hole it's it's got infinite potential in it right it has infinite energy infinite power and so and so that what we see of the atom is like just a very small amount of the energy that's present in it. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you look at a black hole, you don't see much energy, right? But there's a lot in it because it's confined, right? Mm-hmm. It's screened relative to you. And, you know, the concept of screening is already in quantum mechanics and all this stuff. But um so it, it started to come together as I was uh, investigating, and then eventually I wrote this paper that got me a lot of tomato throwing um, <laughs> called the Swordchild Proton. And I called it that one because I was trying to be a little bit not too much in their face um, <laughs> because I could have called it the Black Hole Proton, but the Swordchild <laughs> Solution is the back solution to Einstein Field Equation. So... Uh, I called it the Swordchild Proton, and 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 basically, I would, in that paper, the only thing I was trying to show that I showed in that paper is that if you make the proton a little black hole, the gravitational force of two protons together would be equivalent to what we call the strong force, which is the force that holds the nuclei of the atom together. Mm-hmm. That we don't know where it came from. We just called it the strong force. We give it a, a value. But in physics, we have no mechanical understanding of where that force comes from. Um, and so I, I, I basically show that the error is in our understanding of maps, not, um, you know, and, and that's where you know, um, I got in trouble because they said, well, if the black hole is a, if the proton is a black hole, it, would, it should have this huge mass and all this. And, you know, how is that possible? And I showed it's actually a holographic screening that's occurring. So we're not actually experiencing the, you know, mass is, mass is a concept in physics that's not well defined. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's a big issue, and that's why, you know, Higgs mechanisms were invented, and, you know, the Higgs particles were tried to be found in accelerators to try to find the source to mass. Basically, it's a, and we know mass is equivalent to energy since Einstein, right? E equals mc squared. Well, you know, that means what is energy and where is it coming from? Well, and that really brings us to the whole notion of the quantum vacuum and how, you know, this infinite potential energy is stored within that quantum vacuum, that quantum field. And, and that not only does that reside within the, you know, the inner core of, of every particle, for example, that could, you know, create like black hole type effect. But that's within every every atom of our body. Like this quantum field resides within all of us, and and we also see that the quantum field uh, and quantum effects. You know, they're not just for the micro or the nano or the Planck scale, but the smallest of scales anymore. 
these uh, quantum effects, we can see that they go all the way out into the, the cosmic structure of the universe itself. So we live in a quantum universe, not a classical universe. And when it comes to us, you know, we need to start looking at ourselves as quantum beings. And one of the things that uh, I've actually come across, which relates to some of the work actually of Dr. Emoto, what he, you know, a lot of people know about him through his water crystals. Um, but what he was really trying to identify was he was trying to find a visual way in which um, something he called Hado. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called H-A-D-O, Hado. In Japan, there is this kind of concept of Hado energy. It's like the essence of the energy itself that is emitted from the very core of an atom. And it's emitted out as these sort of waves or these essence. Um, and he was trying to find a way that we could extract or draw out that essence. And this is then where he decided, okay, water might be the best uh, substance to work with. And let's see if our consciousness can actually dip in to that hado, that essence uh, within the water and draw it out and, and maybe even influence it. And uh, so he, he proposed in some of his other works that hado is literally the uh, waves of atomic energy or even subatomic energy that come off from what I would call quantum fluctuations. Uh, and, and one wonders if this essence, this hado, might actually be what we could consider chi or the vital life force essence that animates everything, not just us, but everything that has particles and, and matter and, and so forth, uh, you know, or even just any access to quantum field, which would then say that the, every little micro, you know, space is alive and teeming with this vital life force essence that is quantum fluctuation. Uh, and, and so that, I think, really ties into some of what you were doing, where it's like you're you're talking about the space, not the particles themselves necessarily, but the space between the empty space within the atom and how much energy is there. Is that correct? Exactly. You know, I mean, to for your listeners, when we're talking about vacuum, quantum vacuum fluctuation or quantum energy, uh, uh, vacuum energy, or when we're talking about zero-point energy, it was called that way by Einstein uh, as well, um, you know, we're talking about the fact that in quantum field theory, uh, space is not empty. It's full of energy. Um and people have a hard time relating to that, but really it's kind of obvious because like, you know, the space between you and I, while well, we're far from each other, but the space between things we know is not empty, right? It's full of electromagnetic fields, you know, there's background microwave from, from the Big Bang even, like from the universe. There's like background radiation from the galaxy in the space around you. There's, there's, uh, Wi-Fi, there's, uh, you know, Bluetooth, there's, uh, there's all kinds of stuff. And, um, and, uh, so there's all kinds of wavelength of electromagnetic fields, like there's radio waves, right? That are very long and all this, but then there's shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter wavelength. And when you write the equations for quantum physics, when you get to the level of like, particle and subatomic particle and the Planck scale, 
you find that there's like really, really short wavelengths of electromagnetic fluctuation where basically the wavelength is becomes the length that the photon would go through if it was going at the speed of light. So that defines the Planck units, right? And when you calculate how much of that there is in a centimeter cube of quantum space, it's non-trivial. It's huge. It's 10 to the 93 to 10 to 94 grams per centimeter cube, right? Because you can convert energy into mass or into grams, right? And so that's that's more than the mass of the universe in a centimeter cube of space by 39 orders of magnitude. It's non-trivial. And now, let's enjoy this short consciousness break featuring the amazing research of Nassim Haramein and the Resonance Science Foundation. I believe that there's a quote, I don't remember if it was Niels Bohr, you know, but some of those founders of quantum physics that did the calculation from a theoretical perspective of if we took just the space of a light bulb and how much empty space, you know, the quantum vacuum was in there and we calculated the potential energy within that, that space of the light bulb, it was enough energy to boil all the world's oceans. I believe is is the quote. Right. I mean, that's a lot, right? So if we could find ways to tap in and, and extract that essence of the quantum vacuum. Now we've got a whole new 
only revolutionary way to, to power everything in our in our lives. Yeah, and basically what I've done is that I've just shown that that energy is the source of mass, charge, electromagnetic field, of particles. It's the source of reality as a whole, right? So mm-hmm. then it, it links nicely to many ancient civilizations, right, that had these concepts in it, like you were discussing in Japan, for instance, or you find from Maya culture to Enka culture to Vedic cultures all around the world, these ancient uh, uh, knowledge base described all of them, described, you know, they called it a different way, but they described this fundamental field of energy and uh, that was the source of everything. And, and then eventually you find, you know, in modern physics, you find Maxwell's equation that emerged in which Maxwell was trying to describe the electromagnetic field and he needed the electromagnetic waves to ride on something in his equation. So he described a luminous, luminiferous ether, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and the ether was part of physics for a long time. And then you know, and, and then there was some experiments that didn't detect an ether, um, but these experiments were not, were interpreted a little bit incorrectly, meaning, you know, the way they were done, they wouldn't have, they eliminated an ether that would drag very close to the surface of our planet, but they didn't eliminate an ether that would that would drag a long ways away. That is, the ether could be co-moving with our planet, mm-hmm. right? And then drag further on, which actually re-emerged in Einstein field equations later. But th- that's why Einstein was inspired by, by Maxwell's, um, luminiferous ether, but he, he, um, he felt because of the experiment that his equation and his papers would never get published um, after those experiments. So if he called it an ether, so he called it space-time, he used a different formalism so that it could be a conceptual thing. Like if, you know, it's really remarkable. It's really remarkable to me that like you can have, a space-time that produce gravity, right? A force that we experience every day, right? Yeah. And and it's clearly there, right? It pulls things together. It's non-trivial. It pulls the planets to the sun. It pulls the sun into the galaxy. I mean, it does the job, right? <laughs> and to think that it's, you know, in general relativity is described as the structure of space curving. Right, yeah. like you put a ball on a trampoline, it makes a curve, and another ball along, you know, would like curve towards, like it would roll towards the middle. Well, you know, if if it has physical effects like that, how can it just be space time? Some kind of like esoteric, you know, module like model of yeah, space, yeah, yeah, that that has no physical reality, right? So clearly, after after 10 years, Einstein reversed his opinion. Einstein publicly said, no, 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 I, general relativity is invalid without an ether, we got to put it back in. <laughs> you know, 
and but they didn't listen to him. But, so since then, physics is written without a field, mm-hmm. and this is why mm-hmm. uh, you know there's been a big problem in physics in trying to get to the foundation of things. Mm-hmm. I love that you brought all that up because um, I remember in in my own studies as you know in attaining my PhD in physics, one of the experiments that I actually did some some uh, reporting on and, and you know, was the Michelson-Morley, you know, experiment where they were trying to test for the ether. But I agree with you that they were coming from a very mechanical mindset where they were thinking of the ether as if it were medium like water or like air that light had to travel through and therefore there must be some kind of, yeah, friction or drag. Um, but what they didn't realize is that the ether was like a super fluid. There would be no friction. There would be no resistance. There would even, there wouldn't even be limitations in space and time. And what I love is that, you know, so Einstein, he had his cosmological constant as part of his equations, but then he didn't know where it came from. And he kind of felt like a little bit of hand waving and then he kind of called it his biggest mistake. Right. But now today, Scientists are coming back around to this idea of the cosmological constant. They're even calling it the ether. Um, that they, that this, uh, and they're now they're so dark energy. Yeah, with dark energy, which is the reason that, you know, they, they, they're measuring that the universe is expanding at an accelerated rate, which means there has to be some kind of force that's coming in and pushing it to be accelerating in its expansion. And they don't know, they can't measure directly what this is. So they're calling it a dark energy. They can see its effect, but they can't measure it directly. So they're calling it dark energy, but some theories are coming back around to this idea that that cosmological constant was actually uh, the the force of the ether, but it's coming out uniformly from every little point in space. Uh, and, and, you know, if, if I can just tie that right back into some of the ancient mystical teachings. Uh, so like I come from the, the tradition of Hermetics and universal Kabbalistic teachings and alchemy. Um, we will talk about the force of the, the source, the divine will coming in through every point in space, through that quantum vacuum into our universe and pushing its will out. So it's like there is this will to expand the light, the the universe of life and creation. And um, in alchemy, they would maybe call it prima materia, you know, that there was this this ether. And uh, even Tesla talked about the ether, this luminiferous ether uh, that pervades the universe. And, and that that is really the true essence of what we're searching for. So how, Nassim, how have you been working with uh, trying to tap into some of this, what we could call zero point energy or this ether energy uh, that comes out from the quantum vacuum. Well, the cool thing is that, you know, although Einstein tried to eliminate it with space time, um, you know, space, because you can't really eliminate it, right? Because <laughs> we're in it and we're made of it. Um, and if you write your equation, even if they're, incorrect like com- not complete it you know you'll get something along those lines you get an Einstein field equation you get train dragging right you, and and so you know that sounds a lot like the ether dragging you know and 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 that's being measured 
So, for instance, we we sent disco balls into orbit, and then we we bounce a, a laser beam to the yeah, disco. Right? Do you want to have a uh, cosmic disco dance? Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Out in, out in uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. With the galactic community, and uh, and the, and when the beam comes back, we can see it's dragged. That the disco ball is dragging behind, and. Uh, you know, we've had, so that was the first experiments. Then we had gravity probe B that showed with gyroscope in, in, uh, in orbit that like there's a drag and all this. So, but, but because it was like almost a hundred years after the ether was not put back in. So it, it wasn't. And so basically I solved all this, um, by showing that what we called earlier the ether is, I mean, on Einstein's side, it shows up that way, I just told you, but on, on the quantum side, in quantum theory, it shows up as vacuum fluctuation we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. It's clearly there, and, and, and that's very successful. So basically, you know, I, I found how they connect, and they connect, um, because of the relationship of va- the vacuum fluctuation at the quantum level, mass, charge, electromagnetic fields, and how they apply when you grow the system, you know, when you scale the equations to larger objects like planets, stars, galaxies, universes. And, and when you do, you get the right answers, meaning you, you make the equation for the proton, which I did, and I, I was able to predict a, a radius for the proton. I did that in 2012, mm-hmm. and then it like, was crazy because it was 4% smaller than the standard radius, and 4% in quantum physics for like a fundamental constant, like the proton mm-hmm. radius, is that's insane because yeah. usually... Things are measured with like 10 to the minus 10, you know, 10. Precision, yeah, precision art. Precision <laughs> after the yeah. period. So like 4%, you're not even in the ballpark. You're like. You're not even within the, 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 the error rate, you know, the, the standard deviations, right? Right. It's huge, right? I don't know how many sigma. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's seven or eight sigma, you know, 4%. Mm-hmm. So I was like, but, um, but all my, all, it was giving me the gravitational coupling constants. It was giving me the correct mass. It was, so I was like, it can't be wrong. So I predicted it. And, uh, in 2013, they measured the radius, the proton more precisely and they came up 4% short and they were like, Oh my God. It's like, because it breaks the standard model of physics. So they were like, Oh no, you know, so they, many physicists kind of say, oh, it doesn't matter. It's, it's an error measurement. They mm-hmm. measured it again and again. And by 2018, they measured it not with muons like at first, but with electrons. And you know, they, when they did that, um, they realized, well, you know, what had gone wrong was the uh, corrections from the standard model of physics when they were calculating the measurement. They removed that and they got the correct radius at 4% smaller. And that's why now it's the co-data value. You know, in 2018, they changed the co-data value of the radius to proton to the one I predicted. 
Um, you know, and I'm inside One Sigma, so that means I'm inside, I'm still today inside the resolution of the experiments with yeah. my value. So, um, so those are very powerful, you know, confirmation, very, very powerful confirmation. But as I did all that, it really kind of like, you know, put all the pieces together. Like I, as I, I showed basically that basically there's only one thing, basically, Teresa. <laughs> it's that field. And when it spins, mm-hmm. it makes vortices. They're called quantum vortices. And these vortices have properties, energetic properties, that we call mass mm-hmm. and charge and electromagnetic fields. Mm-hmm. And so everything emerged from the spin of it, it, the turbulence of the vacuum structure. The information flow of this information field, you could call it. Like you can think of it as like a field of information that's transferring information across scales. And it, and, and so, so then it's a no brainer. And I've solved these equations now. I'm about to publish it. So almost 200 pages. It's really complex. So I'm, I know I've been saying I'm about to publish it for five years. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I understand this. So this is the magnum opus that you're working on. I mean, you've got some major smoking guns. you got to get it right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's really good. It outputs all of the constants of physics with 12-digit accuracy. It, it uh, predicts all the scales. It, it's so beautiful. I... Alpha comes out naturally, like alpha is not this mysterious number anymore. It comes out naturally and all, all this. And so, and so it's a straight up, like, you know, owner's manual to how to get energy from the structure of the vacuum, how to control gravitational field, how to cross the galaxy, how to go from one universe to another i mean it's straight up gives you the mechanics uh of how things work and how you can interact with them so that your society is not struggling to extract resources to try to function in the unit yeah wow Oh, you just said so much there. <laughs> and I think for some people it's going to be like, whoosh, that was way over my head, but it sounds cool. But I'd like to, I'd like to <laughs> unpack some of it a bit for, for people to hopefully maybe understand. Um, so if I may, the, the standard model of quantum physics has been like the mainstay of, of physics for at least the last hundred years. And it, you know, it, it organizes these are the fundamental particles. Everything is made of these particles. They have this mass, this energy, this charge. And, you know, they've got a few charts. Different from, like, the old periodic charts of, of the elements, now you have the charts of the fundamental particles. Um, and, and, you know, the, the laws that govern uh, the, the four forces of strong force, weak force, electromagnetic force, and gravity. And quantum physics has actually managed in the standard model to unify three out of those four forces. So they've unified the strong nuclear force, which is said to bind the quarks together inside of a proton. They've unified uh, the weak force, which is said to govern, you know, like neutrinos and and electron uh, kind of interactions and uh, nuclear fission. 
And then they've also unified electromagnetic force, which governs charged particles and photons. And so they've been able to unify these three forces in quantum physics, but gravity has always stayed um, kind of, they, they meet infinities when they try to bring uh, like the quantum size stuff, which is usually at micro, you know, really small punk scale levels, and then scale that up to large masses, like, you know, and, and large sizes, like you find in the, the universe. Well, gravity is, you know, what governs those those large bodies. But what Einstein came forward with was that it's not gravity really is not the force. It's the space time and space time is bent. Matter tells space time how to bend uh, or how to, how to, you know, kind of fold. And then matter or energy. Yeah. And then space time uh, tells matter how to move. And so they, these two kind of work together. Like you often see that, that idea of a, a, of a fabric, and then you put a ball on the fabric and it kind of bends the fabric. So this is, you know, the, the general relativity, the basics of it. Um, and so quantum physics uh, or science today is really searching for a way to unite uh, quantum principles with the gravitational or with the general relativity. Uh, general relativity is based more on old classical physics versus quantum physics. And so where they come together, though, is when you have things like a black hole or you come to these really you know, dense uh, mass or energy levels at quantum scales. And so this is something that, you know, is it, this grand unified theory is, is one of the biggest searches in quantum or just in physics and science today, which is one of these areas that Nassim has made major groundbreaking discoveries on. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, when we come back to the constants that you were talking about, Nassim, the constants in, when I was going through my education, the constants, there was a certain number of constants, 20-something fundamental constants, and science didn't know where they came from. They just knew what they were. They knew the value, and they would measure that value, and they'd say, well, this is what it is. This is the mass of the, of the electron. This is the a couple of constant for, you know, electrons interacting with photons, for example, or charged particles interacting. Uh, this is the cosmological structure. But we don't know where it is. We just know what it is, right? We know its value. So to come to a place where you can actually derive those fundamental constants from first principles and say, I have a theory uh, and, a, and, a, and a, you know, a formula of how we can unify gravity with quantum physics and also it emerges out of the equations, these fundamental constants from first principles level. I mean, that is, as far as I can tell in physics, that is a smoking gun because that is now bringing a unification and, and a simplification. But, but the key here, I think, is that it reintroduces this notion of the quantum vacuum, it's not zero, we can't ignore it. The ether, you know, it's there, and this is the essence, like this is the source that everything else is built upon. And and even quantum physicists today are saying, yeah, the, the quantum vacuum is highly entangled, it's the glue that holds space-time together. It's, you know, th- this is, everything is ultimately from that quantum fluctuation. 
but they're kind of still not quite sure how to put pieces together. And this is what you're doing. Uh, so right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so yeah, so they are getting to it very, very, like you, you think of, uh, Sutskin and, and, um, and, uh, Frank Wilczek and others are getting really close to it. It's just that the pieces, um, are, are not, you know, they're not arranged to go together easily. The formalism of how the math was written for these pieces is discontinued. It's, it's not connected. So, um, so, so, um, how, how does it connect? It turns out is basically by, uh, actually understanding the, the fluid dynamics of that superfluid space-time structure. And when you, when you put it in that context, all of a sudden, uh, you get like a literal fluid mechanics model. And out of these fluid mechanics, like you were saying, these constants appear, meaning like the radius, the proton, the radius, the electron, the mass, the proton, the price, the Rydberg constant. Oh, if they have these mass and they have these radiuses, then they, you know, the right, the value for the, for the charge interaction will be the Rydberg constant. All of a sudden, you know, and, and remarkably, you know, as you're continuing the model and continuing to write these things, all of a sudden you go, Oh wow, look at from the Rydberg constant, I you output G, the gravitational constant, for the first time, like an analytical solution to G. So all of a sudden you have G with twelve digit accuracy, which you didn't have before. G is only measured the gravitational constant is only measured to ten to minus five approximately five. Because I mean, it's very hard to measure. We have the Cavendish experiments and stuff like that. But and so and so now you now you get the relationship between these things. And you know what's the most bugling? Most I can't say too much because it's not published. <laughs> but I is that when you start to look at the relationship? Because at one point with Dr. Olivier Alerol, I was trying to keep all these equations in mind and all these relationships, I was kind of losing my mind. So I, okay. I said, let's, yeah. So I said, let's, uh, let's draw it. You know, I kind of a graphic of like how things should be connected. And, um, and so we start to draw that and I'm not going to say which one, but what came out and, and Olivier is not, trained in any way esoteric, esoteric knowledge like you and I. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he had no idea. So he was just drawing the relationship, the mathematical relationship, right? Not just like, um, not just, you know, conceptually, but actually how the mathematics connects these things. And as he did, I'm looking at him like, it's, it turns out to be a very important ancient secret you know, uh, uh, a symbol that, that's, that's well known in ancient, uh, esotericism. Oh, no, uh, which see, is you this... can't leave me hanging like that. <laughs> <laughs>
This conscious conversation was created, produced, and recorded by Dr. Teresa Bullard White in collaboration with Nassim Harriman and edited by Verse Content and HH Films and Photo. The theme music and intro videography were created by Tim Mountain of Evenload Productions. Quantum Minds TV is a product of the Quantum Learning Academy. Okay. Oh my God. We're going to get ready for another one that's going to push us to think deeper and wider and expansiveness of what's really having uh, an occurrence scientifically. The universe is expanding at an exponential rate. And this is called science, not fairy tales. So here we go. This is called Four Secrets of Sacred Geometry. Oh, okay. Spiritual Science. Dr. Robert J. Gilbert. I got to find that one. Yes, I'll read while you look. Okay. How do divine patterns of creation define what manifests on every level of physical reality? Actually, this actually came out on the 20th of July, so I... Yeah. If we played it, we'll, we're playing it again. Sorry, we're playing it again, Sam. Founder of the Thessica Institute. Vesica, V is in victory, E-S-I-C-A. Vesica Institute for Holistic Studies. Robert J. Gilbert, Ph.D., offers his 40 years of insight into mystical truths, exploring four of the most profound secrets of sacred geometry sharing his experience about sharing his experience about patterns which manifest everything in material existence. Dr. Gilbert offers practical methods for raising awareness to utilize sacred geometry and evolve consciousness on individual and planetary levels. I welcome you to another exclusive presentation of my channel presented to you by Gaia TV called Four Secrets of Sacred Geometry. Mm-hmm. All right. Ready? Ready? Okay. This is how long? 40 minutes. 40 minutes, 35 seconds. Let's do it. Here we go. Divine patterns of creation, the final and manifest on every level of physical reality. Founder of the Vesica Institute for Holistic Studies, Dr. Robert J. Gilbert offers his 40 years of insight into mystical truths, exploring four of the most profound secrets of sacred geometry, sharing his expertise about the patterns which manifest everything in material existence. Dr. Gilbert offers practical methods for raising awareness to utilize sacred geometry and evolve consciousness on individual and planetary levels. I welcome you to another exclusive presentation on my channel, presented to you by Gaia, called Four Secrets of Sacred Geometry, Season 1, Episode 3. Stick around until the end of the video for a special offer from Gaia.
Welcome. I'm your host, Dr. Robert J. Gilbert. In this episode, we will explore four major secrets of sacred geometry. These secrets will guide us into learning a very powerful method which can activate any energy center in your body or energy field. You'll learn in this episode how to apply this method to activate the most important energy center in the human head, what in the Himalayan tradition is called the Cave of Brahma. This exploration will lead us into the highest sources of inspiration and spiritual visions and into the many levels of our multidimensional world. Our first great secret of sacred geometry reveals the true source of all physical manifestation. This secret is that sacred geometry patterns are in reality thought forms in the mind of God, which become the divine blueprints for all of creation. Let's start with an important development in human spiritual evolution, that large numbers of human beings are increasingly experiencing inner visions of the sacred geometry patterns behind the physical plane, along with visions of the higher worlds which interact with the physical. These sacred geometry thought forms which more and more people are experiencing are in actuality packets of divine consciousness, holding inside of them pure structural patterns which then move down from the higher planes to manifest on every level of creation. These sacred geometric visions can come whenever we release our contracted perception of the physical world and expand into deeper levels of awareness. In my 30 years of publicly teaching sacred geometry, in every class I would have students tell me that the pattern I had just taught them was one that they had seen before. Students told me they had seen the pattern internally in a dream, in a vision, in an ayahuasca journey, or other psychotropic experience, or in a transmission from a spiritual teacher. In some cases, they had been taught a specific sacred geometry pattern as a private secret of a tradition into which they received initiation being told they could never mention it to anyone outside the tradition, and then being astonished when they found out in my class that it was actually a part of the complete sacred geometry pattern language known to multiple traditions. Ancient traditions knew that these sacred geometry patterns which underlie all of creation are in reality, in their deepest essence, thought forms from the mind of God. So our visions of these sacred geometry patterns can at their highest level mean a literal communion of our human mind with the divine mind. This experience can transform our deepest sense of ourselves and of what our true potential really is. This idea that the basis of creation is sacred geometric patterns is related to the findings of some modern physicist who say that the evidence in modern physics shows that the essence of all creation is not physical matter, but consciousness. A key aspect of consciousness being the foundation of all existence is that light and consciousness are the exact same thing. This is embedded in Genesis, 
with creation beginning with the statement, let there be light. Modern physics says that everything is fundamentally energy and that light exists both as a physical particle and as an energy wave. Light is the fundamental constant of nature, linking the concepts of physical mass and energy together in the famous E equals MC squared equation of Einstein. Light sets the speed limit for the physical plane. Modern physics says that nothing in the physical world can travel faster than the speed of light. This has all led to the concept that everything physical is actually made of light, and that physical matter is simply light energy in a specific state of materialization. Ancient traditions knew that when consciousness is experienced externally, it appears as light. And when light appears internally, inside of us, we experience it as consciousness. This is why auras of brilliant light are always sown in classical traditions around great initiates, either just around their head with the activation of their consciousness or around their entire body and energy field with higher levels of initiation and self-transformation. This brings us to what we might call the first letter in the alphabet of sacred geometry forms which create the world. This is the ancient symbol of the point in the center of the circle. This was the hieroglyph for the spiritual being of the sun, Ra'a, in ancient Egypt and became the image for the sun in astrology. Just as creation comes from light, the source of light and life in our earthly lives is the sun. This same symbol is used as the sign for gold in alchemy. Ancient traditions understood gold to be a physical crystallization of the same energy quality as in sunlight. This pattern is also the sign for the Godhead, the source of creation in both the Rosicrucian and Masonic traditions. As seen in this image, based on the work of the Rosicrucian initiate, Rudolf Steiner. The Godhead is the divine unity, the original unified field where all is one. The macrocosm is the higher world which emerges from that unity. The macrocosm contains the Godhead broken up into discrete pieces, into a multitude of spiritual beings, worlds, and creative processes. The microcosm contains that same totality of the Godhead, but broken up into pieces of denser, smaller levels of manifestation, reaching down to the vital energy, physical, and electromagnetic levels. We will see in a future episode that the hexagram of the macrocosm and the pentagram of the microcosm are sacred geometry keys to unlocking two essential levels of every human being, the astral body of consciousness and the etheric or pranic body of vital energy. These are also key parts of the Merkaba, the human soul vehicle. We have to switch our understanding of sacred geometry from being static forms to instead focus on the living, dynamically vibrating energy fields which create these forms.
We're seeing common people around the world doing the uncommon. I lost. When dealing with sacred geometry forms like the point in the center of the circle, think of these forms as being similar to electronic circuit diagrams showing energy patterns which we can directly apply for practical purposes. The point in the center of the circle is a two-dimensional image. It becomes in three dimensions the point in the center of the sphere of creation, with dynamic movement between the center and the boundary of creation within the sphere. In modern physics, the so-called Big Bang Theory is misunderstood by most of the general public. The theory does not say that some unknown explosion filled up an already existing space and time with physical things. Rather, it says that an original outward movement from a zero-dimensional point, the singularity, created space and time through the outward expansion of the point, which created an expanding sphere of the three-dimensional physical world that we live in. In other words, a sacred geometric movement from the point to the surrounding sphere is the foundation of all creation in modern physics. The concept that the geometric center is the source of all creation and is a literal gateway to the divine plane is found in classical spiritual traditions. It is prominent in the Indian tradition as the Bindu point of divine light found in the exact center of Indian yantras, of the mandalas of Eastern traditions and sacred geometric forms in general. In modern times, Dr. Ibrahim Karim of Cairo, Egypt, has demonstrated that there is a powerful, subtle energy quality that is literally present in the center of all geometric forms. This powerful energy of the center appears in both two-dimensional geometric drawings and in three-dimensional forms. As long as the boundary information of the geometric form is present in space, like a conducting wire in an electrical circuit. This subtle energy appears in the center of the geometric form. Dr. Karim developed methods to directly detect and apply this powerful subtle energy of the center, leading to the creation of the new energy science called biogeometry. A subtle energy quality from the geometric center, Dr. Karim was able to demonstrate replicatable biological effects on living beings at the Egyptian National Research Center and in multiple international university and medical studies. Classical traditions describe the act of creation from the center as moving through multiple levels of densification, which are referred to as spiritual planes or as the planes of nature. The initial zero-dimensional point of creation which physics calls the singularity, in metaphysics is known as the divine plane. This point of the divine plane is the key to the unified field beyond any polarity which exists in lower worlds of manifestation. Dr. Karim has created a new multi-dimensional wave model describing the different planes of manifestation and showing which geometric shapes are in resonance with each plane. In practical biogeometry applications, these shapes can act like antennas to focus on a specific plane
to either detect and analyze their energy or to direct energy to or from that plane. The highest plane, the divine, manifests its energy through the zero-dimensional point, which manifests in the center of all geometric forms. The circle and sphere, the perfect balanced containers for creation, resonate with the physical plane, where vibrations crystallize into matter. When we connect the highest and the lowest planes in Dr. Kareem's model, we see the point in the center of the circle for what it really is, the divine unity plane in the center of the physical world of creation. Dr. Kareem's discovery is connected to other scientific discoveries. Recent experiments using laser light to create cavitations within water, which are empty spheres or bubbles, have shown incredible effects which cannot be explained by modern science. When this water bubble collapses, it releases both light and sound, a phenomenon known as sonoluminescence. The instant the water bubble collapses, it also releases a tremendous amount of excess energy. In one experiment, when linked to a pump with 840 watts input, it produced 2,800 watts of power, an increase of over 300% of the input energy. Considered impossible in modern physics, but explained in research papers as a possible release of hidden energy from the quantum vacuum, which some people call zero-point energy. Studies of the collapsing water cavity have found that this collapse creates for a millisecond heat of over 5,000 Kelvin. The surface of the sun is 5,800 Kelvin. Just as Dr. Kareem's work shows a subtle energy which affects biological life coming from the center of the sphere and all geometric forms, so sonoluminescence research proves massive millisecond releases from the center of collapsing spherical structures in water. So we have now explored the first secret, how the point in the center of the circle image is a packed thought form in the mind of God, which holds encoded information about how the divine geometric center, the singularity, the unified field, manifests the sphere of physical creation. We now come to a second great secret of sacred geometry, which is that every human being can develop the ability to perceive, create, and send these divine packed thought forms of sacred geometry. The precise methods of how to do this have been hidden in closed initiation circles for thousands of years. In the Kabbalah, the mind of God is described as an ocean of fire, which is pure consciousness. Every human being receives a spark from this ocean of fire, and this divine spark becomes our immortal spirit core, our microcosmic part of the one universal being. This flame of our higher spirit core ignites above our head during advanced forms of spiritual initiation. This is seen in the Indian tradition with the flame appearing above the head when a person becomes twice born. And in Christianity, it is seen in the flames above the heads of the disciples, led by Mary Magdalene at Pentecost. In the Western spiritual tradition, 
It is said that humanity is the microcosm of the macrocosm and that we are the crown of creation. This means that every human being has within them all the planes of creation, all the powers of the Godhead, but in a latent and sleeping form, which must be awakened. This is a process of illumination. In other words, increasing our internal light, which we have seen as the external manifestation of divine consciousness itself. We have this incredible slumbering potential because we are a direct emanation of the Godhead, reduced in scale to the microcosmic level, but with all the inherent qualities and powers of the divine. The law of attraction, that you will attract to yourself what you create in your consciousness, is an example of modern teachings on the power of the human mind to create. Science of mind and related mental healing methods are examples of the power of the human mind to heal and to create the fundamental conditions of both illness and health, depending on how skillfully we use our minds. Many healers have found that when they combine the clear focused creation of a thought form holding the desired state of health with whatever method of healing they are applying, that the results improve, sometimes miraculously. This method is very powerful when the light of our consciousness, our mind power, is focused and coherent like a laser light. It is also strengthened when beneficial spiritual beings and energies are lovingly asked to help with the healing. This ability to perceive or create thought forms at the higher macrocosmic level is not based on thinking in words. It is a higher order thinking in mental images, in sounds, in internal vibrational states. It is a thinking that lives and plays in the vibrational essence behind physical things. In humanity's current state of evolution, we break down information into thinking in words, one word at a time, to represent every separate component of the thought. And then we slowly build up larger concepts. But this is a very slow method. But for angelic beings and more advanced non-physical beings, they can communicate through an instantaneous transmission of a thought form containing densely packed information. We can use the terminology of the late French medical doctor Samuel Sagan, founder of the modern Clairvision School, and call these higher level dense packets of consciousness packed thought forms. Every human being has experienced this type of packed thought form when we have been thinking about some issue and then we get into a relaxed state. And then in this open state, we receive a packed thought form in an instant, which contains a huge amount of embedded information. This is the Eureka moment. This is the vision received in the vision quest. This is the transmission received from the spiritual teacher or an angelic being. This is the opening of our awareness to merge with a higher field of consciousness. This secret of packed thought forms brings us to our third secret. That the sacred geometric structures of the human energy body are keys to access our latent spiritual powers. The difference between an ordinary person and a spiritual adept is that the latter has an energy field which is highly activated and sacred geometrically structured 
This makes available to them higher states of consciousness and other powers, which appear magical to ordinary people who are stuck in dense, toxic energy fields. For this reason, hidden traditions of initiation around the world train their students to understand where the key spiritual centers are in their energy field and how to activate them. This knowledge of the sacred geometry structures of the human energy system opens up a hidden world which controls health and illness, our mind and emotions, and our latent spiritual potential. There are many different sacred geometry structures in our energy bodies. It's a huge science in itself. Let's clarify now just a few structures which provide the background we need for the powerful energy activation practice you will learn at the end of this episode. The primary energy axis of our body is our central column of energy, which runs in the absolute vertical midline of our body, from the crown center to the perineum at the base of the abdomen. Fight the look of wrinkles with the help of advanced retinoid and fortifying peptides. This central column is not the same as the spinal energy circuit described in many traditions. The very existence of this midline central column was kept secret by many traditions, and it features prominently in many of the most powerful spiritual activation practices. In the exact center of the central column runs a golden thread of divine energy, which holds the original unity energy of the divine plane inside the central column in our body. The seven primary energy centers on our central column are known today by their Indian name, chakras, meaning wheel, because they appear on the front and back of the body as spinning vortices of energy. For the five chakras from the third eye or Ajna center in the head down to the sexual chakra, the vortices at each of these five chakras are paired up in the front and the back of the body. The tips of the two vortices meet at the golden thread in the very center of the central column. The very top and bottom chakras along the central channel in our body, the crown or Sahasrara center and the base or Muladhara center are connected together in their own vertical vortex pair right on the central column itself. Our central column continues down from the perineum at the base of the abdomen to go between our legs and then below our feet into the earth to ground us and also continues in the opposite direction above the human head to connect us to higher consciousness centers. The energy centers in our physical body can only hold a certain intensity level of power. Otherwise, their high level of voltage would burn out the smaller subtle energy circuits in the human body, which are referred to as nadis in the Indian tradition. However, energy centers in our subtle energy field outside of our physical body can hold much higher energy intensity. This means that the true energy centers we need to activate in order to fully perceive, create, and transmit packed thought forms are actually outside the physical body in our greater energy field. However, before we can activate these higher centers outside of the physical body in a balanced way, we must activate and have our spirit fully inhabit 
the key chakras in our body. In our modern culture, which is very intellectual and thinking-centric, the third eye chakra is often the first chakra to be activated. The third eye chakra is named Ajna in Sanskrit, which means both to perceive and to command. We can use the mind power and light generated by the activated third eye chakra to help activate all the other chakras in the body and energy field. The third eye chakra is often misunderstood in Western circles to be an energy center only in the front of the head between the eyebrows. But as we have seen, there's actually a front and back vortex pair connecting at the third eye chakra. In reality, the third eye is a multi-dimensional geometric structure which runs as a horizontal cylinder of energy from between the eyebrows, connects to the central column in the center of the head, and then continues through to the back of your head. Just as the three 90-degree axes of space define the three-dimensional physical world, so it defines the sacred space in the center of the third eye cylinder. We can call the three axes of space the cubical cross, because it is a cross in three dimensions rather than just two dimensions. And this three-axis cross is the structural infrastructure of the cube shape connected to three-dimensional physical manifestation. The first axis of the cubical cross in the head is the front-back axis just mentioned. The horizontal cylinder of energy running from between the eyebrows to the area of the bump in the back of your head. The second 90-degree axis is the top-down vertical line of the central column we discussed previously. The third axis is the side-to-side axis. This can be experienced by putting your attention at the top of both ears and becoming aware of an axis running through the two brain hemispheres and the corpus callosum between the hemispheres. Where these three axes meet in the cubical cross of our head is at the location of the third ventricle of the brain. This is a key spiritual center in the human body called the cave of Brahma in the Indian tradition. This is a large open area of the brain through which flows the cerebrospinal fluid, a true water of life. The cerebrospinal fluid is a completely different bodily fluid system than the blood or the lymph systems. It is literally a liquid ocean which pulses through the human spine and brain, making life and movement possible in the human body. On the periphery of the third ventricle, within this liquid ocean, are both the pineal and the pituitary glands. These glands are understood in classical traditions to be the key anchors for spiritual development in the human body. In addition to their powerful physical functions as sources of neurotransmitters and body-regulating secretions, by activating the center area of the cubical cross in the head, the cave of Brahma, your entire head system is both activated and stabilized. Activating the cave of Brahma also ignites other energy activations throughout the entire human energy field. This brings us now to a fourth secret, that these hidden practices to activate the human energy system do so 
by applying the exact same sacred geometry patterns which created our world. These key patterns move energy in the major centers and circuits of the human body and thereby activate our full spiritual potential. This fourth secret connects us to the energetic practice from our first episode, where you learn to activate the first segment of the powerful net energy grid of the human body, which we call the grid of life design or gold. In that first practice, you learn to connect three powerful energy centers around your head into a golden triangle, which clears and elevates our consciousness to higher levels. However, we perform that practice in a very simple way, just putting our attention on each of the three energy centers and then mentally connecting them. We can now make these energy activations much stronger and more effective by using a precise sacred geometry pattern. This advanced method applies the core manifestation pattern we explored earlier in this episode, the point in the center of the circle which is the dynamic movement from the divine unity center to the spherical boundary of creation and back again. To apply this powerful pattern for energy activations, we must first understand that to live and survive in our external three-dimensional physical world, we usually move our attention outwards through our physical senses, out into all directions in the world around us. This is the movement from the divine center to the surrounding sphere, the external boundary. The first part of this energy activation practice is to reverse the usual outward movement of our attention back into the center which it comes from. To put it very simply, for physical awareness, we move outwards to our periphery. For spiritual awareness, we move the opposite direction inwards back into the center. By pulling our attention back into the very center of any energy center in the body, we move through layers of the subtle body until we touch the divine core at the center, the zero-dimensional point or zero point. By pulling our energy and consciousness back into the divine center, we activate that center. When activated, this center then reverses the direction of movement so that we switch again from going inward to now having the activated energy center radiate outwards in all directions. This natural counter movement radiates from the center back out to the periphery, but with a much stronger, awakened power than before, now pouring out from that energy center. This creates in our energy body an expanding sphere radiating out from that center point to create a radiant sun around that energy center. The effect of this practice is described and illustrated in virtually every world tradition showing a radiant sun of energy around a person's head or their heart or other activated energy centers. This is the aura of an awakened master, an initiate. This method has two stages. The first stage is the inward movement of our energy and awareness into the center point of an energy center. When our inwardly moving consciousness touches the divine center, this profoundly activates the energy center we are focusing on. This first stage we will call zero-point centering, or ZPC for short. The second stage is the outward expansion from the divine center when it has been activated. 
turning that energy center we are focusing on into a radiant sun. We will call the second stage the radiance stage. What we are calling zero-point centering and radiance are known by a variety of names in different traditions, center and periphery, expansion and contraction, involution and expolution, divine pulsation, etc. Unfortunately, when most modern systems teach this practice, they almost always teach only one of the two phases, ignoring or dismissing the other phase. Eastern systems tend to focus only on the inward movement, the zero-point centering movement into the center, whereas Western systems tend to focus only on the outward movement, the radiance out into the surrounding sphere. This is a common metaphysical problem. Many of our modern spiritual practices are based on shattered fragments of the whole, with key parts of the practice missing because we don't understand the full pattern. Sacred geometry holds the key to understanding the complete pattern. It is essential that both parts of this practice, the inwards and outwards movements, are used together to create the optimal balanced activation of any energy center. Otherwise, it's like trying to walk and move forward by only using one foot, or breathing by only using in-breath or out-breath, which ignores the healthy rhythm of alternating the opposite poles of the practice. We can perform this practice on any energy center in the body to activate it. We could even use this method to activate an energy center in another person's body through putting our mind inside their energy center and creating this movement pattern. This activation of an energy center helps to fully manifest that center's inherent powers. This awakens the slumbering divine powers within any energy center of our body, while also balancing and restoring harmony and opening up perception of higher non-physical realities. Please keep in mind that external explanations like these are essential to understand these deep initiation processes. However, we must be careful not to fall into the common trap of modern spirituality which is to intellectually understand the concept, but to have never really experienced the full reality of it. Only by experiencing the practice will you truly know and be benefited by it. Previously, we created the golden triangle around the head in episode one. Now we will activate the cave of Brahma in the center of the three axis cross in the head. This area is a master controller of the brain and body of the entire sacred geometry net of the human energy field. The cave of Brahma can activate a wide range of new powers, abilities, and states of consciousness. The practice you are about to learn is almost never described publicly. Instead, it is encoded in sacred geometric imagery, the same way many hidden practices are encoded in sacred geometry images, which are understood by initiates, but are thought to be simply symbolic by the general public. For example, this activation of the cave of Brahma in the cubicle cross of the head was encoded in the Christian tradition through the Kai Ro symbol 
of early Christianity, in which the Greek letter Rho, which looks like an English capital P, created the vertical axis of the cubical cross, and the letter Chi, looking like an English X, created the two horizontal axes, which when flattened into 2D, looks like an X. This was a symbol for Christ, or more precisely, for Christ consciousness, the activation of the spiritual center in the head into a radiant sun of divine light. This was not only a general representation of the cubical cross as the three axes of physical space, but was specifically shown in the classical images to be inside the head, where icons of Christ show the vertical axis down through the crown center and the horizontal axis through the top of the ears, meeting at the cave of Brahma in the center of the head. This practice is actually quite simple. However, when you first perform it, you will have to train your energy body to learn this new movement. Just as we have to train the physical muscles of our body to perform the movements of a new sport or activity, so we have energetic muscles in our energy field, which most people have no idea even exist. These energetic muscles are in an atrophied state just as if we had not used a physical muscle for decades. So in the beginning, we will need to apply more effort to flex this atrophied energetic muscle again. But through repeated practice, you will find it easier and easier each time to make the sacred geometric energy movement. The practice becomes in time almost effortless and more powerful and tangible with every repetition. This powerful contraction expansion at any energy center brings it back to life and pulsating, just as expansion and contraction of a physical muscle during weightlifting leads to physical growth. This practice of zero-point centering and radiance done specifically in the center of the cubical cross in the cave of Brahma may also activate a range of internal energy circuits in your body, giving rise to sensations or internal perceptions of light, color, and vibration. In summary, this is a very effective practice which will allow you to powerfully activate any energy center in your field. If you'd like to do the practice now, please see the companion video for this episode. Otherwise, please set an intention to come back and do the practice at a later time. Please join us for our next episode where we will explore the sacred geometry secrets of the Cup of the Holy Grail, and you will learn how to use this form to activate and recharge your entire energetic field. See you then. Oh my God, okay, we're going right, to jump right into this because of the time constraints, but this is called... I'll read for you while you do that. Open Minds with Regina Meredith, Gene Keys, and Human Design. What are the greatest challenges keeping you from discovering your own genius? Richard Rudd. We may have played this before. That name sounds familiar. But we're going to do it again, Sam. Delves into the origin of the 64 Gene Keys system as a language that expands upon human design. These tools can better help you understand who you are and why you are here. Discover how 
You can unlock the secrets of your shadows, your talents, your divine gifts. A teacher, mystic, and award-winning poet, and author of The Gene Keys. In his 20s, he experienced a life-changing state of spiritual illumination over three days and nights. Today, he continues to expand the wisdom that he was gifted while teaching all around the world. Did you find it, honey? Mm. All right, let's do this. This is 45 minutes and 18 seconds. Here we go. because it's all wired into our DNA. Mm -hmm. This is actually talking biology here. Yes. A bit like opening a safe. You turn it one way, click. You (laughs) turn it another way, it's another gene key, click. And then you turn it another way, back, click, and you get to the oldest one, and then the door opens, and your heart starts to kind of breathe and live again. In 1996, I had a huge series of revelations that I've been unpacking ever since. It's a journey you take through deep contemplation, and in that process of contemplation, you unlock your own gifts. You can do it now. You can do it tomorrow. You can keep doing it. And what you're doing is you're creating space for transformation to occur. One of the favorite topics of our community is finding new systems that both divine and make sense of our lives and times. One of the more elegant systems is the Gene Keys, established by Richard Rudd. The beauty of the system is that it takes levels of consciousness into consideration, which is not the norm in most divination systems. So, Richard, let's dive in. Welcome. You and I are friends, and I know you, but our, some of, most of our audience may be new to you. Some have already gone down this rabbit hole. And it is so beautiful, so elegant, so complex. So we need to let people get to know the fellow that started off. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we just dive right in? First of all, you're British. You mm-hmm. had a wonderful upbringing in life uh, outside of maybe going to public school. Yeah, that was a little <laughs> bit more hairy. <laughs> and maybe just explain that because it's, I think, important for people to know this comes up with some of my British guests yeah. who are well-educated in that system. Yeah. It's scary. Prince Charles, now King Charles, was totally. brutalized by it. Yeah. No, totally. You were, you know, we were sent, I was sent off at seven um, to boarding school. And that was just a deep trauma that's kind of lived in me ever since. And so in some respect, a lot of my work has actually kind of come out of that trauma, you know, so, um, and it's been about healing that trauma. So, you know, it, it has, it, it had its purpose, but it wasn't fun at the time. No, I, yeah. I don't think, I don't think I've ever met mm-hmm. a British man that actually had a good time at school when they were sent away to public school. Mm -hmm. It just seemed that discipline, I don't know what it was trying to shape these little boys into, Mm. but I mean, bordering on cruelty. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And yet you have loving parents. They were doing the right thing by you. Yeah. Well, they went, my father went also. Yes. So that was how it was done. Right. Didn't question it. Right. And so what is the system built for? Well, I think it's just, it's what you said. It's built to shape, you know, the, the, the young leaders of the future, um, and, and that's so. That was what it, that was why they designed it in that way: discipline and um, education, and you know, values. I mean, they did have good values, mm-hmm. but it was just there was no emotion, there was no, there was no emotional feminine. deprivation, yeah, no was, feminine, no feminine. Yeah. No. 
Oh, well, okay. Yeah. So now you're making up for it. <laughs> I'm making up for it <laughs> And now. the Gene Keys makes up for yeah. it. So let's go to Gene Keys. So you're a young man mm-hmm. and you're also, you're searching for something. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about the lead up to finding human design and the structure that gave you. Yeah, well, before that, I, I had this series of visions, and you know, so that was in in the order of the the flow of it. Um, that was in 1996. So I had a, a, a spiritual awakening, I guess. I mean, everyone says that nowadays. Yeah. Um, uh, do you want me to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah. Um, so I mine was a bit odd because I woke up in the morning out of my bed, out of sleep, and I woke up into a, a kind of heightened state of consciousness. So I just transitioned from the dream into the awakening. And um, and it stayed like that for three days and three nights. And I've talked about it quite a lot here and there. And I always say the story gets better every time I, I, <laughs> I throw something new in. Um, a lot happened in those three days and three nights. And I didn't sleep. And I was in an altered, I mean, a, a fully awakened state of consciousness is how I would refer to it, um, with light pouring through my body and the light had an intelligence to it. So it wasn't just an experience. It was a, it was, a, you know, there was a, there was an omniscience to it as well, which I know is a big word. Um, but I could see things and remember things and I could remember the future as well as the past. So I realized out, you know, there was a state in which out of timelessness in which memory travels in all directions, not just as we think it linear towards the past. So for me, I had a, yeah, a huge, a huge kind of series of revelations um, that I've been unpacking ever since, actually. So from there, because mm. it's going to happen again, but from there, mm. what happened? And how did you stumble into human design? Um, well, I guess part of my process of trying to come to terms with that experience after it, after it kind of ended and I was back to being this guy, you know, the wounded guy from the traumatized young <laughs> lad cool. uh i um i spent a long time trying to process that mm-hmm. um and trying to work out what i was supposed to do with it it's not like i was given some complete system like the gene keys i i didn't i didn't have any structure um and so i think I'm, you know i had this revelation um but i i had no no language for it so i think i spent most of my 20s traveling the world studying with different teachers mm-hmm. i was lucky i had a little i had just enough inheritance um, to be able to f- be free to travel, but I, I wasn't sort of very, very rich or anything mm-hmm. like that, but it was just enough so that I could travel around the world and kind of work here and there and, um, just explore what I was interested mm-hmm. in after having had that experience. And human design was one thing that, um, went off in me quite powerfully. Um, and so I, yeah, I, the first time I saw one of those body graphs, I had a, a, a very, profound moment of memory and so i followed that strand i ended up in america um with the founder ra yes and it's funny because i know people in the human design system who remember you from Mm -hmm. back then oh yeah yeah when you're a kid yeah yeah (laughs) and they said you were really um you had quite a profound understanding of human design as well Mm. at the time yeah, I did. I mean, I, I connected well with Ra, yeah. um, which wasn't the case for many people. No, almost no um, one. Yeah. And uh, we had a kind of a, a, a quite a profound uh, intimacy together, um, as much as most people could, I think, other than his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, through that, I, I he get, he offered me the rights to the UK to do it in the UK. Just mm-hmm. And so I set up a school. I set up one of the first human design schools. And, um, started teaching in the UK. It was quite successful. 
first time I'd done anything like that. It was completely new. No one had a clue what it was. Um, so it was quite fun. It was um, a bit nerve wracking at times uh, because I was just a pioneering. Yeah, you're yeah. a young fellow. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because his own story was similar to yours where he had yeah. this blasting um, download that lasted for days mm. and just showed itself architecturally. Yeah. And the interesting thing is human design is very architectural. Mm. Gene Keys is like an evolution of that into an expanded state of consciousness and awareness with the levels of consciousness mm. and the elegance of the explanations of mm. these keys mm. made very full for mm. us. Yeah, you see, it's, it's root, they're both systems are rooted in, in the Ching, yes. Chinese Ching, right? And so I had in my travels studied with Taoist teachers and particularly one lovely man called Hua Ching Ni, Master Ni. And he wrote one of the best books on, um, still existing on the Ching. And I, so I, I became affiliated to him and also Mantak Chia, who was a very brilliant teacher, still yes. is. And, um, so I, I really explored those, you know, modalities and, and then I brought something of that into human designers, especially Master Nee, because he carried the living transmission. He, right. he was an awakened, amazing man, you know, just like a, You'd go and visit him, and it was like you, there was this kind of golden glow that just came off him, and you're just sitting in his presence, and all this wisdom was just emanating. And so I kind of had that experience to bring into mm-hmm. design, and it started to change my understanding um, and change my direction from Ra's view, um, which was really hard um, because he was my mentor. Right. And it's a tricky thing when you go in a different direction from your mentor. Um, and Very so, tricky. Yeah. How did he navigate that? Well, I've never a, asked you that. No, he was an unusual man, Ra, and um, he his normal way of falling out with someone or d- diverting with someone was just to chop them off. Um, and uh, I didn't let I didn't allow that to happen. I worked really hard to kind of maintain a graciousness between us. So I went to I remember going to visit him in Ibiza where he was living. Um, carrying this news that I was leaving um, and I was going off in a new direction. He was very gracious, actually. And I well, stayed. You could see the beauty in, in the light in you. I think so. Yeah. And he had a fondness for me. Yes. I think he was pissed off, you know. Yeah, and, I would guess. <laughs> and um, I thought I was, I think he, he, he has, you know, assumed I'd gone adrift in some way, yeah. at some level. But he kind of loved me in a you know, in his own way. And um, so we actually ended quite well and I offered him the rights back. It was a lovely thing. It was like a, because I could have sold them for quite a lot of money, but yeah. because he'd given them to me for free, I sort right. of felt like, here they are. I want to give them back to you right. um, and you with a recommendation of another person who could take over them. So it was sort of, it was a clean closure. Wonderful. Um, and felt like there weren't any nasty things left so I was kind of like oh thank god that I'm so glad to yeah, hear that because I, I, I don't know why I never asked you how he yeah no, yeah no so okay we've got that yeah. part of the story yeah. so now more happens and then the gene keys the key 64 keys themselves are birthed yeah exactly and then um so I then started to innovate and the main problem I'd had with the with the human design was the language you know, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a linguist. I'm a poet. I'm a, you know, I studied literature. I was, I'm a, I'm a lover of language. And, uh, and I just found the language, uh, locked me in to, you know, a certain kind of typecast, um, and tight 
Um, That's kind of what I was saying thinking. earlier. It's very yeah. architectural in its design. Yeah. It's it mechanical almost. Yeah. yeah, it was. But I didn't mind that part. It was just that it, it didn't feel like it was complete. Right. It didn't feel like it had a language that was full spectrum. Right. You know, and Ra himself wasn't, although he surfed the higher planes at times, mm-hmm. he wasn't really enamored of them. And mm-hmm. he was quite, he had a dark sense of humor. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, he used to say things like, it stinks of angels in here. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, um, I'd say he had that wonderful dark sense yeah. of humor that many people came to appreciate, me included. Yeah. Um, but after a while, you, I, I kind of felt I need to, this needs to go further. So I started to create this new language. Um, and a new spectrum of words that came out of it uh, for the 64 archetypes, you know, which were laid down from the I Ching. Um, and that is what gave that language gave birth to the Gene Keys, essentially. And I said this when I was introducing mm. you and what is so unique about it in all of these systems, um, they give you a, a very kind of direct key as to your the name of your uh, particular personality trait or what your potential is and so forth. But the gene keys is unique in that it goes in three uh, on three levels from the shadow to the gift mm. to the city, which is what I found so beautiful and unique about it. Mm. It requires um, genuine self-honesty mm-hmm. to work with the keys. Yeah. And I think if there's ever a problem with the keys with anyone, it's only when we're not willing to look at and acknowledge I'm mm. still kind of living the lower end of this particular mm-hmm. element of my mm. character or being. Exactly. And that was what the language is based on. And I'm a lover of trinities and threes. Mm-hmm. So that notion of um, having a shadow spectrum, you know, the, so that you could understand all the wounding patterns and the trauma patterns that lie in humanity um, and therefore your particular ones, um, that kind of gave rise to this sort of wound map, you know, which is what we see in some of the Jinkies profiles and you can you can track that. So it's a, it's shadow work. It's deep. It's gritty stuff. Um, it's not just like a nice kind of fun esoteric system. It's gritty. You have to do the work. But people that go into it yeah. have such immense respect for it mm. because it does require integrity and honesty. Mm-hmm. That's all yeah. we that's all we should be yeah. asking of ourselves to begin yeah. with is just to show yeah. up naked and honest. Yeah. And it can mm. really add such dimension and depth. To your understanding no, at the I times thought, in your own I place in it. Totally. <laughs> and, and the, the first thing you know, for me not, was to I use thought, it on myself, I, you know, mm-hmm. so to understand my own shadow patterns and my own, you know, traumas and use it to kind of bring me through those patterns. You know, so dishonesty was one of mine, actually. Mm-hmm. And I did find deep places of dishonesty in my being um, in layers. And um, and as I kind of came to terms with those places um, of where I was dishonoring myself, um you know, I started to heal my heart and then more, more love started to come out, not just in me, but also through the language and through the system. And, um, I obviously wrote my book out of that, the Gene Keys book, which was a huge, um, undertaking. Oh my gosh, a tome. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's beautiful because you don't read it as a book per se. You dive in to your keys mm-hmm. and then your friends or your children's mm-hmm. and you ultimately gather the knowledge through reflection of yourself and the ones you yeah. love. Exactly. But it's interesting you say that because one of mine, and at the time I thought, I wonder where that's showing up. You know, yeah. <laughs> it was know. deafness. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I, and I very recently begun to understand mm. how deaf yeah. I've been in certain areas of life and, mm. and why. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. and so, yes, it was very yeah. helpful to reflect back. Wait a minute yeah. and go into it because now mm-hmm. I can heal it going forward. So let's go into the keys themselves. Sure. OK, so we talked about that. We're going to show a chart here so people can kind of see mm-hmm. what this looks like. And first of all, there are different pathways. And I want to say this. This is very cool. Anyone can go to GeneKeys.com right now while you're watching this. Right. Mm-hmm. You Pause. Do a pause. Yeah. Go to DeanKeys.com and you'll see free profile. Mm-hmm. Click on the free profile. It's just like entering your your information for an, an astrological chart. Yeah. And let it pop up so you can see what it looks like on your own chart. And you can go along with Richard and mm-hmm. I as he's talking about these pathways. Okay. Great. Yeah. Okay. So let's assume most everybody is downloaded okay. and they're taking a peek <laughs> at their own as they're listening. <laughs> okay. So let's start with the first page that gives your primary three keys. On the three pathways, can you talk about what those three keys are? Yes, four keys, three pathways. Three pathways, four keys, yes. Uh, Yeah, they're called your life's work, your evolution, your radiance, and your purpose. And um, those who know human design will recognize them um, from what's called the incarnation cross, which is sort of, they're the archetypes of what you're here to do and your deep core purpose Mm -hmm. in life Mm -hmm. and how you get in the way of it, how you open up the genius you know, in your life and, and find that higher purpose. And so there's a simple pathways, you know, it's a simple process. It's, it's, it's universal. It's challenge. That's the first pathway, breakthrough and core stability. And so as you go into a contemplation of these codes of your keys, you meet the challenge first, you know, and the challenge is like, what is the greatest challenge in my life? So you can look at the one that says evolution, for example, and you can look at the shadow pattern there and you can see that's probably one of the biggest challenges in your life. For me, it's doubt, right? Mm-hmm. Self doubt. Um, and so I had, I've had to really kind of understand where that doubt comes from. But then there's a gift in every one of those challenges. So you have to look at, well, what's the next word up? In so that? let's go with your yeah. doubt and yeah. the key in your yeah. doubt and what that is. Yeah. So doubt, the gift in doubt is inquiry, right? So doubt is a fundamental basis of like the scientific process right you begin mm-hmm. with like i don't know what i don't know how this works let's take it apart and figure out what it how it works so for me that's been like i gotta understand myself i gotta understand how this works i gotta understand how these gene keys operate so i took them apart inside myself and then i started to find the gift so so i'm a great inquirer you know yes. so that's one of my prime yeah. gifts is inquiry into the depth of things and then even deeper is what we call the city. That's the gift. You know, that's the, the gift um, in its ultimate flowering. A city is a Sanskrit word. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there, there's no English word. So I had to kind of borrow from Sanskrit city, divine power in a way, or enlightened self-expression or superpower, if you like. Mm-hmm. What's your superpower? Yeah. So you can look at those cities and you'll see your superpowers. So and so what's me, the superpower? Yeah. Then? So doubt, inquiry, inquiry yeah. truth. Yes. Truth. Truth with a capital T. Yes. And truth is a, it's not just, it's not just speaking the truth. It's, it's, it's truth as an experience, as an embodied experience. So that truth for me is what I felt in my three day experience. For example, I experienced the embodiment of truth. It's beyond words. It's beyond understanding. I can't tell you what it felt like. It's just, I knew stuff. You knew stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Now, what key is that? That's 63. Yes. Yeah. And there are 64 keys. There are 64. Yes. Yeah. So that's an example of how to unlock your profile and, um, and then you open up these breakthroughs. And, um, and the thing is, the way you have it set up there, you can, so if you happen to have the book, the mm-hmm. tome 
Yeah. Right, the gene yeah. keys yeah. and the codes to everything that gives mm-hmm. these beautiful explanations on all three levels mm-hmm. of each key. So what you would do is you would look at these initial paragraphs that kind of encapsulate mm-hmm. that, and then you can go dive down into it and see where you are in it on the yeah. level of consciousness. Yeah, the paragraphs are just teasers. They're teasers, everything, but they're yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, they're teasers to get you kind of to unlock your, you know, your imagination. But yeah. essentially, gene keys doesn't kind of do it for you. You know, it, it's, it is a, it is a, a, I call it a path of self illumination. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a journey you take through deep contemplation. And in that process of contemplation, you unlock your own gifts. Yes. You know, I can't do it for you. Well, so, I found it right yeah. on. The first time yeah. I did it, I looked at it yeah. and I thought, Oh my gosh, I've yeah. got to go a little deeper into this mm-hmm. because each one um, of those short paragraphs struck a very deep truth in me. And so, for mine, uh, just to peek at it, key 49, um, mm. I mean, yeah, key 49, the purpose in the key of 49. And mm. what is that? Can you tell us what that is? And then I'm going to do 43, my life's yeah. work. So 49, sh- the shadow reaction, mm-hmm. you know, the gift revolution mm-hmm. and the city rebirth. So you can kind of see those, those, the progression of those words mm-hmm. and, and the, they're states of consciousness. So reaction is a victim state. Yes. All the shadows are victim states. They're feedback loops. So, Every time you get caught in the reactive process, you're you're stuck in it, yeah. and it just goes on in your relationships, and yeah. and you're stuck in that loop, yeah. um, and you can't, you can't escape in a way, and unless you see the pattern yourself, yes. and then you unearth it, and you start to kind of um, transform it. So it's a transformational system, jinkies. So you have to do that work. You have to you know do it in your relationship. Yes. And and kind of break out of those patterns. And That's then it where goes the, to evol- revolution. Revolution. Then you start to use it. Um, the same energy um, at a higher frequency becomes creative revolution, right? So you can then use it creatively. And every gift is basically a creative impulse that is released from the shadow. So the shadow makes us miserable. Right. Uh, and it feels bad. And it affects, our, you know, this is called gene keys because it's all wired into our DNA. Mm-hmm. This is actually, we're actually talking biology here. Yes. So a shadow pattern is rooted in our biology. And so it shuts down pathways in our brain. It, it, it shuts down, you know, the way we see things. It kind of makes us feel miserable. It affects our moods, all of that. So when you begin to unlock one of these gifts, you are rerouting pathways and genes, expressions of genes mm-hmm. in your actual DNA. Um, and through that, you start to release vitality, and which comes out often as creativity. So right. suddenly you've got this creative genius that starts to emerge and your, your life starts to pick up. You feel different. Your your sleep patterns change. Your dreaming changes. Lots right. of, so many things rooted in our endocrine system change because the genes are governing all that. Yes. So it's... You know, in the beginning, when I shared Jinkies, I, I had this line. I used to say, you are the architect of your evolution. Yes, right? yes. And that and, is so true. And it's true. Well, I know that many people say that um, nowadays. And it's true. And that this is a living experience of actually undergoing that process. Mm-hmm. Very personal to each person mm-hmm. um, and very powerful. Mm-hmm. So then you have rebirth, mm-hmm. you know, and that's um, hard to explain. The cities are hard to explain. Uh, often they come as epiphanies in our life. And so you'll, so as you begin to let that revolutionary, like you've lived a, a revolutionary life, mm-hmm. I happen to know, mm-hmm. um, and the more you kind of have the courage to bring that out in a positive world way, mm-hmm. then um, eventually every now and again, there's a rebirth of some form mm-hmm. and probably something in your life collapses 
in order oh, yeah. for something amazingly new. Oh, usually it to all blows up at once in yeah. one period of time. Yeah. Heavy duty stuff at once exactly. and then yeah. boom, you're something else on the other side. Yeah. So yeah. you just describe the process in every gene key. Yes. You know, because every gene key it describes the same process but through slightly different variations. And you, so in your purpose key, mm. let's talk about your purpose key because we can see what you've done with your life. Yeah, yeah. Well, how, my, does it, how is it reflected in it? Yeah, my, my purpose is um, the jinky of patience. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's taken me a long time to get here and and I've dug very deep inside my own journey and the, the kind of the shadow of impatience or restlessness is um you know that kind of energy that 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 just you know has undermined me in many ways and and I kind of didn't know what I was here to do but then really harnessing that patience but not as just waiting but patience as trust trust that it will unfold in its own timing mm-hmm. everything and that if you trust in that process then um everything's different because it then you're not getting in the way you're not trying to kind of move your life along or you're not trying to think your way through your life you're allowing it to unravel and that's also the story of every gift and and finally the the city is timelessness so it's about accessing spaces out of time and and re- and seeing understanding which is what happened to you when you were having your downloads yeah yes so, yeah, purpose is also different from life's work at the top, if you're looking at your profile. Yeah. Okay, what's yeah. your life's work then? Well, life's work is 63, so that's what I'm doing. Yeah, life's work right. is what I'm doing, right. sharing the gene keys, yes, 64, yes. you know, so I'm sharing all 64 keys, and it's about imagination and illumination, and so that's what I'm doing, sharing mm-hmm. that and helping people with confusion, because that's the shadow, mm-hmm. hopefully, anyway. Um, so it so pervades everything right everything. now, confusion. Yeah. Absolutely. So... That's what you're here to do, but your purpose is different. Your purpose is about being. So for me, it's about a state of being. Patience is a state of being. Mm-hmm. So everything about these teachings is about trying to share with people what I'm learning and continue to learn is slow down. Mm-hmm. And when you slow down, everything comes to you. And well, yeah. this would be a good time to insert in there your lovely book, The Art of Contemplation, yeah. because yeah. I love that book. Mm. It is... I think one of the more poignant guides to not only explaining the the need for and the beauty and um, the purpose in slowing down mm-hmm. and taking time, taking a lot of time if you need mm-hmm. to, to contemplate each of like the thing I was talking about, deafness, mm-hmm. taking time to just sit with that and think, why did you allow yourself not to see this or hear this? Mm-hmm. And then just, you don't have to have the answer immediately. Mm. So the Art of Com- Contemplation is a very beautiful book mm. to encourage people to take their time mm-hmm. to allow the answers to bubble up from inside, yeah. and then they're gen- genuinely there. Yeah, it's not just a band aid answer. No. no. So yeah, I wrote the obviously the Jinkies book is like six hundred pages or yeah. something, and it's just <laughs> dense. And so I wrote the the little book on contemplation. It was like to distill the quintessence of what it is that I'm really trying to share. And it's under 100 pages, and you can read it in a few hours. But it is. I'm I'm actually more proud of it than the big book because I distilled it. And you that, distilled it that, beautifully. And I could only do that after later when I'd learned patience, and I started to realize how patience operates. And patience, as one of my great teachers 
patient, he said, patience is the vanguard of love. And is Ben Sardino, a Bulgarian sage. I love that statement. That's beautiful. My whole life is sort of yes. wrapped around that statement. And, and I mean, the, the book, um, is so kind of fulfilling and soothing. I've given it as gifts to people. It's, mm. it's a slim volume. Yeah, tiny. But yeah, but like you said, you're more proud of that even yeah. than the keys. Yeah. Because right now, the one thing no one has is patience. True. Society, no. the yeah. world, everything seems to be speeding up and we're encouraged yeah. through all of the mechanisms yeah. to go faster yeah. and to think less, take bite-sized pieces. Yeah. And, you know, this deep wisdom, because that's what Jinkies is, wisdom rather than knowledge. Wisdom requires patience and requires uh, that you do create pauses in your life regularly, which is what this art of contemplation is all about. Is yeah. The contemplative way, anyone can do it. You know, you, the moment you read that book, you can do it immediately. You can create a pauses in your in your life so easily. You can do it now. You can do it tomorrow. You can keep doing it. And what you're doing is you're creating space for transformation to occur. Yeah. And if you don't create those spaces, transformation doesn't occur. Well, the higher voice never comes through. It's yeah. very difficult for it to come. It's pounding on the door, but there's no space yeah. to hear it. Yeah. And so... Um, I recently, it's brand new. You have an app. We have an app. You have a pause app. I just saw it. It's It's amazing. So if you're just kind of overwhelmed, if you have a little sliver of time and can slip away, go to the little toilet stall at the office if you have to (laughs) with your earbuds in and you can pause for three minutes or whatever. And it gives you all these different ways in which to pause and engage, whether it's music or it is. I'm so proud of it. It's such fun. It's it's Triple Flame. It's called the Triple Flame. It's on the App Store, and it's free. And yeah, it just it allows you to pause in a creative way every three hours for three minutes, and you can set it. You can kind of adapt to it how you like, and it gives you a little ding. And then it also shows you how many other people are pausing right now, which it. I think is great it's because fun. then you have the feeling like you're part of a pausing community, yeah. and also you. In the next version, you'll be able to see who's pausing in time zones around the world. So it'd be to say this wave of people pausing all around the world for three minutes. Yes. And yeah, you're right. You can do little guided meditation. Yeah, it's so and sweet. you can extend it for five or ten minutes. And, yeah. You know, and there's a lot of beautiful resources in there just to kind of chill. People. Oh, I was really impressed when I saw it. It's yeah. so fun. Yeah, so it's, it's called Triple Flame on the App yeah. Store. Okay? Yeah, I and really it's recommend free. it. Yeah, yeah, free and it's, it's lovely. It, it changed change your life. Just Absolutely. I love it. Okay, I'm going to go to one key that both you and I share, which Mm -hmm. you can talk talk about, which is uh, 56. And if people look at the center of their chart right there, Mm -hmm. that SQ, let's talk about our SQ so people can go look at theirs too, and then our shared SQ. Yeah. So I should say before we go that, working with these keys, it takes time. So I created programs that kind of guide you through the steps, Mm -hmm. and they're all on my website. And and I really recommend them because I go into the process, the lines, the gene keys. It's, it's the programs are, are kind of specific to each person. And we're going to get into each of those okay. activation, Venus, cool. Pearl. Okay. So, so we'll just get into that key. So we're jumping right in the yeah, deep end here. The deep end. SQ, the which, center of the chart. Yeah. So it's your, your, your soul's, you know, emanation of love. That's what that really. That's really what that key is. Spiritual quotient. Spiritual quotient. Yeah, it's about your soul. It's like what? What is your soul here to communicate to the world? Your your heart, Mm -hmm. you know. And um, so it shows you the style of love that is most natural to you, right? So you're 56. I'm the same as you. We're both 56. 
So when you look at six, yeah, six. so it's a rascally one. You yeah. know, <laughs> yeah, we're rascals. That's why we get on. Uh, Fifty, you know, and every key I should say is it's it, you could relate it to a deity from a different pantheons around the world. And so the fifty-six are the kind of or yeah, they're, they're the naughty gods. <laughs> you know, they're the they're the naughty deities, but because it's the it's the it's about intoxication. Yeah. It's the intoxicated god state. Um, and so it's uh, you know, we love being involved in that that's the kind of love that wants to kind of get involved in the things of the world yeah. rather than transcend and go it's yeah. like i want to transcend through through eating really fine food and through drinking wine there's so yeah. many layers in it it's true. so that so we have yeah. the rascally one of yeah. intoxication in yeah. the world which really is about love mm. yeah. and sharing yeah. with other people totally so now we look at it now that we're going we've We've taken a dive into some of the specific keys to see what they feel like. Yeah. Now we go to the paths themselves. So let's start with the path of activation and just kind of give us an idea of what that is because there's a book for each one of these paths. Yeah. And also you have a, an audio course and video and audio mm. that's really beautiful because the way you write about it is in one language. Mm-hmm. The way you speak it mm-hmm. is in another. And I found out yeah. last night. Yeah. That you have a book called The 64 Ways, ways yeah. that is a transcription of the way you speak mm. about it. So yeah. depending on how a person's brain operates, yeah. they can read it either way. Exactly. So, I mean, I'm from the, you know, I'm a, I'm a Celt, really. I'm Celtic, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a Brit. Mm-hmm. And so the, 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 you know, the tradition of oral poetics is where I come from. So I wanted to, I wanted to read it. I wanted to write it and then I wanted to speak it. And it did come out completely differently. So it, it took me three years. To record all those audios, yeah, I, I, of them. that was amazing. And, then, and they, I should say, they, if you subscribe to our Pulse, which is our love letter to our community every mm-hmm. week, uh, you get one of those each. You know, it's the key of the moment passing. You know, so you get my audio for free in the mm-hmm. Pulse every week. It's very popular now; people love it. Um, so you get you get to kind of read the energy of the gene key of the week as it's transiting through. So again, each of these is separate books. Yeah. Each of them is an audio course you can take at your own speed. Yeah. So what is the path of activation? The activation sequence is about sequences, yes. as they're called. And um, we unravel, we open in sequence. You know, so if you think about like the mind, the mind can open quite quickly, but the heart, it kind of it, it needs to open gently. You know, we're dealing with trauma, we're dealing with wounding in this program, in this, this process. So doing things step by step in a gentle way is what allows us to feel safe enough to then start opening up. And when you're working with Gene Keys and these sequences, it's in your life. You know, it's not like you're doing it in a corner in a book. Right. It's in your life. Yes. <laughs> you know this, yeah. right? So you start getting reflections in your life and you see the shadows and through your relationships it might be in other people coming at you. Mm-hmm. So you get to do the work in your life. And the activation sequence is the first one that, as I said, it's, it gives you the breakthroughs so that you can realize this stuff works. Mm-hmm. And that's what core stability is called. Mm-hmm. Every time you have a breakthrough, you feel more stable mm-hmm. inside yourself. And it's quite hard to explain to someone who's outside the system, mm-hmm. <laughs> the programs. Right. Because it's really once, the contemplation that takes you from the shadow to the gift. Exactly. It's and transformation. you go into it and you allow yourself to have yeah. the experience of it. Yeah. Yes. So once you've had one of those mm-hmm. events, you're like, ah, oh, I get it. Now I see what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. It's real. Yeah. <laughs> it's an actual biological event. Yeah. So 
that's what makes us start to feel stable and and that's what we mean by core stability in that first sequence it's really powerful and then the next one is the path of venus or the venus sequence which has to do with love and all its expressions in our lives which is a really powerful sequence Mm. obviously i mean yeah it's uh it's it's the deepest work that you can do with uh, any of the gene keys i would say um, and it's heavy stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, it's deep. You, you need support because you're going to go into this map of your wounding mm-hmm. and it's going to show you specific shadow patterns that occurred at times in your childhood in sequence and how you shut down, you know, and, and which keys you used in, you know, cause they're part of who you are in order to defend your heart from hurt. Right. And so. It, Going backwards through those sequences, it's a bit like um, opening a safe. You, you turn it one way, click. You turn it another way, it's another gene key, click. And then you turn it another way, back, click, and you get to the oldest one. And then the door opens and your heart starts to kind of breathe and live again. Mm-hmm. And it's really powerful. So that working with that sequence is about working with, you know, karma that's in, in us. It's about working with the yin-yang forces, specifically inside our heart and mm-hmm. inside our, our mind and our heart. And it's about working our relationships. Yes. Like, you know, and and yeah. there's more that we could get into versus yeah. the key with the lines, but yeah. we don't have time for the lines. No. You, when you get into the book, you can yeah, read yeah. about the lines. Yeah. And it, and that's the only one that I have actually been the whole audio yeah. course through the entire audio yeah. course yeah. on that. And it, it is very, what's wonderful about it is it takes, um, you have personal responsibility, but you're human. Mm. We're all human. Mm. It takes any kind of hiding from yourself, secrecy away mm. from the need to hide away, because here it is out in the open. Here's this wound and you share it with many other people. Yeah. And so I think that's really key is to take yeah. this feeling of guilt away from people that they've done something wrong. Exactly. So it brings us together. It brings us yeah. together. Really so now we have the, the pearl sequence. Yeah, the pearl sequence is kind of fun because it's about prosperity. And um, I set it up initially so that these would unravel as a story, you know, in flow. So you do part one, part two, part three. But then we at some certain point, my team and I just said, should we just like, let's just make it open so anyone can start anywhere. Yeah, it works like that. And so lots of women start with the Venus work because oh, yeah. it's, it's the emotional, <laughs> yeah. it's the emotional work, yeah. right? And the men don't want to do that. Yeah. Generally, the men want let's to go to, to the, the money prosperity one. one. You know? <laughs> And the irony is that actually you kind of need to do the emotional work in yeah. order for the prosperity, but you can start there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just reverse engineering. And, and so in the pearl sequence, which is a very beautiful series of transmissions and teachings, um, you can look at your keys and they show you how you're designed to prosper, but the shadow patterns show you how you get in the way of yourself. Yes. And you also have to re, re-understand what is prosperity. Right. It's not just about having money. It's not, being on the it's not about being successful. Magazine. No. It's actually a much deeper total thing in your whole of your life. Prosperity involves your relationships, it involves your family, your community, it involves everything. Right. So it's a whole new attitude shift. So the pearl opens us up. It's very magical teaching. People use a lot of people use it in there to help them with their businesses to help them with, you know, shifting the kind of energy and the frequency of how they see money. Yeah. And I've done lots of talks and things on that. But um, 
It's really revolutionary. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So um, I just wanted to lay that so because people are looking at their charts right now. Yeah. So they kind of know what the intention yeah. of each of those sequences is. And I want to mention also that you and your team are working on a relationship app for the Venus sequence, which is really yeah. exciting. That's where I, I was saying that has yeah. pop appeal yeah. because it's going to be fun for yeah. people to, to yeah. look at really tongue in cheek. Like, oops, mm-hmm. you might want to think yeah, about we were, this one. <laughs> yeah. We were sharing some of those. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, 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 it is profound. It's, it's relationship chemistry. So mm-hmm. you can use these keys and these gene keys to read relationship chemistry. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, my team and I are kind of writing that one and creating it. Um, is a lot of is, is a lot of insights have come, and we're we're going to show it as a sort of a bit tongue in cheek, but also it's profound. Yes. So we're showing like a specific chemistry. If you think about you know any relationship, there's a third component which is the chemistry itself, and the chemistry has its own intelligence. It's neither you or that one. It's created in the interference kind of field of the two of you, and how you kind of surrender and understand and work with that chemistry and finally bring harmony out of it is is a lifelong process in any relationship. So it's fun because you can you'll be able to look and we've given them all names and they're funny names as well. Yeah. We've given them like shadow names, which are horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and we've given them really beautiful, ecstatic, kind of wild names. I love it. Yeah. I can't wait till that comes out. Yeah. I've already told people that you my few friends, yeah. they're gonna do it. They yeah. can't wait for the app. But it's interesting because when we were talking a couple weeks ago, you said out of this, there, there are like 21 major connection points that people have that show you can have a soul connection, mm-hmm. an intellectual connection, emotional, mm-hmm. physical, mm-hmm. and so on. But that out of all of those, the holy grail that people in the Western world look for is romance. Yeah. Only three of the 21. potential 21 connections are actually romantic by nature. Yeah. And even if you find one, they're really hard to manage. because it requires distance it requires that you maintain the longing you know so you have so you can fall in love with someone but the more familiar you become if you don't maintain that longing you lose the beauty of the relationship i love the nuance yeah so yeah it's really and and there are different types of longing as well so yeah you're right The, the thing we're looking for is actually it's not it's quite rare it's quite rare <laughs> and it requires distance yeah, so yeah. there you go so one other thing because uh, we have just a couple minutes left i wanted to say is i was doing gene keys maybe a year or so ago mm-hmm. with a couple of my female friends and what i found so interesting is that we were go- as we were going through our primary keys it was so easy for women and, and i found this sense women to see their shadow oh yeah i do that mm-hmm. i do that but harder for women to see the gift. Now, this goes with societal conditioning, historical conditioning, mm-hmm. ancestral conditioning. And even if you look at serotonin levels, mm-hmm. white men have the highest serotonin levels. Mm-hmm. Everybody else has lower levels. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting because we were able to say, wait a minute, you can't see this beauty mm-hmm. in yourself. And so doing it together was kind mm-hmm. of fun because we were validating each other's gifts that we may not have been seeing. Yeah. And so that's, that was the beauty in the group work. Yeah. And it's what you see. It's what I see a lot in the Gene Keys global community yeah. is, um, the women get there quicker generally mm-hmm. because they're willing to look at the shadows. The men are a little bit more ten- tentative about that. Not all of them, of course. Um, but generally, um, 
it's hard. That's why the men go for the pearl. Yeah, where are my power you know? keys? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, you got to bring the men, I, yeah. and I, you know, I'm obviously one of them. So I might. One of my missions is to bring the men down into the emotional realm, so that they actually do start to unlock those patterns. Because then, you know, they become just a much more holistic kind of happier being. Yeah, you know, and they and they they don't have to hide in addictive work tendencies or whatever it is that they hide in. Right. You know, they actually into they come integrated. This is an work. important mission, yeah. by the way. Huge. Very important. Yeah. So that females and males can integrate emotionally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's important. Yeah. Because <laughs> the women have been saying forever, where are the men? Where, where are, are the, the men? really not the fluffy new age men, the no. really deep gutsy men who've done their bloody work. Exactly. You know, where are they? Yeah. <laughs> So I'm, my mission is to kind of help more men get to that. Good for you. Yeah. Okay, so I and so we're out of time here. I just want to say the last time uh, I had you on camera here was so many years ago. It's a new audience. It was we were trying to figure it out six or seven years ago in London, mm. and you had this shock of long red hair at the yeah, time. My Jesus face. Yeah, your Jesus <laughs> face. Yeah, <laughs> aligning with your your potency. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so anyway. Uh, we, you went through some of those things at that time, but your work has evolved. You've evolved. Gaia has evolved. We've evolved. So, and you have a new audience here. So I'm really happy to introduce people mm, to you. Thank so you. any final thoughts before we sign off? I think, you know, I just say to, you know, people who are watching this, just the thing I said about pausing, um, whether you use the little app or not, just if you can harvest a few more pauses in your everyday life and you, and, and just kind of see them, what magic jumps into yeah. them. I think you're going to find, you know, your life starts to take a new course. I absolutely believe that you. simple. That's why I got it in 100, under 100 pages. It's that simple. Love it. Yeah. So, so uh, that's our, okay, Art of Contemplation, Triple Flame, triple in, the flame. in the App Store. And then we've got the Relationship Flame coming up yeah. Yeah, some months in the future. Yeah. And, of course, the, the main work is the Gene Keys. Yes. So, Richard, okay. thank you so much. Thank I know you. we're going to continue doing more in the future here on Gaia. So uh, thank you for coming back and joining me once again. Yeah, thank you for having me. Again, you can go to genekeys.com and pull up your free profile if you haven't already. From there, you can enter into deeper study via video classes and much more. It's a worthy endeavor with wonderful global community to support you and join in with. Again, genekeys.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. That was worth re-listening to. I think we did listen mm-hmm. to that once before. Wow. Uh, GeneKeith.com, everybody. And um, mm-hmm. all right, we'll take a little moment here uh, to uh, mm. get ready for the next piece section. We'll look at the stars with Richard and uh, Tanya Gabrielle and Kay uh, Pacha and music. Mm. Until we get there, we'll be right back about 10 minutes or so. Namaste, everyone. Namaste. Thank you for your time and togetherness. That's the talkie stick to you, Richard. All right. Thank you. We ran a little long on the music because Tanya's only got a five-minute show tonight. But Kaipacha is going to be like 35 minutes, so he's kind of uh, (coughs) long-winded tonight. Anyway, here's what I'd like to bring to your attention.
attention tonight. Mercury is direct. Venus is direct. Mars is direct. The sun and moon never go retrograde. So, what you got here? Now, I... Since I do this at 9 p.m. Eastern, I put up 9 p.m. Eastern chart here. But here's here's the thing. The distance between Mars at 14 degrees Libra and Pluto at uh, 29 degrees Capricorn is about 105 degrees. Now, 105 degrees is about five hours, all right? The sun, sun moves through a 30-degree arc in two hours, all right? So, if you take the condition of the sun... Five. Uh, if you take the if you take the situation where the sun is up and Mars is rising about an hour and a half after the sun, all the outer planets are below the horizon. All right. So daytime from late morning when Pluto is not risen in the east yet, you've got all the inner planets or energies overhead. And all the outer planets are below the horizon. So you've got Mars at 14 Libra. You've got the sun is at... uh, what is that, 24 Virgo, Mercury's at 9 Virgo, Venus is at 16 Leo, and Mars is at 13 Libra. So during the day, most of the day, all the outer planets were protected by the body of Earth. Right, it's below the horizon. Now the opposite, the opposite is uh, the case at night. So you've got oh, you've got about uh, 25 degrees between Venus and Mercury, and Mercury to the Sun is about 12 degrees, and Sun to Mars is about 20 degrees. And, of course, the moon tonight happens to be conjunct Mars in Libra. So, nighttime, well, let's see here. In about two hours, Uranus is going to rise above the horizon in the east. And that leaves about a four- or five-hour time frame where all the outer planets are overhead in your sky wherever you might be okay 
So night times, say from 11 o'clock p.m. onward, all the inner planets are below the horizon. So you've got a very different energy mix day or night. Okay? So keeping that in mind, you know, it's a good thing we've got the earth below our feet to protect us or give us a break from these planetary influences. So that's you know, that's the thing that, that sticks out right now in uh in the astrological situation as I'm looking at it tonight. Yeah. Yeah, Venus is Venus is direct in Leo. Mars Venus so Venus rises first before dawn. Then Mercury rises, then the sun rises, and then Mars rises afterwards. And and then the moon will rise after that. So that's your that's your daytime situation. Now even late in the morning after Mars has risen, Jupiter and Uranus are at that point an hour or two hours in the western sky about to set below the horizon. So that's the situation here. All right. All right, then. That's the situation report. The uh, Venus, Venus sextile Mars... Venus square Jupiter, that's still going on. Uh, Mercury is opposite Neptune, and the Sun is opposite, uh, excuse me, Mercury is opposite Saturn, and the Sun is opposite Neptune. And uh, Pluto is uh, trining Uranus, but Uranus is retrograde. But even that is... uh, not a whole big of a deal because those outer planets are all moving so slow. It's like Pluto is less than a second of arc per day. Uranus is less than a second of arc per day. You know, so all those from Jupiter out there are all still moving super slow and retrograde. All right then, I'm done. For now. Back to you, Rama. Okay. Okay. Here we go. with the weekly Paley report. Uh, this one is for August 13th of 2023. 
got some teepees here. We've got some yurts. Got some domes. Got it all going on at Lake Wakana. We're here at the uh, Cadiz, Spain for a workshop on how to find love, peace, and harmony in an increasingly hostile world. And that involves healing, healing from the trauma and the stress of this hostile environment that we're dealing with these days. And I'm going to talk about that because the sun is in Virgo, Mercury's in Virgo, the moon has moved into Virgo, it's opposing Saturn as I speak, it's going to be coming up to conjoin with Mercury before we have a new moon at 21 degrees 59 minutes of Virgo. She's going to keep on moving into Libra by Friday. And on Friday, hallelujah, Mercury goes direct. <laughs> Has this been like one of the hardest retrograde Mercuries you've ever had or what? It certainly has for me, I'll tell you. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Anyway, yeah. Then we're going to have Mercury, Venus, and Mars all moving direct. So we're going to feel a shift. I, I, I predict a big shift happening on Saturday. Uh, Venus, now direct, is doing her last square to Jupiter. Okay. And that moon is going to come up to uh, conjoin with Mars also on Saturday. So with Venus finishing her square to Jupiter, with Mercury turning direct, the moon moving out of Virgo into Libra, starting a new moon. It's going to be a start of a new cycle, and I'm going to be talking about that shortly after that. And in fact, we could even say that this new moon is opposite Neptune. Yeah, Neptune's over there at 26 degrees in Pisces. You know, uh, this new moon is at you know almost 22 degrees. So that is uh, clearly, uh, you know, uh, in orb for an opposition. And I'm going to be talking about that a little bit, along with Mars that is moving through Libra, is coming into an inconjunct with Jupiter. So Venus square Jupiter, Mars inconjunct Jupiter, and Moon moving on through Libra into Scorpio by next Monday. We're going to have that Moon going into Scorpio. And then it's going to have a T-square. It's going to oppose Jupiter and Uranus and square Venus, which would be very interesting. So let me look at the camera and explain what all that astro babble means. <laughs> all right, everybody. Where to begin? Where to begin? Well, first of all, I wanted to get those cows in the background. But uh, they're so small, I guess you may not even be able to see them. Sorry about that. But they're very inspiring. Cows. Cows are amazing and beautiful to me. And they're very cosmic beings. They're horns, actually, all horned. Animals receive cosmic energies down through their horns. Yeah, Steiner talks about it with anthroposophy. 
That's why you do your biodynamic preparations in a horn of a cow and you bury it and there's all types of uh, um, processes around that. They are so peaceful. They are so still. They are so slow. And they really digest with their four stomachs. And Virgo rules digestion. Yes, Virgo rules integration. Virgo rules separating the wheat from the chaff. Yes, it's critical. It's analytical. This is a time for purging. This is a time for your body cleanses, your liver cleanse, your kidney cleanse, your colon cleanse. Go for it. (laughs) This moon coming around, closing up this cycle. Since this uh, new moon, we're in this balsamic phase. So today I'm teaching about, you know, all about trauma. Yes, we're taking the different planets that have to do with trauma. Uh, through the different signs, aspecting the different personal planets, uh, because this, you know, healing uh, is a process of releasing trauma, of letting go of that trauma, and even our mantra for this week has also to do with this process of healing, this process of letting go of the trauma. And the fact is that we are all traumatized because trauma is the result of either a sudden impact of intense energy, okay, that is just overwhelming to the individual at any given time in their life. And it can be sudden or it can be prolonged. So prolonged conditions of stress create a traumatic response in the body and in the emotional body and in the mental body, the astral body, the psychic body. And these are all in your chart, right? These are all, we can look at these with transits particularly of the outer planets. Yes, Jeffrey Wolf Green wrote a whole big thing on the trauma of the outer planets. Saturn has to do with physical trauma. Pluto has to do with emotional trauma. Uranus has to do with mental trauma. And Neptune has to do with psychic spiritual trauma. And we have these planets going through, right, the transits, transiting your natal planets, perhaps, and, you know, bringing up situations, bringing up conditions. For the planet, they're really, you know, bringing up, of course, what? Pluto is moving into Aquarius. And so this, you know, this age of Aquarius that we're entering, okay, and Pluto coming into Aquarius for the next 20 years, okay, right on the cusp is opening up, okay, that there is this emotional, Pluto is this emotional attachment, and Aquarius, of course, is non-attachment, and it's science, and it's technology, and it's the future, and it's very impersonal. And so we have this movement towards, yes, this Pluto moving into Aquarius that is revolutionizing 
Yes, all of our uh, environment having to do with cell phone towers and Starlink, uh, you know, uh, satellites and, you know, the whole technology craze, okay, you know, is affecting particularly Gaia. We have a planet under stress and all beings on her are therefore under stress. Those cows are under stress. The bees are under stress. Okay. Uh, the birds, the animals, the forests, yes, the whole environment, human beings collectively and individually are under stress. We are all getting stressed out and traumatized. Okay, through all of the advances of technology and science that are occurring right now. Yeah. And let's not forget, Aquarius has to do with the atmosphere. It has to do with the climate. And so our latest, you know, craze now is the climate crisis. And how much the climate crisis or climate change actually has to do with human impact or our carbon footprint is still debatable. Yes, but that does that has not stopped certain world organizations and governmental organizations for taking steps. Okay, to really implement. Okay, and. Uh, basically extend their power, overreach their government power, right, into projects and into means and ways of measuring your carbon footprint and then coming up with uh, you know, a carbon tax and coming up with da-da-da-da and other ways and means of limiting our freedom. I don't want to get too political with this. I just want to bring up, okay, this this uh, statement, okay, and this condition, okay, that we are all facing and that we are all confronting as Pluto moves into Aquarius, right, that we will be affected and we will be in ways traumatized, yes, by the the ever-advancing artificial intelligence and all of the computer technology and all of the impacts that that has on our environment, on our physical bodies, our emotional bodies, and our mental bodies. Now, this week in particular, the sun is coming into an opposition with Neptune. And Neptune in Pisces in the 12th house has to do with spiritual, psychic trauma, And that trauma is one of disillusionment, where our ideals, our hopes, our wishes, our dreams, our innocent longings for love and beauty and protection and oneness and togetherness are not realized in whole, in full, or in complete. Yes, and this process of disillusionment is an extremely difficult psychic process, okay? It's like a dissolving of a reality, a dissolving of a hope, of a dream, of a future that brings us to a Saturnian reality. 
to a Virgoian earthly reality that is that we need to work, that we need to eat, that we need to exercise, that we need to put forth effort, that we are individual, unique, separate beings. And we have to kind of come out of this dream, come out of this fog, come out of this innocence into realizing our own unique individual path. And the opposition, the opposition always has to do with relationship. It has to do with projection. It has to do with a transformation. It's a threshold experience. The 180 degree aspect is this threshold experience of coming from being the individual into partnership and relationship. Not losing ourselves in partnership and relationship and other people's needs, other people's wants, other people's desires, but not holding ourselves back and resisting participation in relationship and partnership. So it's kind of not too much relationship, not too little relationship, but again, walking that fine line of balance where I don't lose my essence, I don't lose my son, I don't lose my solar purpose in this relationship. Okay. But I do form relationship with something outside of myself to, to enhance, to evolve, to impact, to have an effect, to have a greater impact on my, on my world. So there is this whole dance with relationship and partnership. And what I want to get into a little bit with this Neptune sun opposition is what I call premature forgiveness. You know, there is this kind of innocent, naive, childish um, approach towards when we are hurt, when someone wounds us, when someone abuses us or violates us or manipulates us or exploits us or steals from us or just hits us over the head. <laughs> Okay, you know, or steals from us. Okay, I, I mean, it comes in many different ways. Yes, and we are traumatized as a result of that. And so part of this trauma, part of this healing process is forgiveness. And it is having compassion and understanding the other person that, yes, they had a bad day. Or they're homeless and they're flat broke, so they broke into my house and they they took some of my money. But you know that you know that's you know their that, that's their uh, that's their plight. And as a spiritual person, I'm I'm going to open my heart and I'm going to forgive and forget. And I'm going to allow and accept the situation. Da, 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 da. This can go on in very, very many different ways, shapes, and forms, okay? This can go on with uh, child abuse, okay? Uh, abusive parents, abusive uh, partners or spouses, or even, you know, the police or the government or whatever. Just, you know, letting people off the hook prematurely. Oh, he was drunk. He didn't know what he was doing. He's really a good person. And we, and we have ways of just, you know, letting things slide, letting things go. 
But I want to say that when we do this prematurely, yes, there is a gap in the healing process. It can't happen wholly, fully, and completely because we have not really taken in the full impact of that event, of that transgression. Yes. And and as much as there may be reasons for or excuses for, you know, this situation or that situation, the fact remains, right? The fact remains that a baby, okay, needs tender, loving care. And when it does not receive tender, loving care, okay, there is, you know, it, it, it can affect its whole future, its whole psyche, its whole, uh, you know, energetic field. And, and so it's up to the parents, okay, to provide this safe, secure environment. And when the parents don't provide a safe, secure environment, they have done a misdeed. They have done an injustice. They have done something that we could say is wrong. Yeah, and I know we get into right and wrong, and it's not right to judge and this, that, and the other thing. But um, the fact is that we have to judge, <laughs> that, that life and every decision is a series of judgments. We can't live without judgment. And there is right and wrong in the physical world. There is life affirming, and there is life threatening. Life affirming, we can say, is right, and life threatening, we can say, is wrong. So when they dump, uh, you know, all kinds of chemicals on your food, okay, it is not life affirming, and we can say that that is wrong. When 5G cell towers, okay, shoot out, you know, EMFs, you know, at these cows and uh, the bees and everything, it's not life affirming. We can say it's wrong. It is wrong. There are wrong things that happen. And it's important. And Virgo says, you know, analyze this. Put it under the microscope. Really look at what happened. Scorpio is also good at this. We want the truth. Dig it up. Investigate it. Get down to the bottom of the roots. Who done it? Okay. This is very important. Yes. And it's, and the, what I'm thinking of, the important part, of course, that, you know, this mantra addresses today and this new moon in Virgo can address is that until I fully accept the reality of how deeply I have been affected, that I have been impacted, that this went down to my second chakra and my root chakra, and it, you know, and it did subconscious, unconscious, uh, you know, changes and created fears and insecurities in me, that only 40 years later I am realizing the, you know, the results of some of those fears and insecurities that resulted from that one little event. And it's not little anymore. It's big. So I think letting people off the hook with premature forgiveness, yes, is a way of diminishing 
what happened to us. It's, it's, it's a way of not fully acknowledging how important we are, how important our health is, how valuable our life is. And, and so it's a way of not affirming ourselves, but rather, oh, that's okay, that's okay, I, you know, I can take it, I can manage, I can handle it, you, 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 you know, I'm bigger than that, or I'm spiritual, and I'm, you know, I have a big heart, and it's okay. Now, this, this is not spiritual, okay, this is denial. And it can also come in forms of avoidance. I want to avoid the conflict. I want to avoid talking to my father about what he said when I was five years old. Or my mother about what she did when I was ten. I want to avoid this conversation, okay, you know, with my sweetheart, you know, my beloved. Because we're, you know, uh, we're planning out, you know, some beautiful experience. And I don't want to, you know, rock the boat, or tip the apple cart, or I, I, I'm not going to, you know, press charges, you know, uh, you know, on this person because I'm, I don't want to go through all the, the, the I, so there's all kinds of excuses, ways and means of avoiding confrontation, of not really looking at the stark reality that yes, I have been traumatized and I need to heal that trauma. And part of that healing is acknowledging. And then, after I see it, I own it and I bring it to you and you own your part in it. And we both do this acknowledgement. It comes into consciousness. And then... I can release it. Then I can let it go. Then it's not going to come back. When we when we forgive prematurely, when we let people off the hook and we just go, "Oh, that's okay. I forgive you. It's over." You know, and we do a little fire ceremony or we do a little baptismal thing and we just, "Okay, psh, you know, I let that go down the river." Not necessarily. I'm sorry. Yeah. You may have let a little piece of it go down the river. You may have burned off a little piece of it in your fire ceremony. But until the full gravity and the full weight of that experience is felt emotionally. There's the key. I'm doing the astrology of water. Yeah. In the Bahamas. Yes, next week, uh, a couple weeks from now, the last week in September, the astrology of water. I'm going to be talking about the astrology of water here, okay? And I'm, I'm doing another workshop in Florida on Pluto, Scorpio, the eighth house of water. These water houses and water planets, the moon, Pluto, and Neptune, yes? This water element, this emotional reality is our truth. It is where we are, where we exist as human beings is in our emotional bodies, not in our thoughts, ideas, projections, our head, our imagination, our hopes, 
No, 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 no. Our emotions is where we are. So we want to come into our bodies and our emotions. It's interesting that earth and water are feminine in astrology. Yeah. So we want to come into our feminine. We want to come into our bodies. We want to come into our feelings. We want to come into our emotions and accept the reality of what, of what we are really feeling. And then, then we can go forward into the fire and air. Then we can go forward into the future. Then we can move, okay, into this age of Aquarius. So, yeah, you know, we, we, we want to be careful with this sun opposite uh, Neptune that we uh, that we we take off those rose colored glasses and it may involve disillusionment. It may involve a situation of, OK, wow, that's you're not who I thought you were or that's not what I thought it was or that was a lie. And I thought it was truth. And I hung my coat on the wrong hook, uh, you know, and but really feel it. Take it in and then, then you can move on. Then you can heal. Yeah. And we can make this new moon in Virgo all about this healing process. We can make it all about letting go of trauma, letting go of the conditioning, the patterning, the past, so that it's like, you know, we can be like an onion that's getting peeled, 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 or an apple peeled, or a banana peeled, and we are emerging, yes, our core, our truth, our unique self, the sun, (laughs) will be rising out of Virgo into Libra, ready to embrace relationship and partnership by the next Pele report. (laughs) Yeah. I tell you, time is flying by. Wow. And so, uh, you know, Mars in conjunct Jupiter. Again, this is a Virgo aspect, 150 degrees. And the 150 degree quincunx in conjunct aspect is, again, about adjustment. And that adjustment is that the heavier planet, Jupiter, okay, wants to, you know, uh, hold on to Mars and Mars needs to break free, break out of Jupiter. Yeah. So Jupiter wants to expand and keep expanding and keep expanding, just like the United States, just like the United Nations, just like <laughs> just like every other whatever corporation and, you know, greedy, capitalistic, whatever. Right. <laughs> but. Mars, this is breaking out of that. Yes, it's that Virgo phase that says, oh, no, it's not about eternal expansion. Yes, just like with breathing, we can only inhale so much before it's time to exhale. Yes, every cycle expands and comes back into contraction. So Mars needs to break out. So this can be a time, what, sun opposite Neptune, Mars in conjunct Jupiter, this can be a time that says, hold your horses, slow down, uh, you know, uh, don't bite off more than you can chew. This is this is a time of being, you know, very awake, very aware. OK. And saying, no, you know, this, I, I'm I'm only capable of this much. I'm not going to overspend, overextend, overcommit, you know, pretend or uh, deny or avoid. I mean, Vir- Virgo is just all about reality. 
<laughs> and then Venus, its final uh, square to Jupiter. It was uh, the, it first came up and squared Jupiter at five degrees back in June. Went retrograde at 15 degrees, squared Jupiter again, August 22nd. And now it's coming back for the third breakaway. Yes? So it is time. Yes? It's time to like really take our relationships to the next level with truth, honesty, clarity, reality. This Venus wants to like really have, okay, this beautiful, expansive, honest, true, natural law, natural truth, you know, in touch with the cows and the earth and nature and the ground. Yes. And set with the sunset and rise with the sunrise. Yeah. So she is, you know, breaking out. And that breaking out is, again, breaking free from the past. So I want to encourage you. We're doing a cacao ceremony, a fire ceremony. You know, we are. This is a good time for letting go of traumas, conditioning, patterning, past uh, events, relationships, occurrences that have happened in your life in preparation for. Yeah, Venus is going to break free. Sun's going to break into Libra. Mars is going to, you know, uh, liberate itself from Jupiter. The sun's going to move past Neptune opposition. And yeah, it's like it's it's like springtime and it's time to take off the winter fur coat. And at first it's kind of like, oh, well, it's kind of cold or chilly or, you know, that coat was comfy, warm. and But, you know, golly, you're going to be glad you did. <laughs> so the mantra for this week. Yes. Forgiving is part of the process of healing when I've been hurt. But helping others to own their part is one thing that has to come first. So I just went through that whole process. Right? There is the acknowledgement of how important I am, of how uh, how my feelings, how my body, how my mind, how my spirit has been impacted in a negative way that has, you know, clamped me or held me or limited me or, uh, you know, just denied my truth, my reality, that that has to be owned. And then it has to be put back out where it was. It's very often a projection. Yes. Someone projects something onto us. Oh, you're rich. So I can steal from you. Okay. Oh, you know, oh, you're pure. Okay. So I want to, you know, invade your temple or, oh, you're the, 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 so it is, it's also, you know, putting back, taking ownership. Yeah. So this is that Mars also, Mars stepping into, yes, that in conjunction with Jupiter is going, and of course it's in Libra. Yeah. Other people. And Libra is also open enemies. It's not just partners and lovers. It's business relationships. And it is, you know, enemies. It's the, it's the other. So this is a time of, you know, 
honest, you know, dialogue, yeah, intentional dialogue, clear dialogue about who's doing who to what and da 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 and what's mine and what's yours and and then we can move on. Yeah. In clarity. In a healthy way. So one last time. Yeah. Forgiving is part of the process of healing when I've been hurt. But helping others to own their part is one thing that has to come first. So I encourage you this week, take up the sword, take up the shield, take up the cause, and (laughs) help everybody own their stuff. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Ago, I wanted to just uh, tell you about what I mentioned in the report, the astrology of water and Pluto, Scorpio, and the eighth house. Two workshops coming up. Uh, the first one, the last week of September, and then in the Bahamas and in Florida, Daytona Beach, on the beach. Okay, we're going to be really delving deep into um, um, uh, two different workshops. Uh, look for the full description at the link underneath uh, the notes here. But um, there's a couple of spots left in each one of them. Uh, the one is a little more intense. I'm with Brandy Joy in Daytona Beach. Uh, she will be bringing Tantra and emotional release, and we will really be delving deep into the mysteries of the eighth house. With the Bimini Bahamas, we'll be swimming with dolphins. It will be a lot lighter. We'll be jumping off the boat and just, um, yeah, having a, a real blast uh, and uh, doing some yoga and astrology along with our uh, dolphin connection. So I look forward to seeing you at either one of those events. You gotta sign up right away though because they are right around the corner. I'm jumping on a plane next week. Pass the talkie stick back to you, Richard. <laughs> okay then, uh, as we go through the week ahead, the moon is going to finish going through Libra and opposing Chiron in Aries, and then it's going to move into Scorpio, and it's going to oppose Uranus and Jupiter, and then it's going to go through Sagittarius, Gemini happens to be empty at this time, and then next Saturday we'll have the moon in Capricorn opposite Cancer. So everybody have a good week, and uh, stay safe, and watch out for the crazy drivers if you have to get on the road, because that's always a problem. And (laughs) namaste. Namaste. Namaste, Richard. Thank you so much, and have a good night's rest. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Namaste. All right. Tanya Gabrielle, let's let it roll. Ah. Okay. Hello, 
there, it's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to your weekly Astro Numerology Forecast. So in this forecast, we focus on selected events in the astrology, numerology, and the forecast is for all signs. So let's begin with the first important event, and there are two really big ones this week. The first one is the new moon in Virgo, which happens on the 14th of September, and the moon is opposite Neptune, and the sun is opposite Neptune, and Neptune rules Pisces, which is the sign opposite Virgo. So, yeah, this is a big one because we just had the Pisces full moon on August 30th, 31st. And so now you're going to start the forward momentum again, especially with Mercury stationing direct the following day, September 15th. You're starting the forward momentum with a call to harmony between your natural inclination to be practical with Virgo and your intuitive heart-centered space of divine knowing without research, which is Pisces. So you want to trust in the methodical nature of planning, being meticulous, while also tuning into your heart, your intuition. And simplicity is really the key here with this opposition to Neptune because you're very impressionable, so you want to take some timeouts, not work too hard, allow the spiritual in nature to inspire you. Virgo is an earth sign, and Virgo wants you to step on earth, preferably barefoot, and feel that grounding energy. And if you feel something is off with another person, this is an opposition after all, then exit the discussion and wait until you feel more clear and are maybe not caught up in some of the emotional drama that can happen with an opposition to Neptune. Now, the moon and sun are trying to Uranus, and that frees you up, makes you more flexible about change. It's a wonderful day to just be open to exciting experiences. The moon and sun are also trying to Pluto, and that really empowers you. It's a beautiful connection because Pluto brings that sense of transformation, the acceptance of change and creating a rebirth. And this is a new moon. New moons are the beginning. They are the birthing of energy. So this is a a beautiful, supportive astrological transit to help with that birthing process. Jupiter's conjunct to Uranus. That's a big one. This is in Taurus, another earth sign, just like Virgo. And this is a very fortunate transit for lucky breaks, moving forward, unexpected windfalls. So you can enjoy that as well. Now, like I said, it's a big week. On the 15th, the following day, Mercury, the ruler of Virgo and the ruler of that new moon, stations direct. So it's at a standstill during the new moon and then starts moving, well, a little bit, teeny bit on the 15th, but then slowly moving forward. In Virgo, and it stations direct at eight degrees, which is the number of empowerment, the number of infinity, and it really helps you because of the placement near the new moon as well to feel inspired again, to move forward and accept any unexpected shifts that will be coming our way or already coming our way in September, which is a 16 universal month. And this is very important to then tune in and still keep releasing those old patterns that may be preventing you from accepting that transformation and that change. And then finally, on the 17th, we have Venus square Jupiter. And that means you're just 
open to explore optimism in a new way. It's a great transit for friendships, taking part in pleasurable events. Just don't be extravagant, right? Jupiter can blow things up. This is a square with, with Venus. Venus loves pleasure. So you want to just hold in, like don't overspend or overeat or overdo anything. Focus on harmony and beautifying your life. Now, to help you with this energy of Venus, which ends the week, I have a free masterclass on Venus and Mars with the divine feminine infusing our lives more and more and more, that mother goddess energy. And we cover Venus and Mars, the great awakening of the divine feminine, sacred masculine in venusmarscode.com. Like I said, it's free. You'll discover the important meanings of letters V and M for Venus and Mars, the five-pointed star of Venus, the 13 cycles of Venus, what they mean, how they line up to the 13 cycles of the moon, the secrets of the Mayan calendar, and so much more. So enjoy that free masterclass at venusmarscode.com. Have a beautiful week, and I will see you in next week's podcast. really good sudden windfall Nathara now everybody oh my goodness all right well we're going to uh, go back to um, our conference call and Rama's going to give us the numbers uh, 720-716-7301 and the pin code is 353863-POUND. Okay. And let's see, one more time, Ram. 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353863-POUND. So we'll see you there, and we'll be right back here at BBS Radio at the top of the following hour. There's much about everything going on in the world to bring us to some more awareness and joy and harmony and bliss. How's that? All right. See you at the conference, everyone. Namaste for now. Uh, a special way to end that? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> oh my gosh, everyone. What's the name of that? And people want to look at the dancer. Adi Shakti. The letter I and then Shakti, S-H-A-K-T-I. Yeah. Uh, and, and is that by somebody? Um. I just Sada Satkar. Wait, spell that. S A G A S A T S A G A S A D A S A D as in David A S A T S A T as in Tom T 
K-A-U-R. K-A-U-R. It's one of the Sikh sisters. And it's the letter I and then Shakti, right? S-A-D-I. A-D-I and then the word Shakti. Oh. A-D-I. Okay. Adi Shakti. Yes. Okay. Adi Shakti, S-H-A-K-T-I at the end. A-D as in David, I-S-H-A-K-T-I. I'm just passing it on to you if you would like to watch the dancer. It's amazing. The fluidity of the body is astounding. Mm-hmm. And it's it's talking about the divine feminine. And I think that's very healing and nurturing. So we will go on now since we all enjoyed these two amazing physicists, uh, Nassim and... Yeah, Dr. Teresa Ballard, me. we're going to give another dose of Dr. Ballard to everyone. Yeah, I'm getting there. Uh, yes, sir, I'm always going to give you the time because I'm going to read this, darling. Mm. Yes, so, so it's called The Alchemy of Science and Spirituality, The <gasps> Power Within with Dr. Teresa Ballard. Uh, Teresa Ballard, Ph.D., Author, world-renowned speaker, mystery school instructor, host of Mystery Teachings on Gaia TV. How do science and spirituality, uh, Penny was asking the same thing, math and music. Math is the science of music, if you want to put it that way. The science of the universe. Okay, so science and spirituality work together to expand consciousness, personally and collectively leading us to accomplish the great work. The power is within. Magic is real. The tools are available. Our role is to acknowledge the eternal um, essence that unifies and lifts us beyond egoic perspectives and excuses to align with the flow With the flow of 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 cosmos and manifest heaven on earth. Our guest considers it her primary role to remind us that the power resides within. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ballard was raised to keep an open mind and explore the nature of existence without indoctrination in any one system. After focusing her education on physics and earning a doctorate in that field, she felt moved to balance out her highly intellectual life and turned her attention from physics to metaphysics, studying Jung, New Thought, and Alchemy, synchronistically led Dr. Ballard to, quote, life activation sessions, which in turn led her to one comprehensive path taught through the new mystery school. Here she found powerful applications for activating the inner plane and catalyzing shifts that brought pieces of her search together into an accelerated journey of empowered living to be continued in part two with Dr. Ballard. 
Okay, so here we go. This is part one. Hour and 56 seconds. Let's start. Check this out. This special homemade drink got me performing like I did in my 20s. You've probably heard that once you get older, the spark. My guest today is Dr. Teresa Bullard. Dr. Bullard has her PhD in physics from the University of Washington and uses her knowledge of physics to explain and apply consciousness in a rather unique way. She does so through the ancient teachings and the lineage of King Solomon, which is part of the Western esoteric spiritual tradition. Dr. Bullard has a deep knowledge and training in the Western esoteric mystery school, which has long blended science and spirituality towards understanding the relationship between consciousness and matter. Dr. Bullard is featured on Gaia TV and hosts her own podcast where she teaches principles and applications of metaphysics, physics, and consciousness. Dr. Bullard, welcome to the conversation. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure's all mine. I was a big fan of your mom, and I'm looking forward to finding all about your work. It seems like you have done an amazing job up there, so I want to dive right into it. And So many of the guests that I have on this program present their research in all things sci and metaphysical, and it usually begins with their training in science. And you pursued your career doing experimental research in neutrino physics, atomic physics, quantum physics. I'm really curious to know how you got going in the field of metaphysics and the things that you teach now, like Kabbalah. How did that happen for you? Yeah, it's been quite a journey. Um, There's two major pieces to it. Number one, you know, my mother, uh, Barbara Bullard, who was into things like the Monroe Institute, exploring consciousness, Edgar Casey studies. So I grew up with um, a lot of exposure, let's say. And so I, I was I was raised to have an open mind uh, to begin with. There was never my parents never really like imposed upon any of us, what their belief system was. So they really just let us explore. Only when we asked questions, would they then share their own ideas and and beliefs about things. And so, um, so I think, you know, just from being exposed, uh, it it prepared me for the openness to the possibilities. Mm -hmm. But when I was young, I, uh, especially as a teenager, I wasn't really into the woo woo. Uh, I was very, I was very practical, very grounded, you know, sports, academics, pursue the, you know, the career in academia. Um, And I ultimately worked my way into science. Uh, I started off with wanting to do astronomy, Mm -hmm. which then um, the the university I chose, University of Denver to begin with, uh, said, well, we don't really have astronomy as major, but you could do physics and then go on to graduate school and do astrophysics. And so that's um, kind of what I did, although I went into neutrino physics in graduate school to begin with. And um, while I was in my second year, so I was very much immersed into the left brain scientific way of, of approaching things. Um, I always had this sort of spiritual philosophy, just kind of a mishmash. You know, I explored a lot. Uh, I didn't really gravitate towards any one tradition or religion or path or way of viewing things. I kind of picked the pieces that really felt right. right. And that it just informed my background philosophy and outlook of life. And then when I um, went into graduate school, though, I went from just sort of it was always there mm-hmm. to all of a sudden I only had 
physics. It was 80 hours a week and I couldn't think of anything else because I didn't have time for anything else. <laughs> so it was just left brain, 80 hours between classes, research, homework, testing, like all of this. And after my first year of being immersed in that world um, at such a high level, I I found myself very out of balance uh, after a year. And it, it sent me into a a bit of a depression. Right. Um, there was a part of me like that was really essential that became starved because uh, it wasn't being fed or nourished. And so then that set me on, um, and, and then graduate school ended up not being what I was hoping it would be. So it set me on a journey to discovering what was going to bring the balance and meaning back in. And I brought all these different aspects of life back in. I brought in the sports. I brought in social time. I brought in creative hobbies. I brought in all these things I had prior. Uh, and, and they all helped. And another year goes by and it's like, okay, well, I feel more balanced, but something key is still missing. And then the, this little voice in my mind kind of came in and it said, well, there's one thing you haven't brought back in. And that one thing is spirituality. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I, I was actually very surprised because I was well indoctrinated into the scientific way of thinking. I was very surprised. Spirituality, really? Could that be it? Mm-hmm. It was the only thing I had to go on at that point. So I dove in and I thought, well, anything I'm going to try and pursue spiritually has to complement or at least not negate what I know to be true scientifically. Right. And so I've been to the research of, of science and consciousness where quantum physics meets Eastern philosophy, you know, whatever I could get my hands on at the time where the two kind of were um, juxtaposed and I fell in love. I, it actually reminded me of why I went into physics in the first place. It was actually maybe a deeper spiritual inspiration to understand the universe. And, um, and yet I forgot about that along the way because we just get into the equations and the derivations and the practicalities of the science. So, um, so that set me on my, my spiritual journey, like where I really started to make it a priority in my life versus it just sort of being there in the background and forming my personal philosophy. It became something that I really made time for and, and dove into and, and knew this is a priority because this brings purpose and meaning into my life. Right. And that is incredibly important for balance. We all have that sense if we pay enough attention. So the Western esoteric tradition wasn't really a part of your upbringing, so to speak, no. but there was an openness to it. So the Kabbalah and what the Western esotericism in general is tailor-made for your mindset, your scientific mindset, especially because of the way that I, I consider it to be a pretty syncretic viewpoint of mm-hmm. the relationship between consciousness and matter, for instance. And, uh, you know, it's very steeped in the Judeo-Christian philosophy while simultaneously applying Jungian archetypes. And so it's, I consider it to be like a psycho-spiritual type of discipline. Would you consider yeah. it the same way? How did you end up finding Kabbalah? Did it fall into your lap? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so as I was, how I got into this path, because yeah, it definitely wasn't part of my upbringing. It was, my upbringing was more, it was metaphysical, but it wasn't a like Western mystery tradition. It wasn't right. that deep. It was more like Wayne Dyer and, you know, some of these guys. Um, Can't get it up anymore. If you suffer from ED, Listen closely because there is a fast and all-natural fix. The truth is, it has nothing to do with genetics or age or your diet or exercise habits or even testosterone levels. Today, Big Pharma makes billions of dollars off ED medication. 
And the way it, yeah, it was synchronicity. The universe guided me to it ultimately. Um, at first I was like starving for community. I, w- I was waking up and, and getting really excited about this exploration of spirituality and physics and, you know, how the two came together in the depths of that. And I wanted to explore and I wanted people to talk to. And I was going to science and consciousness conferences. I came to the Institute. Um, I was going to expos. You know, I was just, I was really trying to find community. I went to church, like church of religious science, uh, for the first time in eight years, you know, I found myself in a church because I was so hungry for community. Mm-hmm. And in all my searching, I wasn't quite finding the depth that I was, you know, that was going to speak to me. Mm-hmm. And so at one point I got really frustrated. My, I was having a conversation with my mom over the phone and I was kind of complaining about how, how alone I felt and how I'm like, I feel like a, a fish out of water. Like I feel like I'm not, you know, fitting in as, you know, cause I can't talk about this in the physics department. Right. It's right. like big no, no. Um, and you know, so I, I was really trying to find community. My mom just said, you know, just put it out there to the university. You want to find your, your family, your spiritual family, your tribe and let it go. <laughs> let that is so Barbara. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then she said, just focus on your qualifying exams and, you know, just, just trust the universe and, and let it go. And I did. So I was like, all right, I can do that. And uh, two weeks later, it only took two weeks before synchronicity brought me to somebody who was connected to the modern mystery school. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was too synchronistic to ignore. Right. And um, so I went and, and had a session called a life activation. And I was asking all kinds of questions during the session. And you know, I could feel the energy and, and whatnot, but it wasn't really what happened during the session as much as what happened afterwards. Mm-hmm. That one session just started a process of unfolding in my life mm-hmm. that I could see real sustaining changes and shifts at an inner plane, um, awareness, self-awareness, and things that, um, you know, choices I was making on a daily basis, what was serving, what wasn't, and so forth. And it just started, it catalyzed, you know, this, these, these shifts over several months worth, uh, where I kept seeing it continuing to, to change. Even four months down the line, I was like able for the first time to put the pieces together that, oh, this is my direction in life. Like I thought, well, I don't, I'm getting this PhD for in physics, but I don't know what I want to do with it. Right. And four months after this life activation, I said, oh, I know what I want to do with this. I want to bring the science and the spirituality together. Mm-hmm. Now I know that I don't need to fit into the standard model in physics, for example. So it's just all these changes and my quality of life really started to improve. And, uh, and, and so I, I had the, this, I'll, I'll kind of take a long story and make it shorter. I had this intuitive call to just take further steps, um, cause I'd seen enough results. And so then I went and I got initiated. Uh, into the modern mystery school where this life activation modality came from. And I took another level of training with them. And from that point forward, it was like my life sped up and everything accelerated. Like, um, and, and then when I was in the training, the initiation training in particular, uh, they were answering questions that I had had my whole life. Mm-hmm. I wasn't like, verbalizing those questions right. but i had seeking answers to them through so much of my search up to that point and never really finding satisfactory answers and all of a sudden these answers were revealing themselves through these teachings and i went oh wow i've never thought of it that way but that really resonates that makes sense and and then it just it went deeper and it went deeper and deeper and for me as a physicist i was always asking questions right so i was i would 
poke at the holes in the teachings and well, what about this and what about that? And how did these two things fit together? You know, and, and so I really challenged them, uh, the, the, my teachers in the mystery school, I challenged them, but in the end, I mean, I just, I just saw that there was a deep, deep well of wisdom and knowledge and tools and practical application mm. that, that we could take into our life that really made a difference and they really worked. And it, it brought the realization to, um, me that magic is real mm-hmm. uh, and that, that there, there are ways, there are tools and techniques for expanding consciousness that have been on the planet for thousands of years that ultimately the power is all within. And so I just, I fell in love with it. And Kabbalah in particular came like Kabbalah, alchemy, hermetics, they all kind of came in around the same time. Right. Well, alchemy and hermetics kind of came in right just prior and then really dove into it through the mystery school. But Kabbalah, I had never heard of it before. Mm-hmm. And this was in 2001. And, you know, I didn't know much about Jewish mysticism or anything. And, and, um, I'd never heard of it before until they mentioned it in this, this initiation training. And every time they mentioned it, I would get a buzz that mm-hmm. what they were saying would fly over to the top of my head. So I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, but, but intuitively I would get a buzz. Like I got to know more. There's something here for me. And so I dove into it. And, and as you said, like it, it, it was like, whoa, this is what I've been looking for. Like this is the template where I can bring the science and the consciousness and the, personal growth and the psycho-spiritual, like everything comes together uh, with Kabbalah and the tree of life. And and then having also had a awakening into alchemy and the alchemical tradition, I saw how the two, you know, lined up mm-hmm. as well. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I fell in love and it's like, oh, there's so much here. There's Would so it much. surprise you to know that you're not alone? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I mention the Kabbalah, somebody's ears perk up. It always mm-hmm. seems to grab some somebody's interest. So I imagine that there's a lot of people listening, know nothing about Kabbalah. So for their benefit, why don't we unpack it a little bit? From your perspective, what is Kabbalah? How do you explain Kabbalah in under five minutes? Mm-hmm. Helen Hatzel was able to win any competition she took part in. She was known as the contest queen because she had won seven trips to Paris, boats, houses. She would basically take part in any sweepstake she read about, any contest, and she would. Well, I can do it in one line for you now. Great. Yep. <laughs> um, one of the ways that we really like to to say what is Kabbalah in, in the mystery school tradition that I study with is it is the study of life. Mm-hmm. And so it has to do with everything that, that, you know, we are, who we are, how, why we're here, what we're here for, um, where we come from, where we're going. Like we're answering some of these big questions about life. And, and then in addition, it's about recognizing that the divine, um, that there is this eternal spiritual essence that is within us. Mm-hmm. And we want to, draw that out. We want to alchemically bring that forward and manifest it more fully into this physical life. Uh, and it gives us lots of practical tools for how we can manifest, how we can harness um, our our potentials and, uh, and live a, f- a very full life uh, with joy, with abundance, with, you know, magic, with all of this uh, to create a heaven on earth type of an experience. So I know exactly what you mean. I thought that was beautifully done, by the way. 
When people ask me what I think about it, I mean, the word Kabbalah obviously means to receive in Hebrew, but that brings up a lot of questions about what are you receiving. So I like to think about Kabbalah as, a, as you said, having to do with life. I add the word relationship. Everything mm-hmm. involved in the study of the tree of life has to do with the relationship of polar opposites and bringing force and form into balance, mm. which is what creates that magic. Mm. That's yeah. the way I think about it. And I think about it on the four levels of existence, the four worlds, as the Kabbalists like to call it, as being different reality structures that are still very personal and impersonal the further you go into these worlds. And we'll unpack that a little mm-hmm. bit later. You said something quite profound about bringing heaven to earth through a relationship to life and an awakening of consciousness and the application of that consciousness. One of the things you often talk about is the shift of a new collective consciousness and humans stepping into their highest potential. I think that you are leaning in that direction with the statement you just made. So let's break that down for the audience. What do you mean by a collective consciousness and what is this higher potential that you're speaking of? Well, so collective consciousness, I mean, we could talk about it from the perspective of like what Carl Jung talks about or the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could talk about it from a perspective of spirit that we are all one as a collective spirit at, at those highest levels from our, our origin of, of eternal kind of essence. Our eternal essence comes from this place of oneness. And we come here, though, into this physical life to have this human experience Right, that we are a spiritual being having a physical experience as a human. And as a humankind, we have a, a kind of a unified field of mind. Even, even some of the quantum physicists, uh, it might have been Schrodinger or, or, um, what, you know, one of these guys, um, that said, you know, we're asked, like, how many minds are there to observe? Right. And, right. and the answer is there's only one mind. Right. And so we are a collective in a way mm-hmm. when we, we are perhaps islands in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we perceive ourselves as, you know, separate, but when you go down deeper, uh, you know, you look at the islands, the islands ultimately connect into the ocean floor and they are connected. They're all one, you know, coming from one earth, mm-hmm. one, um, one body. So. We're sort of, you know, like that. And to, to create a, a leap in collective consciousness and awaken our potentials is about one, recognizing our oneness rather than coming from this separation consciousness and thinking, you know, just from an egoic perspective about who we are. Uh, it's about transcending that illusion of separation and, and raising our consciousness from beyond just this, my personal island for example, into the vastness, into the, the whole. Mm-hmm. And the more we can expand our consciousness beyond just this body um, and into, you know, even beyond, you know, what some people might call an astral body, like we go beyond it from this perspective of just um, identity mm-hmm. to h- higher forms of consciousness, higher dimensions where you, See, I am that, but I'm also so much more. Mm-hmm. The more we can perceive 
um, the, the wholeness and the vastness, the more we come to know ourselves as as God or as divine being, as as eternal. And that is our highest potential to to fully realize that divine self as into this physical that? life to become like not just thinking of ourselves as, well, I'm only human, you know, and I have all these flaws and, you know, I have all these excuses for why I don't, you know, manifest abundance or, you know, accomplish my goals or whatever it is, you know, and and people create all these excuses and limitations. Mm -hmm. When we're manifesting our highest potential and expanding our consciousness, we, we don't have those excuses anymore because we know that we are God. We create our life. We, uh, you know, manifest things out of the quantum field, for example, or from the source. And you, we become did you know that you could get 50 to over $150,000 of investment capital at 0% interest rates to fund any business or investment that you want? That's right. You could quickly and easily access 50 to over $150,000 of free money in less than 30 days to invest in guaranteed businesses and investments, all without having to risk your own cash or credit. And this is even despite all the craziness that's going on in the economy right now. It's true. There's a little known funding hack. you know, more like avatars or we become like, you know, angelic presences walking in the physical or, you know, like the heroes, you can accomplish so much more and bring that energy and that presence and that awareness in your interactions with other people and help them awaken to it. Mm-hmm. Because as it's not just about me, it's also about that, that we're all one. And so we're all here to awaken that, that fire, that, that light of consciousness within everybody. Um, and, and so this is how we would go forward and, and help create, you know, more of a head on earth type of experience. Well, a lot of people find themselves very interested in the Kabbalah on the level of wanting to learn to manifest things in their lives through magical practicum that yeah. is somehow mm, considered to be a left hand path or an occult type of practice. You're talking about something that's very different, which I personally agree with very strongly. The idea of using a magical practice for one's own personal gratification is a very different thing than what you're talking about here. You're looking to bring about a messianic understanding of the relationship between the divine and human as above, so below. Um, much like what the mystical traditions in just about every major religion are speaking about when they get into what the whole point of being in this religion is for, is to more or less embody the teachings of the divine master and become that which you see. Is that a fair assessment of what you're presenting? Yeah, I think that at the core essence, that is what, what spirituality ultimately was meant to be about. But often in, in certain religious, tra- tra- like different strains of different religious traditions, they become dogmatic and then they make the, the, the prophet or the Messiah be unobtainable. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it becomes a mediator between you and the divine. Whereas what we're talking about here is direct, mm-hmm. is direct connection. And it's not, you're not putting, there's no block between you and God. And 
you um, is you don't need to give your power away to some Messiah because it's ultimately about awakening that, you know, right. that Christ consciousness within is right. awakening that divinity within. But the key, as you're as you're pointing out, is it's it's not about just um, learning these magical practices for the sake of oneself. Uh, for the sake of what I want to have or, you know, experience at a, at a physical level. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have, you know, an abundant life and to, to live life to the fullest and all of that and, and to create things for ourselves. But we want to, at least from the mystery school tradition that I come from, it's very much about, you know, hey, we're, 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 we're on a mission. We have a mission here and there's a purpose to this life and that, that purpose is a collective purpose. It's not just individual purposes. Right, and we, yeah. the Kabbalistic tradition has always um, taught like, okay, we came from this divine state, you know, in the Kabbalistic terms, they might've called it the garden, the original garden of Eden, for example. Um, that is a metaphor. If you go to like Tibetan tradition, it would be the, the first Shambhala or Shangri-La, uh, you know, the Hopi to have the first world, right? So all these ancient traditions talk about, some original divine state mm-hmm. that was perfected. And then we somehow devolved or fell out of that mm-hmm. into a world that is what we experience today. That's more separate. That's harder. There's more suffering. There's, you know, there's, there's a lot of challenges and, um, and hardship to overcome in this physical experience, but they all also prophecy about a time um or, or tell us like, Hey, your purpose is to evolve. And, and we're looking at there is a, a way where we can reawaken the divine potential within us. And we are then meant to also bring that heaven to earth. We are meant to create that new garden of Eden, that new Shambhala, that new Jerusalem, whatever, you know, the fifth world. Um, and, but it is something that we have to create. You know, there, when people are looking for a savior, that is like, oh, the power is outside of me. Mm-hmm. I'm waiting for someone to come and rescue me to mm-hmm. have divine intervention, whether they're waiting for the aliens to come and rescue us or they're waiting for God to come and rescue us or, you know, the return of, of the Messiah. It's all outside of oneself. Mm-hmm. Whereas all of us know the power is inside of each and every one of us, that each of us are a divine spark from that wholeness. And our role is to bring the divine sparks back together again from separate pieces into an integrated whole. And when we each, it's like we each have a piece of the puzzle. There's been a few moments that changed the course of America forever. JFK's assassination, 9-11, the Nixon shock of 1971, What's scheduled to take place on September 20th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time could be another one of those moments. President could go on national TV and announce a U.S. dollar recall and replace every single dollar you have in your bank account with a new type of currency. And when we when we awaken to our piece of the puzzle and then we start working together, all contributing what we're meant to contribute. Mm-hmm. We bring those puzzle pieces back together again and the picture forms. Um, and that picture of, of that, you know, divine state, that heaven and earth, whatever you want to call it, that's within our DNA. It's, it's inside of us. It's in our spiritual DNA. It's in our spiritual memory banks. It's in our physical DNA too. 
And in the tree of life, it is our DNA. And it's, it's that map to how we reawaken to that, how we remember that. Um, you know, in Kabbalah, we teach, you know, actually all the knowledge you need is already within you. All the gifts, all the potential is already within you. You, you've just forgotten it or it's become dormant and we want to reawaken it. Um, we, we just want to remind you of what you already know. So we're not really here to teach you anything. We're here to help you remember what you already know. And, um, and that awakening is what matters the most because then you'll remember your piece of the puzzle, your gifts, what you're here to bring. And when you do that, you're going to love it. You're going to have a lot of joy and abundance from it. And you're going to be making a really important contribution to the whole, whatever that is. And then as we all do that, we will create that heaven on earth. So it's an um, acknowledgement of the individual gifts that one brings to the table of consciousness mm-hmm. and the unified field theory. It's about being in alignment with your true knowledge and purpose and goals for what gives you, giving you a real depth of meaning in life. It's not an exercise in intellectual concepts. It's an awakening of the relationship of the primal dualities, which began in the metaphorical stories of the Garden of Eden, which is the tree of knowledge, where it was the knowledge of the primal dualities, good and evil is what is represented there. That could be male, female. It could be all the polarities we're talking about. It's an acknowledgement of self and other and the way that that flows. And that other includes the divine, which mm-hmm. is part of the maxim or axiom of uh, as above, so below. Mm-hmm. Well, and and so I would actually say knowledge of good and evil is going to be different from the knowledge of gender, like male, female, for example, um, because they already had gender prior to, you know, in, in the story. If we go with the Garden of Eden story, you already had Adam and Eve prior to. There was one, a- one yes. emanated from another. Adam yeah. was a primal male, but. Mm-hmm. That the primal female, according to this, these metaphorical stories, came from the rib of Adam. The way I see that, and these are all allegories for me, is that the divine became flesh for the first time, and then the, which was a primal separation, and then the primal separation took another step further between the male-female polarities. That's the way I interpret it. There is also uh, in the original Hebrew word that has been translated as, you know, from the rib of. Right. Actually originally meant a mirror image of. Right. Exactly. So, so a mirror image. Um, but, but Kabbalah even goes further back uh, than the Garden of Eden when it comes to masculine and feminine energies. Mm-hmm. Because you can go all the way back to the source and you can go to the Shekinah, right. uh, divine feminine. Mm-hmm. You can go to the, the creation of the tree of life where we go from the one to um, the two poles mm-hmm. and, you know, the supernal triad that forms that top triangle of the tree. And those two poles from a physics perspective, it's from the oneness to expansion energy, but you also have contraction information. Mm-hmm. So we have the the outward force and we have the inward formation. And that is masculine is expansion, exactly. contraction limit. Mm-hmm. So these principles of masculine feminine are not about physical gender necessarily. They're about energy 
and exactly. and the generative energy of the universe and how the universe is created and everything from that highest spiritual plane all the way down as above so below all the way down into the physical relies upon these two principles of, right. of we can call it masculine and feminine we can call it yin and yang yang and yin positive negative and positive negative right. which doesn't mean good and bad it just means it's more like proton and electron exactly. you know it it's charged and they're different. And I think that this is really important. You know, this is a topical kind of conversation in the world today is, is around gender and gender, you know, fluidity and all of this. And, and I do believe from a Kabbalistic perspective and from a physics perspective that it's really important for us to recognize the value that the masculine brings and the value that the feminine brings and that they are, yes, they are equally important. They are different in function, different in their nature, different in the way that they run energy. Mm-hmm. And that is important because if you have, if you have two things that are the same and they're exactly equal, you don't get dynamic energy. Mm-hmm. You just have stagnation. And, and only with the differences and, and the, da- the dance that happens between them back and forth, this flow, do we then have movement? Do we have generate, you know, the ability to generate, to, to create, to birth something, you know, into the world or into the next level? This is like. It's been years that they've been lying to us. We can all have a perfect off the grid energy source to power our homes. I, I love, I love how Kabbalah brings such clarity to what is masculine, what is feminine, why are they important? Um, because it's, it's such a confusing topic in our world today when you apply it at a, at a gender, you know, at a gender kind of politics kind of level that's happening. Um, or even within the South, you know, people, young, young teenagers right now trying to know who they are. And then they're, you know, so confused with, you know, all this social kind of pop culture narrative that's happening. And, and then they, you know, they're, they don't know who they are. <laughs> but that's why I think things like Kabbalah really can help with ancient wisdom that is not about what's like trendy, but what's eternal, what's universal, what applies, you know, always, because it, it is the universal principles upon which we are created and upon which the universe is formed. The universal principles of duality and creation. It's going to get more intense from here. So we're going to take a quick break and let the audience digest what was just said. We'll be back with Dr. Teresa Bullard in just a moment. Expanding on Consciousness is brought to you by the Monroe Institute, a nonprofit organization and leader in consciousness education and research, teaching you how to actively explore and use expanded states of consciousness, providing direct experiences that are deeply personal, uniquely meaningful, and life-changing. Monroe has been helping people create more meaningful and joyful lives through the guided exploration of expanded consciousness for 50 years. Gain the knowledge and understanding you seek to create the life you desire. Learn more about where to start your journey to expanded awareness with Monroe. Visit MonroeInstitute.org or check out our Expand Meditation app available on the App Store or Google Play. 
Well, getting back to the creation story in the Garden of Eden, for instance, we're talking about a tree of knowledge. And that knowledge was of good and evil, representing the primal dualities in general. Good and evil were relative terms there, masculine, feminine, knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Those things are in apparent opposite to one another. And it's through that understanding, through bringing consciousness to that balance of these two poles, which are in apparent opposition, that the middle pillar becomes the pillar of consciousness. Because in order for an electrical circuit to have its way and be useful, it has to have a positive, it has to have a negative, also needs to have a ground. So we're talking about a threefold system, like the Earth, Moon, Sun system that allows all life to exist. Mm -hmm. The knowledge of the polarities is um, definitely part of Kabbalistic training. Being able to hold those polarities is part of that Kabbalistic training. But we have a lot to unpack just in what we've talked about thus far. I'm sure we have listeners that are sitting there going, wow, this is really speaking to me. And there's so much more. Right, exactly. There's so much more to what they're saying that that we haven't said. So let's try to unpack that. Can I uh, interject on something there? Certainly, absolutely. Because... So, and I think with, with Kabbalah, there are so many ways to view it. It's very alive, very dynamic. And so there's different ways of interpreting or relating to what the tree is showing us. And when I look at the two pillars of polarity, right, where we can label it expansion, contraction, force and form, masculine, feminine, wisdom and understanding, we can, and they're juxtaposed as if they're contraries. And what you're talking about is the equilibrium, you know, bringing, you know, finding the balance between them and, and coming into the middle pillar. And we see that, but you're looking at that from the two dimensional tree. Mm-hmm. When I think of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we're not actually looking at the, the du, du, it's not duality between the pillars of polarity. Mm-hmm. There is, there's this, I look at the three dimensional tree where you have the two pillars in front, the light side, and you have the two pillars behind which are like the shadow side in a way. Now we're talking more polarities, light, dark. Yeah. And, 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 and within every sephira, within every part of the tree, there are, you know, they talk about strengths and weaknesses, vices and virtues. Mm-hmm. And within a sephira, there's, there is the balanced expression of it, which is, um, you know, the, the virtue mm-hmm. and the virtue. So let's say, for example, in um in the the sefer chokhmah which is wisdom the virtue is devotion mm-hmm. and and that devotion ultimately is a devotion to the to the purpose of of divine will right. and um and you know we could say so much more about that but the the vice comes in when we get out of balance mm-hmm. within its own spectrum mm-hmm. so lack of devotion right n- not having that sense of purpose um, would be an imbalance or becoming too myopic and too fanatical around a, a particular purpose and not being able to see the greater whole, mm-hmm. uh, just to it. You know, these would be examples of, of going out of the balance point too far one way or too far the other way. Right. Um, and every sephira has this kind of a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so the, the evil is almost more like when we get out of balance with the middle or the pure expression of it, where the shadow side starts to come in, distortion starts to come in. And so that knowledge of good and evil is, okay, the knowledge of 
how am I choosing by my own free will to align with that balanced expression of pure divine? Because all of these are divine aspects, right? Mm-hmm. Every part of the tree is, is a, an expression of divine self. As long as this page doesn't say expired, which eventually will happen, you can get. Um, how am I aligning with the divine expression of it versus maybe where am I making choices that are falling out of alignment with that, that are going against the flow of, of divine will. And, and this is, you know, one way that we can define what is good and what is evil is, is good is what progresses and flows with that divine will to grow and to evolve and to spread the light um, or to express in a way that is of the light. Whereas that evil would be to go against that, to, to go out of alignment with that, mm-hmm. you know, sin, the original word for sin meant to miss the mark, right? To, to fall slightly out of alignment. And if you think of, you know, one way people can maybe think of this is like, if I am, um, if it's like noon, right? Noonday, the sun is right above. And if I'm standing in that middle pillar and I'm fully aligned with it, you look below me. I don't cast much shadow on the ground. That's right. I started falling out, you know, kind of going a little bit lopsided and falling out of alignment. Now there's more shadow being cast below me onto the earth. That's and this, you know, this shadow is is where we manifest um, that darkness, you know, so to speak, where we block the light in a way. Mm-hmm. And we want to get into that place where we're in full alignment, uh, not casting shadows. Yes, and therein lies the um, basic message behind the words tikkun olam, which is Hebrew, for those who don't know, meaning to fix the world. It also can be interpreted as raising the sparks. And in the Lurianic tradition, the sparks we're talking about are the sparks of the original creation, which were so intense coming from the divine force as to shatter the vessels that existed to contain those energies. Those vessels are consciousness, packets of consciousness that reside within us and also divinity, as divinity can be understood by the limitations of human consciousness. When that energy came through, it was so intense, it broke those vessels. And the sparks of that explosion are packets of consciousness, individuated consciousness, which apparently through the study of Kabbalah in order to attain messianic consciousness is to raise those sparks through our consciousness and bring it back to the creator. The reason I bring that topic up is it was pursuant to something you mentioned before about the raising of consciousness, the raising of sparks, the messianic message behind that and what that truly means to become more in alignment with that understanding of the divinity within so as not to separate it and to understand that divinity exists everywhere and that part of your job as a student of Kabbalah is to bring your level of consciousness up to understand that simple premise. One might say, no matter how evil it looks, that too is God. I just don't see how. I don't understand. Well, yeah, I mean, so we could say, for example, everything has the divine spark within it. And so so even the food that I eat has a divine spark. The water I drink has a divine spark. And by bringing my awareness to it, mm-hmm. by recognizing that divine spark within it, I actually help draw it forth. I help bring it out. Yes. 
And, and this is alchemical. Mm -hmm. If I were to draw from alchemy for a moment, um, in alchemy, we, you know, you look at like the raw materia and that raw materia could, I mean, the alchemists went and dug in the horse dung, you know, I mean, they were going into the, some of the nastiest places to find their prima materia to work with. <laughs> and you could call that disgusting, right? It's, it's, it's nasty. Um, and, but they would, they would see that there's gold. The potential for gold is contained within that. And so they would take that raw materia through the alchemical process to to extract, to draw out the eternal essences mm-hmm. came within it. And they had to, but they recognized they had to purify. They had to do this formula of, of separating the pieces out, purifying them, recombining them in perfect proportion, taking them through distillation and refinement, raising the vibration and so forth to ultimately bring that raw material to its highest expression. Mm-hmm. It was in its perfected form. And this is tikkun olam. This is, you know, no matter what it is, we we all have that divine spark within, but that divine spark needs to be drawn out. And we have to go through the alchemical process to bring it to its fullest expression. Mm-hmm. So, so, and I love like the, the work in, in Jungian work, for example, where within the shadow of the self, within the negative ego and the parts of us that we might hide or reject or, you know, be ashamed of, they, there lies the gold of the self, you know, some gifts even that we have within us that we may be rejected at some point because we thought it wasn't acceptable or we were told it wasn't acceptable. And so when we go into the shadow, we can, we can learn to come to that place of, of accepting that this is part of me too. Mm-hmm. Stop using old fashioned razors. The shave is not clean and there are still black spots. Try this original imported mini razor. Doesn't mean I'm going to give excuses to bad behavior. It means I'm going to accept myself and say, okay, I'm not perfect the way I am. But I'm going to strive towards greater perfection. I'm going to strive towards um, a higher form of expression. And I'm going to, you know, kind of come into greater self-mastery. I'm going to conquer the weaknesses within me. And as we go through that journey, the journey itself is what brings out the gifts, is what brings out the sparks and helps us to to heal, to go through tikkun and, and to to rectify. Um, so, so it's, yeah, I mean, we're, we're in this experience of duality to learn from it, to learn by our own choices, but also hopefully through our results, uh, to see what works and what doesn't work. And if something's not working, well, you got to do it differently. And therein Um, lies the gift of free will. Yes. Because you can make your own choices based on the knowledge that you now have. So the tree of knowledge is not the bad guy in this story. It's an awareness that there's a polarity in everything, including the consciousness of the individual, perhaps including the consciousness of the one consciousness that needs some form of other and antagonist in the story in order for it to come to its full understanding of self. Could be, yeah. I mean, Jung, Jungian archetypes often say that the adversary is our greatest teacher. That is the point. 
That's the whole purpose of having one. Is <laughs> so I'm very curious to know how you got this work into your bones. Into my bones. <laughs> yes, I mean, you obviously are living the Kabbalistic mindset. You exemplify it. You teach it. You've uh, come to it through, you know, training courses. I'm sure you've read a ton of material. I'm sure you're aware of the three different schools and how they differ. How did you get this into your bones, into your mindset so that you fully understood it? Because Kabbalah can be pedantic and confusing and people spend way too much time thinking about the attributions on the tree of life in the various worlds. And they're just trying to understand all of this information and it becomes too much. Getting yeah. it into your bones is a whole different thing. It's more than just an intellectual pursuit. It's an understanding, a shift in consciousness. How did you get yeah. it into your bones? It's a great question. So I, yeah, I, I do agree that there are, there are ways that people have, do, do approach Kabbalah, um, that, that is very intellectual and it just kind of keeps it in the level of the mind. But ultimately it is about the practice. Um, Kabbalah is not a path just about the mind. It's a path about life. It's about living it. And one of the things that I so appreciate about my training with the modern mystery school is, is it was always about the tools. It, like the theory, you could study the theory all day long, mm -hmm. but if you just keep it in the realm of the intellectual, you're never going to understand it. Right. And so one of the things that we really focus on is actually application. So, so we talk about that if you want to ascend your consciousness um, to greater uh, awareness and to higher dimensional realities and so forth, there is actually a formula for ascension. Mm -hmm. And that formula is, it goes from knowledge to understanding to wisdom, but there are steps in between. So the way we get from knowledge to understanding is through life experience, through application, through living it, mm -hmm. um, the practice of it. And so how I got it into my bones first was through living it, the practice. So we learn meditations, rituals, tools, chants, you know, and, and doing it, like doing it on a daily basis and making it part of your foundation of life. Mm -hmm. uh, humans are habitual. You know, we are creatures of habit and you're going to have habits one way or another. And most of those habits are indoctrinated and they're not serving you. And what, what we do in Kabbalah, at least the way I've learned it is let's repattern your foundation of, of how you live your life. And let's bring in a, a, a ritual. Let's make life into a ritual. Like let's make a routine that supports your spiritual being, not just in reaction to your physical being. And um, so, so we do daily practices and that, be, that integrates it. Then you get direct experience mm -hmm. of the, the tree and of the of the tools and of the teachings and it becomes alive in your life and you learn from your own life. And one of the ways that we teach Kabbalah in the in the modern mystery school is we go through a 10-month ascension journey um, where we literally we energetically ascend the tree. So we'll we'll have certain teachings, people will study in between the classes, and then we'll come together. And um, the you know, based on where the, the knowledge is at for the students. Then the teacher can, you know, kind of work with them to and adapt the teachings to what is going to be needed to get them to the next level of understanding. And then um, once that sort of clarity 
is established, then the, and the right sort of, um, awarenesses are established within the minds of the students, we can energetically ascend, uh, like kind of striking a tuning fork and then entraining others into the same frequency level, we can ascend and entrain them into the next level of the tree. Mm-hmm. And this, it sort of unlocks the gateways within the soul of the person. And that, that energy, it's almost like. Can't get it up anymore. If you suffer from ED, listen closely because there is a fast and all natural fix. The truth is it has nothing to do with genetics. Okay. Now their aura, their energetic field is vibrating at this new frequency level based on where we are on the tree. Mm-hmm. And and so we strike this tuning fork, it resonates at a new level. What th- their field is putting out this new frequency and the world just reflects it back to us. The world is our mirror, our life and the people in our lives, everything becomes our mirror. And so they reflect our own energy back to us. And then people will, we will literally experience the vices and virtues, the strengths and weaknesses of the tree, the, the intelligences of the tree in our own life, it'll, it'll reveal itself to us through our own life experiences. And then when you're studying and understanding the correspondences and you're reflecting on your life experiences, you're like, Oh my God, this is a weight. This is lit. This is my life right now. This is so describing what I'm experiencing. And then we can start having deeper insights into what it's trying to teach us to adjust so that we can come more into that balance point. And so I, it got into my bones because I lived the tree mm-hmm. and been through this ascension journey. I don't even know how many times by now because I, I loved it and I did it every year that I could. And then I became a teacher of it. Mm-hmm. And as I taught it, then I started to actually grow further. So from my own, you know, progression of knowledge to understanding through my own life experience, the next step from understanding up to wisdom is to step into service to others mm-hmm. and others grow in that progression. And as I serve through teaching, for example, as I serve, I'm, I learn even more mm-hmm. because the students ask me questions that I never thought of or the, the way the information flows from the tree through for that person's mind to understand it is completely different than how it might have come through for me. So it's like it becomes more multidimensional, more expanded in the the different perspectives and ways of working with it. And through service, we also raise our vibration and, and, and expand consciousness. And then when you reach wisdom, the wise man knows he knows nothing and he empties his cup mm-hmm. uh, or woman and they empty their cup. They stay humble. They seek new knowledge. They take that knowledge. They apply. They gain wisdom. Uh, understanding, they, they serve, they gain wisdom, they empty the cup, they stay humble, and, and it goes on and on and on and on and on. There's never an end to it. So it becomes a way of life. And yet our foundation always is rising and, and the, the, the capacity to which we can hold and understand expands. And so it's through this process that I really came to, to integrate Kabbalah as a way of life. Um, working with the tools, living it every day, starting to perceive and, and recognize what my life was teaching me or, or how, you know, different relationships were showing up in relationship to the tree. Mm-hmm. Well, the more I understand the tree, the more I understand life, the more I understand people, right. you know, and, and all of it. So it just, it informs everything. <laughs> and also by implication of what you just said, you spoke about how life begins to reflect what your consciousness is awakening to. 
what you need to know. That's how one gets it into their bones as they begin to practice this, become aware that these polarities exist, become aware of the dynamics of life, become aware of the relationship between self and other. And somehow, through some magical occurrence, which may have to do with quantum physics, life begins to reflect back to us what we need to learn. And we begin this process of evolution, interacting with what the Kabbalists call involution. So a higher intelligence is almost meeting us halfway and, mm-hmm. and helps us to move forward and does so through a creation that can be experienced directly in physical time and space. It's not just a product of imagination. It's not just a product of mental or conceptual stimulation. It's not just something you do on Sunday. It's something that becomes a part of your life. Yeah, and it's not a hallucination. It's not an illusion. It's a reality that gets manifested. Right. It's not a product of an ayahuasca journey where you can question it. It becomes a part of you because it is your life. That brings up a lot of questions for me, and I'm sure the listeners are waiting for me to ask them. So, so I'm going to talk to a physicist about the way in which reality is created through this thing called consciousness and how the power of Kabbalistic mindset, getting it into one's bones, begins to shift reality. Let's talk about how reality is constructed at the atomic level and what do we really know about the nature of reality from a physics perspective. Let's start there. Okay. So uh, it's a big question. Uh, I mean, if we were to just start from the quantum physics perspective, which is the most basic. Did you know that you can create your own free, endless water supply using only the air around? Foundational, you know, principles that govern the universe, you know, from the ground up, from the from the subatomic particles up. Um Number one is the quantum vacuum. Mm-hmm. And the quantum vacuum is not empty, right? Some people, they often, in the classical world, the vacuum meant there was nothing there. It was empty of all things. But in, in the quantum and in the, um, I would say in, in some of the ancient wisdom teachings, both Kabbalistic and Vedic and, and whatnot, they said it is a plenum. Mm-hmm. So it is a fullness of emptiness. There is, so in a quantum perspective, we would say that in the vacuum, there is an, there is infinite possibilities and potentialities, mm-hmm. yet nothing manifested. Like it's all in this virtual state of, and, and they're all simultaneously there. And, and yet nothing is manifested out of it until an observation is made. Which begins a process of that dynamic called mm-hmm. the sin sum, expansion yeah. and contraction. So there seems to be a connection between observation and the dynamic energy starting to move in a quantum flux. Mm. Would that be a decent way to speak about it? 
Yeah. So like in, in quantum field theory, for example, they talk about this, this boiling sea almost of virtual particles popping in and out of existence, but their existence is too short to count it as existence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's there, you know, so in science, in traditional science today, which is still very materialist and they don't really want to acknowledge that there was an original observer, they would say, well, there was just at some point in time, there was some fluctuation that popped into existence long enough that it then initiated a big bang, mm-hmm. a relation of, of the universe and, and everything came out from that plenum at that point. Sounds good. Uh, yeah. If you want to explain away God, right? If you want to explain away an original intelligence of some kind. So in the Kabbalistic perspective, they would say before that big bang moment, right? That there was and this is more Lurianic Kabbalah, that there was the Ensof, the Einsof. It was everything and nothing. And everything you could say about it, you could say exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. And it, it was everywhere mm-hmm. and nowhere, right? So we could kind of go through that forever. Mm-hmm. Um, that Ensof withdrew. to In order to bring creation to being, it withdrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, it contracted. Yes. Action being a feminine quality, remember, it, mm-hmm. it created a vessel um, and, and it withdrew from a tiny, infinitesimally small point. Um, in quantum physics, we would call this a singularity point. Bingo. Or, or a true vacuum, right? True vacuum before we fill it. Uh, so first was that contraction and, and where, where the NSOF withdrew, the source withdrew and created a true vacuum. But, there is nowhere that the end self cannot be. There's nowhere that that infinite source energy cannot be. So as soon as it creates that, it also flows, the energy flows in to fill it. Mm-hmm. And that then becomes that singularity point where it's infinitely dense points of light that, you know, this unity of, of all light, all source energy filling this tiny little vacuum and it becomes so full that that tiny little vacuum space cannot contain it anymore because it's infinite energy is flowing into it. And that is where you have the, the shattering of the vessel, mm-hmm. the explosion, the big bang. And then, you know, all the stuff, the particles, the sparks, the, you know, the, the souls, everything comes out, the light, everything starts coming oh, wow. out. Right. And then from there, you know, it scatters all around and, and then the tree of life comes in uh, you know, well, the tree was kind of there first as 10 emanations as it expanded out, but then it, even that shattered and then all the parts had to be regathered at some point. And then, you know, the tree of life is kind of the, the way in which it stabilized. And I'm getting the impression now that the astute listener is coming to a conclusion that there is some connection between what the mystics knew and what the quantum theorists are finding out. Yeah. If you want to find out something about how to apply this knowledge, you're going to have to tune in next time. Next week, we continue this conversation with Dr. Teresa Bullard. For now, keep thinking about that vacuum. There's a lot of potential there. See you next week. Be certain to tune in again to expand it. <laughs> Thoughts are most certainly things, everyone. Commercial. Oh my God! I think we counted about nine or ten. There, that was. I thought that rumble thing you could you could get rid of no. them, but only for the crying thing. Is that what it was? No, for Patty. For only for Patty. Well, that's good. 
that she's got it. Mm-hmm. Or it should be able to multiply itself. But it's okay. I thought some interesting things are they're talking about going to the digital currency and taking all the dollars out of the system. That's not a joke. That's really true. Mm-hmm. And I was just sitting there writing the commercial. Well, blaze of violet fire. Magic is afoot. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're going to have another conversation uh, where um, Regina Meredith is featuring Mercedes Arnas Arout Arout A-R-R-A-U-T so this is called The Astral Method and Intuitive Astrology Mm. Mercedes let me just figure this out here. Try it this way. Um, Mercedes are Arnus Arout, an intuitive astrologer born to read the stars, says, yes, it is possible to harness the power of the Zodiac. In her interview with Regina Meredith, they explore how Astrological signs and houses interact with planetary bodies to reveal individual soul codes and break down collective generational patterns. According to Pluto, transits across boomers, Xers, millennials, and Zs. Generations. Generations of, yeah, uh, Xers. Boomers, Xers, Millennials, and Generation Z. Arout's approach, the astral method, proposes that astrology is 5% knowledge, 95% intuition. I resemble that remark. She reads her client's charts from a heart-based perspective, believing we each choose the biggest and brightest path for our soul's journey. Arout proposes the age of Aquarius could engage the power of the mind to create our experience and propel humanity to unimaginable heights. All right, this is 44 minutes, and we'll just go ahead and get started. Here we go. I gave a reading to one of my professors of her entire life and she was mind blown and she was like the most Catholic of them all we've entered into an age of air and we're learning to understand air which is the power of our minds astrology to me is very intuitive like once you know the codes and the patterns and the meanings of each planet each sign each house It's like reading a map or reading a soul. This pattern is not going to limit your life. It comes to guide you to awaken in this life. I know a lot of people who are very scared nowadays of technology and AI. And in a way, that's Pluto and Aquarius for us. 
Some people are born to read the stars. Mercedes Aranus began reading them at age 15. Her passion is to combine astrology with dream work as well. And so she says that's the path to ordering our daily lives. But we're going to get into a lot more than our daily lives. Welcome, Mercedes. I've been having a blast talking off camera (laughs) because one of the areas I really want to get into is generational astrology. Mm -hmm. Because that's kind of a pop theme right now because you see it in headlines. I mean, Gen Z, millennials, boomers, everybody blaming and pointing fingers at each other. And I think it's just another source of division at the moment. And I thought we would get into allowing people a deeper understanding of the beauty of each of these generations Mm -hmm. and some of the challenges. But first, let's talk about you because you've been in astrology since you were a kid. Mm -hmm. So how did you, how did your fascination with Astrology, without going into past life stuff, how did your association with astrology begin mm-hmm. as a young girl? So, yeah, at the age of 15 in school, we were asked to just choose a project, just choose something that we loved and that we wanted to work on for an entire year. Wait, so, this is in regular school? Yeah, my regular school. They let you choose anything. And I actually went to a Catholic school. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> oh I love it. So at the age of 15, I was like, I need to do something and I need to choose something that is that I'm so passionate into that I can work and I cannot get bored about it for an entire year. So I chose astrology because I grew up in a very um like a very spiritual, spiritually awakened family. So my parents had a free meditation center. So I grew up with meditation, astrology, astronomy, uh, and Catholicism. Yeah. Catholicism, which was my mother's background. But, um, anyway, my family, my parents were already starting to transcend that, but yet I was in a Catholic school. So I had a little bit of a background in astrology, but I was not so much into it, but I chose that as a topic for my school. And then, well, first of all, how did the sisters feel about that? Oh, absolutely. I want to hear that story. I know. <laughs> I know. So everyone was freaking out. I, there were nuns, uh, yeah, nuns in, in my, in my school. Yeah. So every nun or every teacher was sort of like supervising each student with that topic because at the end of the course, you had to give an entire presentation about that topic. To sort of like, the were they tribute. holding up garlic and rosaries? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I was like very judged because at that time, especially was like, oh, she's like a big freak. That's very weird. But, um, in order to provide for a whole year content of information, I, I had a teacher. I had like my own personal teacher and then I joined an astrology academy. This was at the age 15. So by the, by the age 16th, I finished up. Uh, my project, I did an entire presentation of astrology in, in, in front of like the whole, um, uh, teachers, nuns, and well, tribune. Yeah, I'm trying to feel on into uh-huh. that. Yeah. And how was it yeah. received? I, I got, I was graduated with honors. Well, so and you're I open-minded actually, enough to see the validity and hard work that you'd put in. Well, you know why? Because I did, like, it, part of the project was to give a reading to the teachers. Oh, smart. Yeah. I love it. So I give the, I give a re, I gave a reading to one of my professors, um, an astrotar reading of her entire life. And she was mind blown. And she was like the most Catholic of them all. <laughs> the most Catholic. She was mind blown, mind blown. And it's like one of my, 
the best astral chart reading or one of the best. Probably one had. of the greatest moments of your life yes. to this day. Yes. To be to be able to prove to all of these doubters and, and mm-hmm. non-believers in astrology. And so did that give you did you did you feel kind of accepted after that in yes. terms of the world of astrology and what you brought to the table? Absolutely. Hundred percent. I was like, okay, this I'm doing something right. Especially because I got I got graduated with honors because of that project. Wonderful. So I was like, okay, this is, this is my path. This is what you're here to do. This is what I'm here to do. This is my route. So how long before you started using it to read other people and then ultimately becoming a reader? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a rough question because I've been, I feel I've been a reader since my entire then. life. Yeah. yeah since yeah. then. Because astrology to me is very intuitive. Like once you know the codes and the patterns and the meanings of each planet, each sign, each house, each connection in between the planets is like reading a map or reading a soul. So you're reading a soul's journey just based on looking at a, at a graphic, which is like a map. Well, and clearly someone like you, you're not dabbling. You are doing this from your own soul's level. I mean, and I would guess that you, aside from being able to technically read the charts, you bring a fair amount of intuition to the table. It's pure intuition, I'd say. Okay. It's pure intuition. I'd say it's like yeah. a 5% knowledge. Yeah. And a 95% of pure intuition. And I'd say love. Like it's moving through the map with love because you want to guide the person that you're working with or that you're reading for with your biggest and brightest heart. Like you right. just want them to feel that they're amazing, that they chose this. That's the key part. That's where I want to start in the this part of the technical part of the conversation is that they chose this Mm -hmm. because so many people I know, the perception is times are challenging. First of all, I want to ask you why people are perceiving that times are challenging because I mean, we all feel the influence, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I look back on the past and the brutality of our history. We're probably in one of the most light filled ages ever in terms of at least personal behavior toward one another. (laughs) Let's talk about um, first the perception of why things feel so challenging for humanity right now. Is that true? Is the media projecting that and it's creating this feeling or is there something within the cosmos that's creating? Mm -hmm. So, We've entered into an age of air and air is the mind, communication, information. And we're learning to understand air, which is the power of our minds. So in a way, we're becoming so malleable that if we're told that life is chaotic and that the world's shifting, we are going to believe it. And our minds are going to shift into creating that experience. So it's actually because of the fluidity of the field of the mind, because we're what Aquarius, mm-hmm. right? Exactly, exactly. Which is also Aquarius is also absolutely brilliant in its ability mm-hmm. to sort through, solve problems, and find a new way. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the soul portion of it mm-hmm. and how you you see it as a soul. Choosing to incarnate, mm-hmm. you're choosing your family, your place, your time, mm-hmm. and all of that. What's that look like from you, your mm-hmm. side? So from my perspective and what I've studied, what I've experienced, what I've felt, we choose a certain pattern to be born under based on the life's, the, the lifetime patterns that we're following, right? Mm-hmm. So it's based on frequency, vibration, codes, 
So we choose our date, date of birth, time of birth, place of birth, based on codes that we need to be born under so that they resonate with our soul's pattern and pattern of evolution, pattern of growth. Mm-hmm. So the this is where the life uh, life map or natal chart or astral chart, however you want to call it, comes in because we're born under a certain grid, a certain map, a certain pattern. And we choose that date of birth, time of birth, to be born under that map or under that pattern. So let's say that um, a national chart is like a screenshot or a picture taken from our perspective on earth from the first moment that we take breath as humans, mm-hmm. which is our, our birth time, right? So in from our birth time, we are given a map just by looking or having this picture of the grid or the celestial sky from that perspective. Mm -hmm. So I feel it's important to highlight the fact that it's always from our perspective. Because when we see things from other perspective, reality shifts and reality changes. So astrology exists from our perspective on earth. Yes, and that makes perfect sense. Our pers- yeah, yes. from our perspective as as humans. So, in a way, when we're born, we're given this map, which holds a pattern. What I want to emphasize, though, is that this pattern is not going to limit your life. It comes to guide you to awaken in this life, and for you to get to know yourself, so that you know your pattern. So that you know what pattern you're born under. Because you cannot escape the pattern, Mm -hmm. the grid, or the matrix, however you want to call it, without knowing what you're escaping from or what you're going through or what to break through from. So that's why I feel that knowing that map, which is connected to the codes of your birth, that your soul chooses as as you are born, yeah. right? And it chooses out of like a pattern, out of like a motion of um of energy and based on pretty much a grid of lifetimes. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. by knowing this map, you hold the key to your life in a way. Well and what's also I'm you're making me reflect back on um I have a friend who was born in India and it's very common practice at least when she was born. Mm-hmm. I know some of the younger generations have moved away from this but it was a beautiful practice that a couple of days after birth the astrologer would come to your home and speak to your parents about your chart and your strengths and what you came to do and um I would think that if a parent could take heed of that and it's accurately read that that could be a tremendous help for a little child growing up. Wow, don't try to force them into some shoe that doesn't fit you know absolutely yeah. and we would also see what the kid is taking on from their parents and mm-hmm. their ancestral lineage yes why is the kid there mm-hmm. what's its purpose as a kid as their child yes how is the kid perceiving the mother the father the conditions of birth the conditions in which he was conceived and what he was conceived for, because we all we all are conceived for a certain reason. Mm-hmm. It's usually subconscious, but it's beautiful to see it placed in the chart or to see it illustrated with a certain code, a certain constellation, a certain 
planetary connection. Yes, and that gets this also gets into the subject that people argue about a lot. Well, if you have if astrology is going to rule us, then we don't have any free will. And I always say, well, sure you do. You chose it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the free free will is a misunderstood subject, and it precedes our preferences in the moment, and whether mm. we're happy or unhappy with what's going on in our lives. Mm-hmm. So the free will has come as the soul, right? The yeah. soul's choice. So now you come into this and you see such a variety of life experiences. People have chosen the most dire, challenging environments, families, yeah. times of birth. So let's talk about what happens when you watch a soul who's chosen the worst conditions to be born under. Mm-hmm. You might not even make it past three because you're also in a drought and you're going to starve to death. Mm-hmm. So how do you see this? So it's a very interesting, uh, I mean, I get asked this so many times, but I feel that positive and negative is a perspective. There's obviously more challenging planetary right. placement. Right. But at the same time, it's also connected to inheritance, a pattern that that soul comes to live mm-hmm. and comes to experience without the mental judgment of negative or positive. I feel it's just experience and growth and, and evolution. Evolving through. And evolving through yes. and resilience mm-hmm. and seeing different perspectives or breaking through a mold of starvation, breaking through a mold of scarcity, like transcending that pattern so that future generations from that specific soul can evolve more or quicker or have much more lighter human experience. And this includes violence because yes. that's the big one. That's what gets most people is that say, no, I would have never chosen a life like that where I would be mistreated in this way. My parents were abusive and, you know, my, my boyfriend was abusive, but the new age speak as well. You chose it. It's, there is a place for both, for compassion, mm-hmm. for the growth and evolution of a soul who's chosen such a challenging path. Mm-hmm. Talk about that for a moment, because it's mm-hmm. hard for people to accept yeah. children who are abused, for example. Mm-hmm. Very hard. I have a lot of clients who come to me telling me their abuse problems, their abuse, abuse like past abuses, sexual abuse, like all kinds of yes. abuses. Literally. But uh, they come to me and immediately the first thing that I do is give them a shift of perspective Mm -hmm. because we are all creators of our life. And that's why I love astrology so much because it shows you the hidden truths. So someone who has been abused or has gone through a big trauma in their lives, that's also, it's not that it's written, but their ability of put themselves in positions of victimhood Mm -hmm is there. You'll see it in the chart specifically. This soul or this person has a tendency of finding comfort in very victimized situations. And we can see this all, we can all see it either glimpses in ourselves or people around us where you keep going through these repetitive patterns of even the most subtle abuse. Mm -hmm. Maybe you choose to be the butt of the jokes of your family and your extended circle of friends and at work. And they always say things that are kind of humiliating. Yeah. But somehow you've chosen to stay in that and are not breaking through it for some reason. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So what for people that have these codes of loving to feel that, that, that victim, it's important that they see themselves as also a victimizer. Yes. 
someone who loves to be in those states of causing harm, but also receiving it and find that pleasure or guilty pleasure on it. And it's very subconscious. It is because oftentimes it's a common phenomenon where the abused once in a position of power become the abusers. Mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it has a lot to do with their ability um, to receive love and what their subconscious needs to do in order to attract love. Mm-hmm. Because their subconscious pattern has not developed into asking for love when they need it, mm-hmm. but into creating harming scenarios for them to ask for love non-verbally. So if you're reading a chart of a person who's gone through a fair amount of abuse of whatever kind, mm-hmm. and you're seeing it's right there in the chart that they chose a familial situation, mm-hmm. which had that embedded. Do you also see the contrary aspect of the path out? Or does that become a matter of kind of will? Mm -hmm. if you will. So I feel that to sort of like balance out that, Mm -hmm. that, that victim mode is to go towards the take ownership and take responsibility of your life in every situation. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, it's very normal, especially nowadays to feel victims of our parents, victims of the past, victims of past generations as well. Yeah. But that takes responsibility out of our present moment and out of ourselves. So going back again to the natal chart, I feel that by looking at it or help like understanding or being helped to understand it, we're given a very big gift of taking ownership and responsibility of our creations and our experiences, our surrounding experiences, because we are also them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Perfectly stated, very articulate, very clear. <laughs> so now let's kind of dive in. You just said it a moment ago, even generations, you mm-hmm. know, because this is a topic I love. Mm-hmm. We teased a bit at the beginning, everyone pointing fingers at each other, creating even more division. It's pop culture. It's part of pop culture mm-hmm. for generations to be blaming other generations. Mm-hmm. It's, in, it's in headline news. Mm-hmm. If you look at your Apple app, there's an app you're going to see something on Gen Z or millennials and this kind of thing. So I would like to talk about what the generations are, what their influences are, and what they offer. So we can go into more compassionate understanding of what each mm-hmm. one came to offer. So mm-hmm. we're going to, we'll start with, we can start with the youngest generation going up or the older generation. Really, probably the last one that's relevant is the boomers because most of the rest are, have died off before the boomers for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and won't be listening to this. So mm-hmm. let's start with the boomers and move our way down. Mm-hmm. So you, here you have the boomers post World War II generation raised from the Depression era generation, mm-hmm. by the Depression era generation. So as a, a Leo generation, mm-hmm. what do the boomers represent? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before getting to the, to what the boomers could represent, I'd like to talk on, like, from my perspective, how I like to see generations. Yes. Perfect. Let's do that. Because, um, I feel that each generation is born under a certain subconscious pattern. Mm -hmm. And subconscious is a Pluto word. And let's talk about Pluto's influence for a moment and what Pluto Mm -hmm. represents. Yes. So Pluto is, uh, the smallest planet. I mean, astronomically, I'm not even sure if it's considered a planet anymore. People are arguing it's not. It's a very big argument. It's still influencing us, right? Oh, oh, definitely. (laughs) And us, or like the mainstream world, trying to push Pluto out of the like out of the planetary system is 
also an, a key to Pluto being something that we do not want to face because mm-hmm. it's our fears. It's our shadows. It's our subconscious. It's everything that's so raw, true, that is like so ugly to look at. And at the same time, it's so, so powerful if we embrace it. So Pluto is our personal power. I mean, and it's the power of transformation. Transformation. Yes. And psychic abilities is the planet of soul, um, well, soul transformation, a spiritual awakening, everything that has to do with metamorphosis and awakening and truth and raw and uncovering the planet of sexuality as well. So that's why I like studying Pluto to understand generations. Mm -hmm. So baby boomers with Pluto and Leo. Pluto in Leo was also making a sea like because Leo is the energy of the sun is the energy of light and Pluto is the energy of darkness. So in a way, the darkness was in your face. The darkness was really like coming out to light in very key important figures. Well, this is when a lot of key assassinations occurred that traumatized certainly, certainly Americans, but other cultures as well. Mm -hmm. It's when a war that was the first war that people actually protested against and said, this is BS. I'm mm-hmm. not going to go over there for those reasons. That's the first real protesting of war and mass that occurred. So let's talk about it within that context of assassinations, rejecting war and so forth. Mm-hmm. Well, when darkness come out to light, we tend to reject it. So souls that have a very strong impact needed to incarnate and needed to, because lots of them are, were born with Pluto and Leo, and they needed to incarnate to bring the darkness out to light mm-hmm. in the most impactful way. Because Leo is is drama. Leo is big. It doesn't have anything to do with people who are born under the Leo sun. Right. But the Leo energy is loud because it's the energy of light. It's in your face. Mm-hmm. So by Pluto being there in that generation, it created a lot of fear of the occult, but also this magnetism to it right? because of it's not hidden anymore. Mm-hmm. And now it's a time where it doesn't need to be hidden. And also with, um, well, assassinations, Rebe- uh, there was a rebellions. Lot of rebellion. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, it was about like when, well, at least in Europe, like big important figures were taking control and ownership and governing the entire continent pretty much mm-hmm. ruled by very key figure that held a lot of power. Mm-hmm. So it's also... How much power can you hold and how much like the abuse of power, how toxic it can be. Right. So that was- and at the same time, they're raised by people who were raised during the depression through mm. went through World War Two. Yeah. So the work ethic was very strong, mm-hmm. you know, as a boomer. It was simple. Everyone I knew, it was all, it was all the same in our neighborhood. Yeah. When you graduate from high school, you're out. You're on your own. You don't, you can stay maybe the summer, but you're on your own. Mm-hmm. Now that's changed considerably. Obviously mm-hmm. it was a, the way their parents, our parents were raised. Yeah. So you have this work ethic, but also kind of harsh and we're in a boom materially. Mm-hmm. Post World War II, the economy is booming. Mm-hmm. So now you have material and creations. Well, creation, yes, that's, that's the energy of Leo. Leo is the energy yes. of creativity, creation. And Pluto is also the planet of obsession. Mm-hmm. But it ruled that generation subconscious. So mm-hmm. it's the pressure to have lots of kids. It's the pressure mm-hmm. to 
own your own lots home, of businesses. have new appliances, a new car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Create from like from scratch. Yes, from scratch. And most of those industries were from scratch mm-hmm. at that time. So that's the Leo generation, mm-hmm. kind of the blowback mm-hmm. um, and rebellion. And even as older people, that still exists within that generation. Yeah. So then comes the Gen Xers, which is really interesting mm-hmm. because no one points any fingers. You don't see Gen Xers ever in the headlines. Mm-hmm. You know why? Because... <laughs> Pluto was in Virgo. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, so let's talk about that. So Pluto's in Virgo. Mm-hmm. And now what happens? So Pluto in Virgo is about the health industry, the routines, everything that has to do with building in a much more conscious way. That's when the health movement started. Mm-hmm. Vitamins, running, mm-hmm. all of these things were the average person. You could see them starting to jog and such. Exactly. Yeah. They started to bring awareness into day-to-day caring, mm-hmm. day-to-day lifestyles, t- taking care for your health, starting to question if what we ate was good for That's us. That's right. The whole nutrition boom started then. Is smoking good for us? Mm-hmm. Is Are all these drugs, like what are they doing to our system? So is like when we started bringing awareness into what we're putting into our bodies and mm-hmm. why. Mm-hmm. And then we move on to Pluto and Libra, which could also be considered Gen X. The younger the, Gen Xers. Yeah, the young that goes into the classic step of the millennials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The last years of yes. Gen X. So let's talk about that. So mm-hmm. Libra brings a completely different influence. Completely different. So Libra is the energy that has to do with fairness, balance, relationships, equal, uh, equality. Yes. Um, and everything that has to do with marriages, divorce. So when Pluto moves into Libra, they start bringing awareness that divorce is an option. Why? Because Pluto is also the planet of death. Mm-hmm. Libra is the energy of relationships. Mm-hmm. So that's why people who are born under Pluto and Libra, um, they tend to have experienced a deep transformation of their relationships and understanding not like not understanding divorce, but understanding how to transcend divorce. But it's very normal with Pluto and Libra to go through a divorce at least one time in your life mm-hmm. because you come to experience death of a relationship and the rebirth of another one. Because before that, you got married and you stayed with that person forever in a way. And we're talking about the years. I wrote this down. Yeah. 83 to 95 are the dominant Libra years, right? Uh, no, that's Pluto and Scorpio before that. So it was from 72 to so, okay. 83. Oh, yeah, right. And so that's when the notion, which is true, of divorce started really coming into play. Exactly. The fairness. Do I have to stay in an unbalanced situation mm-hmm. or something that's really limiting me in some way? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Because that generation yeah. is the one that and that's it's it's a very key generation for what what we're gonna be experiencing in these next few decades in the world, which is understanding freedom in relationships and understanding that uh we are each other's mirror. Mm-hmm. So if you're not liking the person you're with, might also be that you're not liking a big part of yourself. Uh-huh. Why? Because Pluto is the shadow, Libra is the mirror. So with Pluto and Libra, you're going to be triggered a lot to be looking at yourself or your shadows in the mirror constantly. But it seems to me also on top of the relationship, mm-hmm. which is the big piece, mm-hmm. that also Libra brings in beauty. 
Yes. And so I see a lot of the entrepreneurs of the Libra age are the ones who have built businesses that are very ordered toward, you mm-hmm. know, transforming lifestyle. Like, yes, have a lot of Zen Buddhist art, uh, artifacts in your home, <laughs> a Lululemon, mm-hmm. um, you know, vegan cheeses and all mm-hmm. of these kind of gentle, beautiful, transitional types of uh, properties to mm-hmm. life, lifestyle in yes. particular, yoga. Yoga really came in under that. Mm -hmm. So Pluto is power. Mm -hmm. Libra is aesthetics, beauty, balance, uh, fairness also. So their superpower, that generation's superpower is their ability to make everything beautiful, to make everything likable. Yes. So like if a business started with Pluto and Libra or a person with Pluto and Libra creates a business, it's going to be very oriented on being likable, mm-hmm. on being like, the, like on connecting to mm-hmm. the consumer very well. Yeah. So of course they hold a very, very uh, profitable power. I they say. do for the aesthetics that they bring uh-huh. to the yeah. table. Yeah. And so we have aesthetics and we have deep transformation of relationships. Yes. And it's also a period of time where uh, women started gaining a lot more power. Why? Because Libra is the calibration of the masculine and the feminine as well. And Pluto is putting that calibration into play mm-hmm. by taking you into depth of strength of transformation so that you calibrate with that placement, calibrate your masculine and your feminine through your relationships. So the boomers started pointing fingers at millennials and mm-hmm. vice versa. Yeah. Gen Z, uh, Gen X got skipped altogether. It's like, I'm sorry. It's well, we, back when they were called the slacker generation, they weren't known for anything. Yet you say it, this brought a big relationship to yeah. health and well-being, and it just maybe it just wasn't sexy enough that it was known for anything. And maybe some of the boomer, boomer opportunities were starting to die back a bit because that was extreme expansion. Mm-hmm. So maybe by the time the Xers became adults, it wasn't as expansive. It was like a little harder to make things work. And so mm-hmm. maybe people took it a little easier. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But let's just skip now. Then we, so we have millennials and, and so the boomers are saying they are so entitled and lazy. Well, we raised them. So, <laughs> so let's talk That's about so that. Because my parents are both boomers. So. Exactly. We raised you guys and we wanted you to have it a little mm-hmm. easier than our tough depression era parents. Mm-hmm. That was the beginning of compassion and everyone getting a gold star, as they say, you know, in Mm -hmm. cliche terms. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that dynamic. Mm -hmm. Well, we need to understand also what was coming after the Pluto and Libra. Why is this really powerful? Mm -hmm. Why is this a generation that pretty much transforms everything? Because Scorpio is the home residence of Pluto. Mm -hmm. Pluto rules over Scorpio. And Scorpio is where Pluto, when Pluto gets there, what it, um, it's almost like where it experienced a death and a rebirth. So it's depth, it's sexuality, it's intimacy, it's, uh, fears, it's the occult, a desire to go for the occult. And what I find very interesting is that when Pluto moved into Scorpio, millennials were born and is when we started having the fear of sexuality because of sexual Illnesses. And this is when the whole movement toward incels and such started mm-hmm. where people and also the development of technology. I mean, these things obviously happen simultaneously. Yeah. Technology comes in to substitute flesh to flesh, face to face relationships. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's indicated that there's going to be more of a fear of relationship. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, fear of intimacy. Intimacy. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's part of the millennials' process, but that's why millennials hold a very key role because Gen Z, which is the following、um, generation, is completely unattached, and it's more. It's very based on that millennials were so deep, so. Like so, looking forward to connect deeply because of that Pluto connection, and then finding that so scary at the same time because of emotional dependency.、Mm-hmm. So,、um, yeah, we have Pluto and Scorpio, which represent holding a lot of power, holding a lot of depth and emotional intensity. And it's when therapy started to be a little more like. Known or a little more like it's a little normal to go therapy to therapy. Therapy started, but also in a less healthy way. A lot of division came with that.、Mm. A lot of blaming of others because of their perspectives.、Mm. A lot of social propriety. Yeah. What is the indicating factor of why that happened? So I feel this is very much where we're going forward because, in a way, it's making us very afraid of seeing who we truly are. So people are looking for almost like a tag to be like protected by,、mm-hmm. and we see this a lot in Gen Z. Like I have a yeah, very yeah, we're going there.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, I know, <laughs> we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> yeah, but、um, I feel that it all it all started there in a way、mm-hmm. because of the clash of millennials in a way of looking to move forward with things that are too scary. And what is too scary is to go within.、Mm-hmm. So、um, that's why Pluto and Scorpio holders are hold a lot of power, but at the same time, they're the it's the generation millennials. A lot of fear and rejection in there. There、too. you go. So now we go to Gen Z、mm-hmm. moving out of Scorpio, and their oldest ones are about twenty five now.、Mm-hmm. So we go to Gen Z moving out of Scorpio into Sagittarius. So Pluto into Sagittarius, and it's very related to what you were just saying, which is the Um, like demolishing a system of beliefs that is no longer valid. That see that I've said this before. I feel like the Z's are going to be hugely impactful. It's like they're here to burn the house down、mm. so we can start over. Yeah. Even though millennials bitch about the Z's now, everyone's bitching like because they don't seem to have the kind of work ethic that previous generations may、mm. have had, for example,、mm-hmm. and socially don't seem to care too much what their parents or anyone else thinks. So let's talk about that.、Mm-hmm. Well, they come to demolish the way everything was done, especially the way the culture was doing things.、Yeah. Society was was moving on because Gen Z. I, I'd even include like Pluto and Capricorn, which goes from two thousand and eight to twenty twenty four. Right. And also going back to Pluto and Sagittarius ninety five to two thousand eight, I feel that that's also when、um, we had a lot of、uh, extreme fanatism. Fanaticism, yes, yeah. extreme yeah. fanaticism. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah, very extreme beliefs. So, I personally see diseases being the ones that will maybe com- complete the tearing down of the old institutions and such that don't serve us.、Mm-hmm. You know, nothing. Revolution is always a little raggedy and ugly. Yeah, and so we can point fingers all we want, but they're still kids. 
as they get older and come into power, it'll be very interesting to see how they use that Sagittarian power. We don't know yet. They're too young. Mm-hmm. And so now even the, even the oldest Caesar giving birth to the next generation, which are going to be called, I guess they're being called the alphas. They're babies. Mm-hmm. Now, what generation is that? And what will we, so just cause we're looking at these big mm-hmm. trends, what will we expect? to come out of this Sagittarius into Capricorn mm-hmm. and Aquarius. Mm-hmm. So Sagittarius Pluto, as we just said, it was when religion starting to lose po- started to lose power because of yes. terrorism and nobody wanted to be so extreme anymore with their belief system. And that's the what the power of that generation, demolishing beliefs that are no longer suitable for us as a culture, as a society. Then moving on to the alphas, as you were saying, um, it, that's Pluto and Capricorn. So what are they going to be? They're babies. They're young. They're toddlers right now. I know. So Pluto and Capricorn started in 2008. Mm -hmm. That's where we, when we had a big collapse, financial collapse. Yes. So Pluto and Capricorn, that generation that goes till 2024. That's true. Some of them are teenagers now. Yeah, Yeah. Right. That go till 2024. I feel that what they're going to be known for is demolishing the old ways of building mm-hmm. companies, financials, the institutions, institutions form under mm-hmm. them. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's needed. Government. So yeah. when that's why with Pluto and Aquarius, which is the the upcoming After generation from twenty yeah, from twenty twenty four, twenty twenty five to twenty forty four. So it's a very long Pluto transit, this one, in comparison to to the other ones. But that's going to be building a brand new society, but a lot Back more. Back to where we started, Aquarius. Yes. yes, I know. Which is the thought, the, the ability mind. to create new solutions. Mm-hmm. Very, very finely tuned mind. Mm-hmm. And it's the, the code for evolution. So the alphas that went from 2008 to 2024 or 2025 that Pluto moves into Aquarius, they're going to be responsible for demolishing old ways, old structures, old ancestral patterns, demolishing the ways their parents did things, their grandparents did things, and breaking free of a mold that was too repressing. Perfect. It has mm-hmm. to go that way. Exactly. And then we're back to Aquarius. And we're back to Aquarius. <laughs> and it's interesting, Regina, because... Aquarius is the opposite of Leo, which is where we started yes, with the baby. That's boy. right. So finishing up with Pluto and Aquarius, I feel it's um, amazing to yeah. grab these generations because Pluto and Aquarius, um, it's going to be bringing an opening to sexuality, to matters of spirituality, and it's making the individual stand out because of their own abilities, that uniqueness that makes us stand out in the world. That is our soul. That is our consciousness. And in a way, it's a very big awakening of consciousness. But of course, Aquarius is also the energy of technology and Pluto is the energy of the shadow. So in a way, Pluto and Aquarius is showing us the hidden potential dangers the, yeah. in technology exactly. if we choose that path. Yeah. But again, these are the choices that will be made on a collective mm-hmm. soul level. Exactly. And it's going to make us be very fearful of what the future can bring because Aquarius holds the key to the future. Yeah. So we got to be aware of creating 
a very beautiful future and staying positive when creating it and not fall into fear. Like I know a lot of people who are very scared nowadays of technology and AI. And in a way, that's Pluto and Aquarius for us. That's interesting. And and it's understandable because we're seeing the detrimental effects already. Absolutely. However, it's not going away. We created it and we can use mm-hmm. it and have mastery over it for our own use. And that's going to be really interesting mm-hmm. to see how we want to participate. I know one thing that I'm seeing a lot of people do now right now is what is it called? Chat GP. Chat GPT. Yeah, chat mm-hmm. GPT, right. And people who are like, geez, I can just punch this in and I'm going to do it for me. Mm-hmm. That's a choice. But those choices, those minor little choices are going to be huge in the collective of the future, mm-hmm. I believe. Absolutely, because Aquarius is the collective mind. Yes, Ooh. do we stay engaged or do we give it over to AI? Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's giving too much power mm-hmm. to technology over us. Yes, And we are projecting our inner technologies. We're projecting our inner technologies onto our surroundings. Yes. Absolutely fascinating. I I love, I'm so glad we had this generational chat because people need to see the beauty and the the reason Mm -hmm. for what what might be perceived as chaos, Mm -hmm. resistance, you know, expansion, fear and all that. Mm -hmm. And I think you did a wonderful job articulating it. So any final thoughts? We're just about out of time. I take it back to the astral chart to take it back to your evolution and your growth as a soul, as a, as a con, like as consciousness living a human experience. Mm-hmm. And I'd say to go a little deeper into karmic astrology to understand your purpose, what you're here for. And I'm also very fascinated by relationships and astrology. How is your chart combining with another person's mm-hmm. chart? And I, it's one of my favorite topics in astrology to bring someone's energy onto my map, my astral chart to see how they're helping me. Cause you're each coming from your own perspective, as mm-hmm. we said in the beginning. Yes. And that's important to remember. No two people are coming from the exact same perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So seeing how that soul helps me align to my evolution, to my purpose into my past life or other timelines experience. Perfect. Well, I'm sure you have a lot of people that look to you for assistance on that level. Mm -hmm. Do you do readings still? Yes, I do readings and I teach. I teach teach people how to read their own astral chart. Yeah, that's even more powerful. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Very good. Well, it's been a pleasure meeting you. And I love the, the articulation and grace that you bring to the subject as well as the intuition. Thank you so much, Regina. I enjoyed it so much. (laughs) Fascinating discussion. I loved it. You can go to astromethod.com to connect with Mercedes and her work. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Okay, now this is going to be an interesting one. This is uh, walking on the wild side a little bit. George Nury does those things. Um, this is called Hollywood's Fear of the Paranormal. And so we go on here. Fear sells. Fear sells at the box office. Yet has Hollywood distance, uh, distance, uh, distanced us from the reality of the paranormal in film classics such as The Exorcist, 
paranormal arts trainer, Kadrick Olson, explains how similar energies attract and perpetuate activity through open portals between the physical and spiritual worlds. He sheds light on cases where horror cinema misses horror cinema misses the mark in depicting exorcism, hauntings, and the poltergeist effect. Movies play a role in conflating tools like the Ouija board and mediumship practices like seance with demonology in popular imagination. Drawing on Olson's research and expertise in spiritualism, he cites real-life cases of medical conversion disorder falsely attributed to demonic possession. Olson believes humans generate negative paranormal experiences as a product of the mind. Andrea Perron shares her real-life experiences with the paranormal and explains how Hollywood exaggerated her encounters with dark forces in The Conjuring. Olson suggests shifting our thought forms around dark forces with compassion and gently releasing false projections built by tail tales <laughs> exploited on the big screen will allow us to peacefully coexist with paranormal phenomena. I think we did it. We did. Okay, so this is 45 minutes. And so let's get started. Here we go. Welcome to Beyond Belief. Kadrick Olson is with us, a paranormal arts trainer who helps people learn how to coexist with the spirit world. He helps people understand supernatural events around them and what it means to live in a paranormal reality. Kedrick, welcome back to Beyond Belief. Thank you, George. I'm glad to be here again. How have you been? Things have been busy, really good. Lots of good stuff going on in the spirit world and the physical world. How did you first get involved in the spirit world? I was literally born into it. I grew up in a house that was very haunted. Ghosts were all around all the time. You know, they'd be turning the channel on the TV, turning on the radio, flickering the lights. Went to a spiritualist church, learned how to do seance, and was taking psychic development classes as a young child. You have become an expert on Hollywood films dealing with the paranormal. What do you like? What do you don't like about Hollywood? These movies are fun. They're a lot of fun to watch. You know, I kind of like horror movies. I grew up also watching horror movies, trying to be scared by it. But what I don't like is they tell us the wrong things about the paranormal. Oh, really? Yeah, they get us to, you know, I mean, they make great stories that are scary stories about the paranormal. And for years, 
you know, even before movies, people have been telling ghost stories to each other. So it's kind of ingrained in us. But when people have only access to the paranormal and the scary movies and the TV shows they see, they tend to think this is how the paranormal is. This is what the supernatural is like. So that when they have a supernatural paranormal type experience themselves, they default to what they learned in the movies, which is, as we'll see, not quite accurate. Is it because, and I'm talking about in terms of Hollywood now, it sells tickets? That's exactly it. You know, fear sells. So if you can get people in with a good, scary story, they buy into it. You get more people going to the show going, hey, what was so scary about that? I want to find out. Do they manipulate the truth? Oh, yeah. They'll take a little bit of what actually happened, spin it and spin it and spin it and tell a tale that's really extraordinary so that they can get people to, you know, go into buying into the what show is, what the movie is. But when you really see what the paranormal is like, it's kind of boring. I have a saying that dead people are boring. And when people have an actual paranormal experience, it's so subtle, so quiet. They're like, was that really what it was? You're not going to get people to buy into a movie when you have the real paranormal stuff in it. It's too scientific. (laughs) Too emotional, believe it or not. What would be some of the Hollywood films that you would say violate that? Just about all of them. Really? (laughs) There's a few that haven't. What was the first one? uh, The very first one that I would say that I saw, I was seven years old at my grandmother's house. It went back when HBO was a dish on the roof of the house, Uh you know, back in those days. And I was staying overnight, and my sister really wanted to watch The Exorcist. The original Exorcist. The original Exorcist. And, boy, did it scare the hell out of me. I couldn't sleep that night. Head spinning and all that stuff. The head spinning. The green green pea soup coming out. And the part that scared me the most is she wasn't in control of her own body. She wasn't in control of her own mind. So when I went to sleep that night in this new room all by myself, pitch black, I was there concentrating on what was my mind, what were my thoughts, and I very carefully went to sleep stage by stage, step by step, aware of what my consciousness was doing, because that's how much the movie scared me. I wanted to be in control of my own mind. Based on a real story, by the way. Yes, it is. From the research that I've done into it, I'm going to still use the term Roland Doe, because I know it's come out with the real name of who this child was, and I'm going to... Who has since passed on. Has since passed on. But I like to protect people's privacy. Okay. So I'm going to stay with Roland Doe. Was in 1949, started to exhibit certain behavioral traits. Baltimore, Maryland. Originally. Yep, exactly. Yep, in Maryland. Started to exhibit certain traits, having seizures, having problems. And the parents did look for a, a medical solution, which eventually the which, church... Which you in. should do first anyway. Exactly. And the church still today will insist that you find a medical solution first. But the priest insisted, hey... Now, this is a case of possession. We need to do our exorcisms, which they did several of before the boy was actually finally admitted to a psychiatric hospital for care. They took him to St. Louis. They did. I knew one of the priests that was part of the exorcist. He has died as well. Yeah. And they exorcised the boy in the Election Brothers Hospital. This is what's interesting about this, Kedrick. Mm-hmm. After the exorcism was done, they closed the room to that hospital and never let anybody go back in there. They then sold the furniture at auction to people. The people who bought the bed and the dresser experienced haunted things 
for the rest of while they have that. I have absolutely no doubt of that. Yep. Absolutely. And some of the insiders I've known and I've talked to that knew a little bit more about what was going on is, yes, they did do another exorcism in the hospital. And we're still talking in the 50s. You know, we're moving into the 49s to the 50s. And antipsychotic medication really hadn't quite hit the scene yet, hadn't really been quite there. But when the boy, Rolando, finally did get on a good regimen of medication, all of the problems stopped. That's what does that tell you? That it, this was a product of the mind. And this is how it's always you been. You don't think he was possessed? I don't think he was really possessed. Interesting. In fact. Well, how does that explain the haunted furniture? That, that's exactly how it explains that. Is because we as human beings are very powerfully creative entities. We create all sorts of spiritual beings. I'm not saying that they're not real. I'm saying they are real. But we create them. We generate them through our belief. We generate them through our emotions, through our thoughts. And so if we were to get a piece of furniture that has a tie to the exorcist and we believe that this was a demonic possession, we believe in the full paranormal experience that it happened, we will be generating. So you're saying you manifested it. We absolutely do. Well, the little boy, as he grew older. Mm hmm. Had a job, had a career. He's since passed on. I think he was in the space industry. That's what I heard right? as well. Yep. Did he ever have any episodes that we know of? From what I heard, no. That's intriguing. Once we, once they've got the, the medication set. And he stayed on his medication. He did fine. And it probably got better too as the years went by. Yep. Huh. And in many, many of the cases that we see of possession, They all have the same kind of traits. Somebody flopping around in bed using cuss words, you know, sweary words. They have a strict aversion to any sort of religious symbol to them. They might even have welts and blisters show up on their body. And the more prevalent these have become over the years, they're mimicking what we saw in The Exorcist. Interesting. However... What we're seeing in a lot, a lot of these cases of child, we're going to focus on children here, a child in bed who is involuntarily convulsing that may be spewing out offensive words or offensive things. Vulgarity. This could be very much related to something called psychogenic non-epileptic seizures which is a form of conversion disorder. Could they have Tourette's syndrome too? That could be part of it. And so where we get PNES, P-E-N-E-S, where we get this from, is it's a form of conversion disorder. There's some sort of trauma going on. There's some sort of PTSD, chronic PTSD going on. And this child is not able to express their emotional state. They're not able to express their emotional turmoil. And if you cannot express your emotions externally, the body will express it for you. What is conversion disorder? It is when you are super stressed out and you have a lot of stress going on, you will get ticks, you will get shakes, you will be uttering things that you are not in control of. It's because it is a subconscious way for the body to express that stress because you're not having a healthy outlet for that emotion. That's but but not everybody possesses this. Not everybody. Not a lot, not what everybody makes one person it? have it and another person not? We don't know yet. It's just like some people sneeze when the sun comes out. 
So a lot of people don't. Some people get ice cream headaches. It's the same kind of thing. Everybody's going to react differently to the same stimuli. So some people will develop PNES. Some people won't. Some people have different forms of conversion disorder. Some people won't. Interesting. Well, William Blatty wrote the book on The Exorcist, Mm -hmm. which was turned into the movie you just mentioned. Yes. He believed, interviewing people who knew him years ago, he believed the little boy was possessed. But you don't think so. I don't think so. And even Blatty said that this was a great way to get people to come into the church. Oh, no doubt. Yes. But the Catholic Church to this day employs well over a 100 exorcists all around the church, and they take this pretty darn seriously. They absolutely do, and they do have very strict criteria for what meets their possessions. What you know, They have to have the ability to speak in different languages. There has to be some sort of telekinetic phenomena going on. There's, there's a strict criteria of what's met. And, of course, you still have to go to the doctor. You have to have the psychiatric counseling. You've got to have the review of the doctor before the exorcist will take effect. But you know, that hasn't always been the case. Like even the case of Annalise McCall in Germany, who went through several exorcisms, who was determined that she did have some sort of a psychiatric problem going on, and she died of severe malnutrition, basically abuse, because the church insisted she was possessed. When no, it was a psychiatric disorder she had. Well, what if you have 10 people and five of them are psychotic, the other five are truly possessed by demons. Is that possible? Not in my experience. I've been doing this for decades. Literally, I grew up with it. I'm in my 50s now. It's not in my experience. When there is possession happening by the terms possession, it is not by a demonic entity. Think about this. If a demonic entity, if we go back to the the false hierarchy or we go back to the Goetia that describes the big demons, the 72 demons of classical demonology, these are gods from the Macedonian, from the Canaan, you know, the pre-Semitic religions that in the medieval times were demonized and turned into demons. And if an entity is that old, it is thousands of years old, five, six, seven thousand years old. Don't you think it would have something better to do than get into the body of a child, flop around, cuss, and puke? You would think. I would think. But what we do see in cases of possession, when there is a spirit in the body that has a little more control over that body and the decision-making that maybe it should have, it's actually not a demonic entity. It's actually a loved one that's moved on that thinks they know better. You know, you think about the moms that are kind of helicopter moms that are – the know-it-all, they're always nagging, hey, why aren't you doing this? Hey, why aren't you doing that? They pass on, and they're like, I don't like the way you're living your life. You need to be doing this. You need to be doing that. And the kid is like, I love mom. I love the way she was there. So there's this connection. So it's usually a loved one that's a little bit overbearing still in the afterlife that needs gentle convincing that it's time to move on. And we call that spirit release therapy rather than an exorcism. What would you say to the 100-plus exorcist priests today if you were at a conference and they were all there with you? Are you going to downplay exorcisms? No, but I would try to convince them of understanding the power of the human mind to generate the phenomena that, that appear as demonic possession. That if we can get a better understanding of human, the human mind, if we get a better understanding of what the paranormal and the spirit world is really like without demonizing it instantly, 
which is a big problem, I think, that's out there. Sure. We have the demonologists that will come into people's homes and say, oh, this is a demon, when it's really grandma, when it's maybe a lost little boy saying, hey, are who's they doing out there? For money? Some are. Some aren't. Be careful there. But there's that strong belief that they're dealing with demonic forces throughout the world. And again, I've been doing this for decades, and I haven't seen anything like that. I have seen scary things. I have seen some really spooky, awful things that are out there. And then once we shift the energy in the house, once we shift the inner beliefs of the people, the scary stuff stops. So are you saying you can explain every kind of weird situation? Oh, that would be boring if I could. I love going in. So and ex- do, you, do you open the window to the possibility that mm-hmm. there could be something demonic here? There could be. I just haven't encountered it. I haven't seen it. I've talked to people that said they have, and when I've explored it, looked into it, it turned out to be other things. What is the story behind The Conjuring? Now, The Conjuring, that's another one of those fun movies that kind of gets it wrong. When we look at that movie, it's about 1971, a family, the Perrin family moves into... A real story. It's a real story based on real events about the Perrin family moving into a rural house, and instantly the paranormal stuff happens. Now, in the movie... This is Andrea Perrin's story, so it's amazing stuff. She does great work, but she will even say that the movie got it wrong. That, yes, the real events that they were experiencing, definitely things were happening. Things flew across definitely, the world. Yeah. Anything like that. Definitely some scary stuff happened. But there were also a lot of really, really good things that happened. A lot of amazing and beautiful things that happened in that house, as well as some of the scary stuff. But she said the movie... If I'm getting her story right, exaggerated it, really spun like we were talking before, can right. spin some of, some of these things. Who does that, as you said? Exactly, because it, it gets butts and chairs and sells tickets, which was, what's the point of it, right? And it's entertainment. Well, did the conjuring really happen? Some of the things did. From my understanding of what was going on is there are natural portals all over this planet. Some we can create artificially. And this house was situated in a place where there was a portal. There were all sorts of beings, all sorts of entities from all walks of life coming through there. Not only dead people, but advanced beings, lower level beings, multiple types of beings coming into that house. And some of them had their own agendas. Some of them didn't. Some of them really liked the house the way it was. And when the family started adjusting things in the house, they got upset, which I've seen happen quite a bit. Yes. But ultimately, it was a portal. And what I think is going on here is I've got like a list of nine rules of interacting with the paranormal. And we'll talk about some of these here. But the main one is similarities attract and perpetuate, meaning whatever your mindset is, is you're going to draw to you and you're going to create that around you. So let's take a Ouija board. One of your most favorite things in the world, right, George? You know that. You know that. I grew up believing a Ouija board is nothing more than just a piece of wood with decoration. That's how I started, too. Until. Until, exactly. But it's what you believe that to be. And this is one of the things about the exorcist is prior to the exorcist, the Ouija board was a great, beautiful tool. People used it all the time. It wasn't a big deal. It was deal. a game. It was just a game. But the exorcist, because of uh, Reagan's encounter with Captain Howdy through the Ouija board, turned the Ouija board into some sort of a demonic tool. Exactly. So now today, when people see a Ouija board, they'll go, oh, they freak out. they'll freak out. But it's still just a piece of wood with letters on it. <laughs> it's what you put into that, what you project into it. And so if a person is living in a home that has an open, active portal on it, 
and they experience a paranormal thing and they go back to their default of what they see in the movies and the TV shows. Oh, this is demonic activity. This is scary. This is spooky. This is awful. They're going to be generating fear energy in droves. They're going to have this expectation that it's evil. It's awful. It's terrible. It's bad. They're coming to get me. Similarities attract and perpetuate. They start creating that experience for themselves. Tell me about the late Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ed and Lorraine Warren. These are exactly what I'm talking about. They are demonologists. You know, they were the best. They, I really will give them credit. You know, in the seventies, they brought to light the paranormal phenomena to the more mainstream. A lot of people recognize that, oh, we don't live in just a physical mundane world, that there is a spiritual side to what's going on. However, being demonologists, everything they encountered were demons. Did the worms affect the spirit world? They did. They absolutely did. Because they were demonologists and they expected everything to be demons, they could go into a house where maybe it was just a mischievous spirit. Maybe it was, you know, they had an old nosy neighbor that was messing with things. But no, it's a demon. And because they convinced everybody in the house that it was a demon, because they brought their authority. They were very much authority figures. They brought their authority into this situation, convinced everybody it was a demon. Now we're generating scary, demonic activity. Meanwhile, there's probably a ghost in the house or spirit of person in the house going, huh, I don't, I don't huh. want this. I don't need this. You mentioned the Perrin family. Mm -hmm. One of the children who lived in the house, Andrea Perrin, explains changes in paranormal activity when the Warrens showed up. Let's look. Things had actually been relatively quiet in the house before the Warrens came, and they showed up just before Halloween in 1973. So we'd already lived there for a couple of years, and a great many uh, experiences had happened at that point. We did not know who they were when they came to the door. My mother uh, just opened the door and she let them in the house. It was cold outside. They were obviously a harmless middle-aged couple that she assumed were lost in the woods. And when they identified themselves, she had no idea who they were. We didn't know anything about paranormal anything. We were just living in a haunted house and trying to get used to the fact that we were living in a haunted house. Uh, when the Warrens came in, um, it changed everything. It shifted the energy. Suddenly, our family was under scrutiny. My father didn't trust them any farther than he could pick them up and throw them. My mother thought perhaps they were some type of an authority uh, having to do with paranormal supernatural activity. The Warrens really stirred the pot for all intents and purposes, foisted a seance that Mrs. Warren insisted was necessary in order to determine who the culprit was. It certainly wasn't Bathsheba that came through and picked my mother up and threw her 20 feet into the next room and knocked her unconscious. Whatever it was was so powerful that it could have killed her if it wanted to. I witnessed that event and Mrs. Warren said that my mother was suffering from oppression and that the next step was possession. And they wanted to know who was causing this problem. They brought a medium with them who threw open wide the doors to the netherworld, literally conjured the spirits and brought every energy that she could into that house. She ended up unconscious on the table in the dining room. 
My mother ended up unconscious on the floor in the parlor. My father threw the Warrens out and told them never to come back again, told them to take their entourage with them, used some very unsavory language. That's the night that I learned some of those words and um, basically expelled them. She seems to be blaming the Warrens for these episodes. This goes back to what I was saying about similarities attract and perpetuate, that they lived with such a powerful portal. Their experiences were very real. They were definitely encountering supernatural entities. And if you were to bring in a medium and demonologist into the room to connect with that powerful of an energy with the belief and the expectation that you're dealing with evil demonic forces, that's exactly what you're going to get. Now, with being similarities attract and perpetuate, when I teach people seance, I teach them to say to set up protective space internally, to set protective space around them, to move their mind into a higher state of being. And when they're in this protective state doing these kind of seances, they could be in a portal of that kind of strength and that kind of power. But that similarity that they're putting out there, they're only going to attract the higher level beings that have a better understanding of what's happening, a clear understanding, and they will always have a positive experience of what's going on. Why did it seem, though, Kedrick, that this house had so much paranormal activity there? I'm not sure what created that portal. I'm not sure if it may be a combination of the minerals in the, the land there or if that there was some Native American activity that created that or if it's just a natural phenomenon, maybe something to do with the magnetic fields of the Earth. I'm not really sure. But no doubt there is there a portal there. going on there. Yep. And I will recommend people to read Andrea's book, the, the series of books, literally, uh, House of Darkness, House of Light, where she goes into more detail about what's in the house and what they experienced. And she's got great stories in there about how, yes, it was scary. But once they learned that it was a paranormal place, once they learned to be there, it got better. Well, let's it's listen to easier. more of Andrea and her stories about energy inside this house. Yes. I have always described it as a portal cleverly disguised as a farmhouse. And there's a reason for that because the energy there is so, it's unlike any other place that I have ever been on earth. I think that's fair to say. And it was such a swirling vortex of energy that we never, never knew if we were in 1974 we were in 1832, we were in 1767, based on the entities and the experiences that we had. But I do know for sure that even though there were dark entities, certainly one uh, and possibly more uh, at the farm, there were also benevolent, loving entities who would watch over us. So she's convinced there's something going on there. Absolutely. I am too. I think she's absolutely right. I think the work she's bringing to the world and the message she has is spot on. And I would love for more people to read her work and understand what her experiences really entailed. Kedrick, what's a portal? A portal is an opening between two worlds. It is where we can sit in between the physical and the spiritual world. And it enables spirits to move back and forth between the worlds. A good example of how I use portal type working is in doing seances. Quite often a spirit will come through that's stuck. They're stuck on this side of the world. They haven't quite crossed over into the spirit world and they need a little help to cross over. 
So I'll tell them to look over their left shoulder and they'll see a light there. And in that light are people that they know, they remember, that love them, that can take care of them. Now, by doing that, it's sparking their memory. It's sparking their emotion. It tunes their frequency in to their loved ones, to their memories. And that is what's opening up that portal. It's creating this connection to their loved ones that are on the other side that are like, hey, it's time to come home, come here. And once they cross over, it's interesting. You can feel the room shift. It's like somebody slams a door, but you can't hear a door slam. You can just feel the air pressure just kind of bounce. You know something's happening. You know something's happening. How do people tell if their house has a portal somewhere? That's a very good question. If they're the first thing to look at is their paranormal phenomena going on. And okay, lights flickering could be get an electrician. Check it out. Cold spots in the room. Is it the air conditioning? Is it drafts? Get these things checked out. If doors are moving That's on their cool. own, again, always remove the mundane first. But if it happens over and over and you get these things checked out, you start seeing things shift your energy state. Move to a higher state. Connect with what your sense of the sacred is, your sense of peace and calm, because you're going to start generating that. If you feel fear, have a laugh. Seriously, if you feel something fearful, laugh at it, because that will shift the energy of that moment, that if there's a negative entity, it'll start moving away. But then if you start seeing it over and over and over, you're going to want to be in that higher state of mind because of similarities to tracking and perpetuating. The other rule is you are in charge of the energetic environment around you. So if you have a portal or suspecting a portal, work on your inner work. Shift your emotions to a higher state. Move out of fear. Move out of anger. Try not to be so upset about things. Move to a higher state of mind more often. Do your meditation work, your connections to higher being work. And that will shift the energy of that portal to be a more positive connection. I was going to say, can portals be good? They're mostly good. The, the way that they fall to bad is us. Like if we see a paranormal phenomena going on, again, people are going to default to what they see in the movies because that's your only experience with it. And they're like, uh-oh, this is demonic activity. They're in a fear state. They're in a lot of anxiety, nervousness. They don't understand what's going on. That's going to shift the energy and start generating the negative stuff around them. Okay, Jerk, what's the story behind The Changeling? The Changeling is a movie that came out in 1980 starring George C. Scott. Scared the heck out of Patton. Yes. It was about a composer moving from New York City to Seattle. And when he moved into this house, paranormal phenomena started happening. You know, a ball rolling across the floor, something trying to push him down the stairs, being chased around by a wheelchair. Only for him to find out that it's a spirit of a little boy that's angry and upset because it was murdered by his father and then replaced. In that house? In that house and then replaced. But... It's based on a true story here in Denver, Colorado. Really? Mm-hmm. In Denver, Colorado, of course, the author's name is escaping me right now, but that's okay. was about an author who moved into a house. Paranormal stuff started happening. And it's really an amalgam, from my understanding, of the story of Dr. Robert Bradley. Dr. Robert Bradley is... Real guy? Real guy. He is the inventor of the Bradley method of childbirth. Happened to be my mom's obstetrician when she was pregnant with me and he was one of the consultants on the changeling because he too lived in a house down in denver and his story is coming down to his parlor late at night he went to go pick up his cigar case and it kind of flew out of his hands lifted up and fell back on the table 
he went into the scary state. He went into the, oh my God, what are you going to do to me kind of thing. And all sorts of bad things happen. Like he has a scar and had a scar on his neck. He's passed now. He's in the other world. He had a scar on his neck where a mirror broke the and cut him, cut him lights flickering. There was a 200 pound chandelier that would bob up and down and sway around in there. Yeah. How do you explain this? Exactly. A lot of stuff was going on. And how I explain this is it was a compound haunting. And what I call a compound haunting means first there's something really going on. There's really a spirit in the house. Then when you have the paranormal phenomena, you go into that fear state and you are creating what's called a thought form. And a thought form is just a little ball of energy programmed with scare me, scare the heck out of me. And that's what it did. It would be there and it would pump him with fear energy. So he would generate fear energy. And that's how the thought form exists. Now, if we're not able to express our emotions again, if we're not able to let them out, we generate what's called the poltergeist effect. What is that? That is where we start using our telekinetic ability to throw things around the house, to move chandeliers, to flick lights on and off, to make the really scary spooky so stuff So we're making happen. that happen? That's exactly my experience. We're the ones generating it. Interesting. And this is what Dr. Bradley discovered is he eventually had had go with seances. He had to bring in a medium to figure out what was going on. Did they? Yep. And they found out that it was a little boy living in that house. The one who died. Yep. The one who died. And the story of the little boy was it had a club foot and the servants were carrying out one day to go bring it to the horse and carriage back in those days, back that far away. And the servants accidentally dropped the boy, the horse and carriage ran over the boy and the boy died. Oh my gosh. And the parents couldn't handle the embarrassment of it all. So they very quietly adopted another boy and tried to replace, tried to replace it. Meanwhile, this little child is walking around the house going, but where is everybody? Where, where am I? Where am I? And he had a favorite little ball, this boy. And the boy would occasionally roll the ball around the house because that's what boys do. Yeah. In those days. Yep. But now when the people living in the house see it, they're going to this ghost stories mode. They're going to, Oh my God, there's a demon in the house. What are you going to do to me? Right. When the doctor realizes he's a doctor, he's an obstetrician. He loves kids. He loves babies, right? He realized there was a frightened little boy in the house. And he went through what I call the compassion the spirit shift. Of a frightened the little spirit boy. of a frightened little boy in the house. And this is what I call the compassion shift, where you move from, oh, my God, what are you going to do to me, to, oh, is there a way I can help you? Once he did that, the bad stuff stopped, completely stopped. He was now living in a very beautiful way with a little boy in the house. The doctor would have two seances a month in there and all of the scary stuff completely stopped because he shifted his internal energy, his internal emotions, which changed the energy around him. And the scared little boy was just fine. And that's where the compassion comes in. That's exactly where the compassion comes in. And that's the kind of thing I teach people all the time. If there's bad stuff going on in the house, if you're experiencing the poltergeist effect, things are flying around and you're having a really negative experience with your house. It's real. It's really happening. I'm not going to discount that. It's true. But instead of going, oh, my God, what are you going to do to me? Go to, oh, is there somebody that needs help? Now, people might initially say, okay, you do that. You're going to open yourself up to attack because you're now open. No, if there is something negative and you are bringing a compassionate, loving energy into that, this negative thing is not going to like that. It's going to feel that and it's going to be like, ooh, I'm out of here. 
So which means you got to double down. You just keep putting out the compassion energy. How can I help you? How can I serve? Is there some help that you need? How can I help you? And if there really is a spirit in the house, it'll tune into you. It'll tap in. And you get that little message of like, hey, yeah, can you do this for me? And you resolve that and you help that spirit cross over. Gone. Interesting. Andrea Perrin talks about her sister visiting the house decades later and the things that they went through. The light spirits didn't want us to interact with the dark spirits, nor did they want the darker entities to haunt or taunt us in the house. And in fact, my sisters, Nancy and Cindy, went back to the house. We left in 1980 and in 1996, they went back to the house to visit who was the current owner at the time. And she invited them into the house. And both of them had their faces touched and their hair stroked. And they both felt that she was holding back something that was much darker. And simultaneously, they both heard, oh, my God, it's you. You're back. Now, there's no explaining that. There's no explaining it. But both of them said that they felt protected in those moments. And my sister Cindy has always said that the spirits couldn't come with us because the the good ones loved us and they would have come if they could. She felt that they were trapped there. She to this day feels that they are trapped there. And there's no explaining this. We might not ever have the answers to exactly who they were. To me, it doesn't matter who they were in life, that they still are in afterlife. That's all that matters to me. That's the miracle. That's the magic of that place. Magic being science that we don't yet understand. She got very emotional there. What did you think of that? Yep, absolutely. And she's right. Vast, vast majority of the spirits in the spirit world are very kind, very benevolent, very protective. There might be some wonky things out there that we need to be watch out and watch, be careful of, you know, people who have been misguided. People are people, right? In lifetimes, sometimes we're not so good at people. You cross over, you still might not be so good. So there's some work to be done. And then there are such things as egregores, which are still, are they? these are human generated spirits by our belief. So if we were to talk about an abandoned insane asylum, about all the horrors that went on there, about the spirits that are there, about the negative experiences, our collective belief will create what I call the, a big nasty. It's an egregore, a collectively created entity that is one of those big, nasty, scary things that live in there that thrive off of our belief, that thrive off of our fear, and will do the things to support that and promote that. And so we will find some of these negative things out there, and it will seem like those spirits are trapped in those places because they're feeding that egregore what it needs, but ultimately we're the ones feeding it through our belief. See, I don't think the movies intentionally try to deceive people from the truth. They're not documentaries. Correct. They're movies. They're entertainment. They're there to get people to watch you and come and sell your millions of dollars worth of movie tickets. I absolutely agree with you. They're fun. And if we remember that they are entertainment and completely fiction, correct. That's absolutely true. The only problem that I have is when people start taking that this is reality because well, they don't how many have anything people else. do that a lot, a lot. 
because they don't know the difference. And that's one of the things I'll relate back to the parent family is imagine they were trained to coexist with the paranormal. Imagine that when they went into that house, they were taught that the supernatural is a completely natural part of our world and that we co-create and we can live with it. We can interact with it and experience it. I'm betting all of their experiences would have been so much better if people like the Warrens didn't assume everything were demons that they're going into people's houses and teaching them how to coexist with this energy, how to share this space with these beings, because we are spiritual and physical beings ourselves. We are the other half of this equation of the natural world. So we can coexist. So imagine if people are taught that instead, we could still watch these scary movies and have a great time, but then we go home and hang out with the spirits in the house and say, Hey, how you doing, Charlie? Having a great day. Hope you I would too. guess Kedrick, if I were an executive doing a movie, I would do it the exact same way they're doing it today, and that is make it exciting and interesting and fascinating. I agree. I just want more out there in addition to the movies to help people realize the beauty and wonder of the paranormal. Well, you're talking documentaries, but how many people will watch a documentary compared to an entertaining movie? Exactly. That's why I love the work we're doing here, George. I love the questions you're asking, and I love that your audience is here learning these things and being exposed to this other side of things because we're opening minds and we're helping raise people's spiritual beings to a higher state of being to realize it isn't so scary. It's real. It's real. And we're helping people to see that. What has ever scared you in your life? People. Really? People scare me, you know, turning on the news and seeing what's going on in the world. That's horrible. That's kind of really scary stuff. And, but in the supernatural, since when I was a kid, yes. I had a hard time going to sleep because there were spirits in the house and I was really mostly exposed to the movie. So I had a hard time going to sleep as a kid. The exorcist scared the heck out of me. But over the years, as I worked with my whispers, my guides, my teachers, and I learned how to interact with those energies and the spirits, it's gone. Did you ever let your arm rust over the bed? (laughs) That scared me. Yeah. I always thought there was something underneath it. And I don't like clowns either. Clowns are spooky. You know, it's very spooky. What movies do you think get it right? There are some. There are some that actually get it right. The Others is one of them that I think gets it right. The Nicole Kidman movie. And then there's the Robin Williams movie. I love that movie. Oh, yeah, it was a great movie. The Robin Williams movie, What Dreams May Come. That's another one I think gets things right. Yeah. The Robin Williams, What Dreams May Come was a classic. Yeah, What Dreams May Come based on the work of Emanuel Swedenborg, who was taken out of his body by his guides, his teachers, the angelic beings, and shown different places on the other side, the, uh, uh, the other world, right? The spirit world. So that he could see the good, the bad, the ugly, the wonderful, the fact that the humans themselves, us, we create our own afterlife. And that was what was reflected in this movie when the doctor, played by Doc Robin Williams, died. He literally went into a painted landscape of his own creation. And when he was able to finally adapt, when he was able to finally get out of this blurry phase and adapt to the afterlife, he went into more of like a communal space where there's shared creativity, where people can kind of collaborate together. But there were still those dark places. There were still those places where people, where they feel that they needed maybe some negativity. And in real life, he ended up in a dark place. Robin Williams? Yeah. Yeah. Took his unfortunately, whole his whole life. Whole sad story. It is a really sad story. He's a beautiful man, did some beautiful work, and 
It's just unfortunate, the internal pain he was going through. I'll always remember that scene in What Dreams May Come, where he was stepping on the heads of people in heaven or hell, where, where, wherever they were. Mm-hmm. Remember that one? Yep. Squashing them. Exactly. And that's one of those things that we kind of find. When my own guides took me on different journeys to the afterlife, to the other world, to show me things, they once showed me a place very similar to that. Not the same thing, but a very similar. It was a bunch of people standing around with their eyes just glazed over. They're just like staring off into space. And there was like a whole field of them. And I said, what's going on here? What am I seeing? And they told me, this is hell. And I'm like, what do you mean this is hell? Each and every one of these people here believe that they were a bad person in life and that they have to atone for something through some sort of personal torment. So they are living through that torment in their own inner world. And I'm like, how do they get out of this? Can they? And I was told, yes, look carefully. There are other people standing around them, whispering to them. So when they wake up a little bit, they go, do I really have to be here? A whisper will be like, no. What do you think is out there different? I love that. And then they'll sink back into their, their torment till they come back out a little bit. And they're like, well, how do I get out of here? Think about something wonderful. Think about something good. And then maybe they will, and then they'll come out of it. So the, the the dead are not eternally tormented. It is just their own personal thing that they go through. And once they realize with their own free will, they don't have to be there. They can use their own free will to get out of it. And there are whispers there to help them get out of it. Okay, Jerk, what do you recommend people do if they think their house is haunted? Have fun with it. The reason why I'm saying have fun with it, laugh at it, have a sense of awe and wonder. When I teach, Until it throws a knife at you. <laughs> even if it does throw a knife. This is what I tell uh, ghost hunters, paranormal investigators, because I'll train them to keep safe. I tell them that if you see something fly across the room or you see like that black mist forming in the middle of the room, have a moment to go, wow, that's really amazing. You can do that. Do it again. Or if it's something making you feel fearful or uncomfortable, uneased, have a laugh. Laugh at it because remember similarities attract and perpetuate. If this thing is trying to scare you, if it's trying to put you into a negative emotional state, you're going to be generating the energy that will support its behaving that way. But if you, you can feed move it. to, uh, yeah, you're feeding it. But if you can have awe and wonder, you can have laughter, you can play with it, you have fun with it, it'll push the negative stuff away. And if it really is like grandma coming to say hi, if it really is a little kid, playing in the house, then you're going to generate this positive, powerful, wonderful energy that they're going to connect with you. And you're going to realize, oh, hi, Grandma. It's been a long time. How have you been? That was you messing with a book on the shelf. And you're like, what book is it you're messing with? And you pull it off the shelf and go, oh, yeah, I remember when we read that. Now you can connect with her instead of like, going, what's that moving the book? Why? Kedrick, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Thank you. Enjoy this, George. Got to get you back again. There's way too much material to cover with you. Indeed. I look forward to that. We will do that, indeed. So if you think your house is haunted, you want to deal with someone like Kedrick Olson and get him to come and help you. But as he said, laugh at it. I'm George Norrie, and thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Oh, my God. Okay. Rama's got that Hobbit thing on the TV. And, oh, my goodness. But um, Rama's going to get 
the music and maybe a little something to share from one of the wise teachings. But uh, I'm going to read Caroline's message while he does that. Uh, and, uh, oh, we got to ask for uh, Rainbird. Doug, if you can hear me, just let's call in Rainbird here, if you would. Hope you can hear me. Or Rama will call you if, if we don't see something here magical in the moment. Okay, so a message to bring to light bringers. This is September 14th, 2023, which was Thursday. This week's guidance from the Ascended Masters, Galactics, Earth Elements. Make sure you see that first before you go in there. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yes. And then you got to call Doug because I don't see anything happening here. Um, okay. Um, this week's guidance from the Ascended Masters, Galactics, Earth Elements, Fairy Elders, Angelic Legions, Archangels, and other divine beings known as the Collective. Greetings, friends. This week, our writer has a question for us and also for a friend who was and is a powerful light bringer and who crossed over returning to the higher realms a few years ago. And so, we welcome all questions now. So Caroline says, hi everyone, it's Caroline. And this week, I am asking the collective now, how Nasara can be birthed, can be enacted, when things are so upside down on our planet right now. Not only are so many people going through such intense and difficult things in so many parts of the world, rather also those who are here to anchor higher light into earth life and to follow their own ascension path. We are also feeling a bit upside down. So, many people are feeling exhausted and dizzy, unable at times to recognize parts of their lives that may now feel to be irrelevant, not in resonance with the vibration they are now carrying. It is just, it just strikes us as odd that this is happening just as this powerful solar light is coming in and transforming so much. We will turn the page. Uh, And yes, I follow that all the dross, all the old trauma has to rise to the surface in order to be healed or released and transmuted. Nothing surprising there. Yet then we wonder at our ability to rise to the many difficult moments happening now, and we doubt our ability to withstand the temptation to feel bad or feel nervous about what's happening on the planet. A lot of people are concerned 
that the banks or credit unions will fail, that their health will fail, that more medical mandates will be pushed on us and our children that are not of our choosing. So let's, so it's true what they say. The dark has gotten darker, even as the light has gotten lighter. Ram, call up, call, call Doug up. Yes, you had to do that. This is, I know, similar to the question. No, he did not. And if you want to write, you can, but you still got to watch and then you got to call anyway. This is, I know, similar to the question that I asked, asked for last week's channeling. Yet, with the differences that I am asking, how does Nasara fit into all of this? How does its path to enactment, how is that progressing in the light of all of this? So, I'll ask you to come in now and to answer this. And they will offer us real energetic support as well as always. And then the collective responds, well, greetings, dear ones. We do follow what you describe. And we wish to assure you that Nasara could not occur in a business-as-usual environment on your planet. <laughs> the reason the old power crowd as you aptly name them, the old as in defunct now, the reason that they have launched all of these attacks, such as the extreme weather and fires, human trafficking, political upheaval, economic uncertainty, etc., is that they see Nasara looming, oh, ever closer on the on the horizon, and that infuriates them beyond all reason. Hence, their extreme response. Of course, they consign themselves to an even heavier list of crimes with every one of these efforts to which they are already answering many of them in the courts of divine justice. Okay, fantastic. Fantastic. Then go get the music and uh, something that you know you want to share. Many of their leaders have already been taken off planet and detained to be tried in galactic and intergalactic courts of justice. Their human aspect has been replaced by clones or other technologies that mimic their physical appearance so that all appears as it was. (laughs) These ones long ago forgot that they are part of the light and made conscious decisions to separate their interests and intentions from that of the higher realms. They made conscious decisions. (laughs) They made conscious decisions to withdraw their soul presence from the light and to placate 
those who have been using their consciousness as fuel by which to draw others into the same. They have indulged themselves in the very short-term gains of material power in exchange for loss of soul essence and individuated consciousness, a very dark business. We do not elaborate on this except to say that they are being allowed these last moments of free expression not to hold earth and her people in tension and upset, rather to give these ones who have long run from the power and presence of the light a last chance to rejoin the presence and overwhelming love of she who is the life force of all you see around you and to recover those lost parts of themselves once given over to dark purpose yet how now standing in full view of that light which some are choosing to rejoin yet this portal of light does not remain open indefinitely turn the page Okay. They have been informed on a number of occasions by emissaries of the light forces and by Archangel Michael himself that as they do not return to the light by a particular moment on the current timeline, they will have lost their opportunity. Not because anyone wishes to close the door upon these ones, rather because Earth's own vibration is fast rising to where they will no longer be a part of her daily life and experiential reality. And so, universal law, which you refer to often as quantum physics, yes, we had two physicists of quantum wisdom, and Teresa Ballard and Nassim Haramin, what a combo. <clears throat> Again, but because Earth's own vibration is fast rising to where they will no longer be a part of her daily life and experiential reality. And so, universal law, which you refer to often as quantum physics, and its laws of vibration, also comes into this. Though the physical world is a hologram, the experiences of solar and planetary life are very real. And the shifts in consciousness created there are experienced as a soul level, at a soul level. What the spirit and consciousness experience in an earth life and in many other dimensions often holds great complexity. Yes, you have all come forward at this time with open hearts ready for transformation and transmutation in whatever forms they might come. You will know how close you are to desire, dear ones, in that not only will these intense and difficult events be occurring, rather also great breakthroughs in mass consciousness also are occurring. You are aware <clears throat> that many have caught <clears throat> Excuse me, I've caught on to the orchestrated events. 
whoops, <laughs> I'll preview everybody. <clears throat> I'll see, where was it? Though the physical world is a hologram, the experiences of solar and planetary life are very real, and the shifts in consciousness created there are experienced at a soul level. What the spirit and consciousness experience in an earth life and in many other dimensions often holds great complexity. Yet you have all come forward at this time with open hearts, ready for transformation and transmutation in whatever forms they might come. You will know how close you are to Nusara, dear ones, in that the, not only will these intense and difficult events be occurring, rather also great breakthroughs and mass consciousness also will be occurring. You are aware that many have caught on to the orchestrated events that have occurred lately that have meant destruction of whole towns and communities in different parts of the world. The idea that so many millions would be questioning the, the official narrative as to the cause of these events is astounding and would have been unheard of even a few years ago. The fact that so many children are coming in now, remembering star languages, speaking easily with presences of nature, including crystals and rock minerals, understanding the life that is in food and water, speaking to family and to one another of past lives they lived and life in the higher realms. All of this is a miracle compared to what was once normal, third-dimensional life. Do not doubt that the spirit of Nasara is being birthed in these ones and in all who choose to awaken now, and that their and your light is far more powerful than any outer event or situation. That path leads directly to Nasara's enactment. As fully as any actions taken by the light forces or any archangel, we borrow often from the Hopi elders' prophecy that you are the ones that have been, you have been waiting for. And we say it now as well. And so we send you much love all is turning toward the light now. Namaste. Oh, there's a little bit more here. No, 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 no. I think that's it. It is. Tis. No, there's another little bit. All right, here we go. That's this is Caroline, everyone. Again, thank you so much to the collective. I feel we are in a harrowing position on this planet. Yet, you're right, not a doomed one. And you have confirmed a lot that I and others have also felt. So, now I am going to call on my wonderful friend Shirley, who, while on earth, in this 
and I'm sure many other lives, was an outstanding, astounding psychic, a wonderful energy worker who shared the power of numbers, sacred geometries, a higher vision math that was not not mired in 3D restrictions. And so I am going to ask her, though she's in spirit form now, that she has passed on out of this earth life. I'm calling her in to ask, do you see, Shirley, the barriers between humanity and the Sara being lifted now? Because I would love your particular outlook here. So I will bring Shirley in now. Shirley, in spirit, namaste, my sister, and all reading or hearing this. You are all my relatives. I am thrilled to be here with you. Of course, you're all impatient for Nisara. That's not surprising. I would too in my last turn on the earth. It's it's easy to doubt that it's happening or that the path can be created for that. Yet I'll share what I can since not everything can be spoken spoken of. You're probably you have probably heard the white knights of the Ashtar command saying that as they gave a date for Nasara's enactment that would powerfully influence so much on the earth's timeline in ways that go against universal law, even universal love. You have to have your freedom of creation. So all of us honor that. Yet you are not so far off as you might think. Remember that it's your own light, your own inner decisions, your own vibration that determines so much. It's easy to think while you're in a human body that it's all down to what happens no to what happens to and around you really nothing happens to you it happens because of you and everyone on the planet now yet one beautiful thing is that there are more light bearers in places of influence now influence in the old 3D sense of elected officials and those who work with them. They are turning their wheel in ways the old crowd think is non-consequential. So those movements are not opposed or destroyed. This is only due to the light that all of you hold as you prepave the way to a new earth. These ones can only do what they do to assist humanity and Lady Gaia because you are all holding enough light for those events to happen naturally and smoothly without a hitch. Another thing happening that the collective already pointed out is that the masses are awakening to the old crowd's map machinations and cleverness 
So many now are seeing through the mass media news reports. So many are creating their own news reports on the scene, on this, on the scene and posting them in social media and video platforms. This is so empowering. All of us are thrilled to see this. It was breaking through a bit when I was on earth last. Yet now, only two years later, it's moving forward in powerful ways. This movement will only gather momentum. As one platform is restricted or silenced, ten others pop up in its place. You have already decided that. On mass. Another thing that's beautiful and very helpful is that ET involvement has stepped up and moved forward in ways that would not have occurred even five years ago. And uh, then there's a picture uh, at the Taos Plevel of the Golden Hour. It's it's uh, it's a uh, uh, it's one two three four five six at least six uh, lenticular cloud ships there. <laughs> I know the place. I've been living up there long many years. Ships are landing in so many more places and speaking with the locals there, inviting them aboard the ship speaking with them about what's happening on the earth now. Some ETs have been invited. Others have responded to calls made on a soul level by those who experienced the landings and this very immediate form of contact and full disclosure of the ET presence. Yes, that's also unfolding. You can already see that with your own eyes, with these congressional hearings and similar events. All of this because the old veils are dissolving so quickly. You couldn't keep up if you tried. The old facade held in front of government and all its corporate arms and extensions. All of that is dissolving now. And yes, there is a lot of misinformation and disinformation on the internet and you will need to check to check in with your guides and ask if something is true or not and if it's right for your past. Turn the page, coming to the end. Yes, we're at the last little wee hours here. If you see things that you know are, are, what's that, that word? Are blatant lies put out there as groundbreaking anti-establishment insider truth. No need to get riled and angry about it. Just let go. And don't feel the need to argue or deny what's being said that you know deep down is completely wrong. Just bless them. Send them light and more and move on. The old governing structure has many guises, many faces by which to draw people in so that they think they are being these incredible rebels who are awake and aware when in fact it's just another trap for human consciousness. Again, just send them light 
and move on with your day. Don't get caught up in the drama. They make their money that way. The people who put out these videos, they want to bring people's energies down. No need. Just keep your eye on the path and keep your eye on the prize. It's still there. You know, I used to channel many historical figures when I was still in an earth life. And I have spoken here with the soul who was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his last earth life. He's pointed out to me that while anger can spur someone to on to create change, it is never a good idea to base your plans and purpose on reaction. There has to be a lighter, a higher value, which really is higher love. And on that, you base your path of action, especially as you desire great change in the world. I believe he did that, and his beautiful example still stands. I will say one last thing about Musara for now, and that is that the more you feel love and thanks mm-hmm. for Nasara, whether it is whether it just got announced or you're still looking forward to that, the more love and thanks, the more real it becomes. Remember the sacred maths and geometries of this earth and this universe are with you always. And you know me, I have to say, uh, active eight. Activate your eternal eight. Eight is the number of my tray of gold. It's manifestation, everybody. The number eight on its side, yes, the symbol of infinity, infinite love and infinite co-creation. You are already there. Celebrate with us, my family. We send so much love. And Caroline says, thank you, my friends. That means a lot. And we'll have to speak again with Shirley. Until then, I send much love to all. Masara now. And peace in the world now. Namaste. All right, I'm passing this talking stick with all that emerald serpent feather one has to share with all of us. Here it comes. That's Sanaka Kumara talking stick right to you. Rainbird. Okay, I want to punctuate Shirley and say one 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 one. <laughs> we have one 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 one. <laughs> yeah, so thank you for sharing Caroline and the collective. I'm glad you did because it came across my email and I go, I think I'll just wait for Tara to read it to me. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm glad to be of service, Lady Vester. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad I waited. It was fun. <laughs> and the whole the whole day was fun. It was a lot of quantum physics going on, that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. We did a little magic today. Keep it up, everybody. Yeah, keep it up. Keep it up. Yeah, so we got it. And 
lots of gratitude. So I pass this talking stick over to you, Rama. Here it comes. Oh, what do you have for us, Rama? This is Aurora Ray. The final hour, your light works, lasting mark on Earth's collective shift. All right, here we go. Collective shift is underway. You are here on Earth at this time for a reason. You have worked through many lifetimes in order to learn how to stay centered and balanced in a world of chaos. You have worked through many lifetimes, learning how to lead by example and how to stay true to yourself no matter what comes your way. You have learned how to love yourself and others unconditionally while feeling compassion for everyone who doesn't yet understand why they are here. Everyone who feels lost or confused or angry or sad or victimized by life itself. I understand that many of you are struggling with health issues, financial issues, and relationship issues. You may be wondering how your spiritual path affects all of this. I want to remind you that your light work is directly affecting the miasma of this planet. Everything will shift as more and more people connect with the light. Even some who seem stuck in the dark will be moved by this collective change. The more you heal yourselves, your families, and your friends, the more you will help benefit others who are stuck in dark situations. Many feel that they desire to awaken now. This includes beings who are currently working in dense frequencies. You have been working very hard behind the scenes to help move this planet into the next level of consciousness, which some call ascension. Your physical bodies are going through dramatic changes right now, changes that would not be possible without your light working. Often, when we get caught up in life situations that feel challenging, we tend to focus on what's going wrong. Instead, refocus on what's going right. This will change your perspective as well as attract more of what feels good to you, and thus have a positive impact on others. If you're feeling scared or worried about the state of your personal situation or the world, know that it's just a symptom of a larger energetic shift occurring now. It's not a bad thing. It's just something that needs to be released for us to move forward into our next stages of evolution. You may not notice it today or tomorrow, but when you look back at this time period in a few months, you will see how much has changed for the better. Many of these changes will seem sudden and unexpected, but they were planted during these times right now when many of you are choosing to make an effort to tune into the light or reconnect with it. You may feel like you're doing something small or insignificant by sitting in meditation or sending healing energy to someone or something, but I assure you this is not true. You are the ones who came to Earth to make a difference. You are the ones who came here to heal yourselves and bring light into this world. The more you work on your own healing, the more you are helping others. Light is changing everything right now. We can see how many new souls are entering this planet right now. Most of them are light workers, beings who came to help Earth during its ascension. This is why it is important for you to continue with your own healing and awakening process. As people awaken, they will begin to affect their environment in positive ways. They will be able to channel healing energy into their families, friends, 
and communities. The more people who connect with their heart energy, the more this will have an impact on the whole world. As you awaken and begin to love yourselves and others more, you will start contributing positively to the atmosphere of negativity that is currently around this planet. Even those individuals who are stuck in a dark reality will be affected by this change in vibration because everything is connected energetically. I appreciate all that you have done for yourselves, for each other, and for this planet. You have been through so much struggle at times, but no things are changing drastically. This is the time for more of you to give your life over to light work. It's time for you to be of service and help transform this planet into the utopia that it can be. I know that many of you are still dealing with personal issues, but I can tell you that this is an integral part of your own healing process. By healing yourself, you begin to automatically heal your family, friends, and eventually the world. As a collective, we are beginning to understand that we must heal ourselves first in order to move on in our spiritual evolution. We have begun to restore balance within ourselves, and now it's time for us to help others find their own balance. There are many people on this planet who seek guidance and direction, many of whom seek knowledge about themselves and the world around them. Prayer, dear Great Spirit, help me to heal myself and others. Help me see the truth about the world around me, so that I may be of service to those who are in need. Help me to be an anchor for light and love, no matter what is going on around me. Allow me to be a vessel for your light and your love, but also allow me to trust my own power to heal myself and others. I am ready to be of service. Show me how. Through giving, we receive. Through healing others, we are healed. By intending, I wish to serve the universe will serve you. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. grand finale here tonight everyone sweet dreams see you on the bridge and we will do this again next week and until we meet again peace down Nasara now and I will just invite you as you see fit to join us Sunday evening and Monday evening with our sister Cheryl. I'm sure she'll be with us to uh, renew the, the day. I, and I'm sure she's doing well, hip replacement and all. And the number, we come together at about 10 minutes of 7 Mountain Time, 10 of 9 Eastern Time, 10 of 6 Pacific, and 10 of 7 Central. 425. 436-6260 and the PIN code 946-7441-POUND. All right. See you again, as I said, tomorrow and Monday at that time for Cheryl or next week, 
same time, same station. Nasara Nam, Namaste. Satnam. Satnam Ki. Aho, Vitaska, yes. And 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil, and live long and prosper. Magic is afoot. God is his alive. Namaste.